ho! Hello, Serenity! You've grown so much, and you've been very good this year. What would you like for Christmas? A new Quantum Leap podcast episode for a little miracle. Are you telling me you want another level of inception of the podcast for a little miracle? Yes. And how many layers of inception does that podcast have now? I've lost count. Santa's lost count too. But since you've been such a good girl, you've got it. I just hope we don't all end up in limbo. Ho ho ho! Thank you so much, Santa. Merry Christmas, everyone! Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode number 40, A Little Miracle, part four? Is it four we're on? <laughs> it might be. Well, 40D or 40C? <laughs> Welcome back to another episode on A Little Miracle. Yes, we're going back in once again this year. I, I I don't know how many layers it is. I don't I don't know I don't know how deep we're in it, but uh, we've got some new content for this episode. And joining me today is Allison. Hi, <laughs> you know Albie, this is the Winchester Mystery House of podcasts. <laughs> it, it really you just is. Just keep building on it and building on. There's doors that go to nowhere. There's stairs that lead to nothing. It's just continual. It will never end. <laughs> I doubt anyone is ever going to listen to this version or one after it, if there is one in its entirety ever. But well, you know what? They should, because there's lots of good stuff. And I think the new stuff that, that's coming up in this one is, is really great and worth listening to. I think so, too. Uh, we're very lucky enough to get an interview with the writer of A Little Miracle. His name is Sandy Freeze, and uh, he's got a new book out, and we talk about that. And we talk about A Little Miracle and so much other stuff in this episode. So you're going to want to listen to that. And of course, why not listen to the rest of it? We have an interview coming up after that that was previously released with Jared Lennon, who played Tiny Boy in the episode A Little Miracle. And there's so many different Quantum Leap podcast hosts, opinions, thoughts, and so much Christmassy Quantum Leap cheer. I, I don't know how it's all going to be contained in one episode. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> I know how it's going to be contained. It's it's like four hours probably. <laughs> Man, with the with the the interview, it's got to be like five, right? It's like three hours now. Well, eventually we'll go for seven. So we'll we'll see. I don't know who we'll be able to get next year, but twenty four hours of a little <laughs> miracle podcast. Wow, that would be a miracle. It would <laughs> it would be like a podcast that was only supposed to last three hours, but it lasted twelve. <laughs> It's supposed to last past Christmas. Oh, it might, actually, if you start listening to it on Christmas. Because, <laughs> I, 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 well, I'm thinking of it right now. What if we're – I know we're currently recording and talking in our real time, but what if this is just another layer in a future version of this episode and we're just in the past and somebody just introduced us talking? Oh, my goodness. Someone takes up the mantle, right? We are long gone. We are dust in the ground. Our bones have faded away. And there's someone else who has taken up the Quantum Leap podcast. <laughs> and this episode of Quantum Leap has become like the 
It's a Wonderful Life of the Future, and Serenity's very old, but she's hosting the episodes anyway with <laughs> interviews of the grandchildren of the actors and, and producers of this episode. Yes, that will be the legacy. And we're in the past. I don't know if I'm kind of, I guess I'm okay with it, but I'm kind of sad now that we're dead. Hey, can, can I just say something? I want to say hi to the people of the future. <laughs> I hope things are going good. I hope they did something about that ozone thing. Uh, I, I heard it's growing back, but you know, now the global warming, this is probably just on a data stream or a probe out in space somewhere floating around, hoping some intelligent life form finds it and understands it. <laughs> oh, sad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you have any thoughts? Uh, have have you you you've been on a, a little miracle episode here and there, haven't you? Or no? No, this is my first time. What do you think about a little miracle? Uh, one of I think two quantum leap holiday Christmassy episodes. It's uh it's great. I've used it uh, on at least a couple friends as a first time quantum leap viewing actually, because it's great. It's a holiday special. So there's no like it's it's not really heavy though there certainly are some dark parts to it. You just be like you want to see like a a fun Christmas special with a, a story you're sort of familiar with and and it's a good way to introduce people and Charles Rocket's amazing. Uh, mm. I think he's super funny. He was great on Tequila and Benetti. I loved him in Earth Girls Are Easy. Um, he's just a he was a great actor. And uh, I was glad that he was able to do some of his more serious stuff, but then also go into the comedic stuff when it starts doing the the ghost of Christmas future thing. And uh, I genuinely like one of my favorite Al moments is is when he dresses up as as the ghost. Dean Stockwell gets to just ham it up, and it's uh it's just fantastic. Was it you that was telling me something about his outfit in that episode? Yeah. Um. Gosh, I think this is okay to talk about. It's, it's probably fine. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm not betraying any confidence. I think this is fine. Yeah, my best friend, Jean-Pierre Dorliac, um, told me about this. <laughs> he, um, he was at one point approached to be part of a project in the 80s, uh, early 80s, called Heartbeeps, which was a movie starring Andy Kaufman uh, about robots that fall in love. And... Uh, and it was a notorious bomb. Um, it's it's infamous for that. Like, there's an interview with Andy Kaufman where he he offers to refund everyone who went to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, Jean Pierre didn't end up doing the movie, but he submitted some sketches for them for the costumes, and they ended up using his sketches anyway. Um, and I, I don't know if they asked permission to do it. I think whoever did it just used his designs. Hmm. So when he was doing a little miracle, I wasn't really clear on this part of the conversation, but I think he found it like in the universal prop department or costume department. Um, there was a version of the suit that Andy Kaufman wears in that, which is like a pinstriped suit. And it was like, um, a damaged version like they made you know like four different versions and one of them was like the the character was supposed to have been damaged at some point and so he took that costume and just uh according to to him um hot glued a bunch of <laughs> to dean stockwell <laughs> <laughs> and uh and altered it so that you would never really know and so that's the suit that dean stockwell is wearing in that scene is andy kaufman's heartbeat suit so if you look at like uh, promo images from Heartbeeps, where it's got that pinstripe suit with the uh, the pinstripes are kind of 3D looking, like they're piping or something, you can tell that it's the same suit that he's wearing. And he wears it in the film. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it was what was used in the movie. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to look at the photographs. I'm going to actually watch the, the film. When, when I hear something's that bad, <laughs> I, I like to enjoy it. That's one of the things I like to do. I've never watched it, so I can't say if it's so bad it's good or just just bad, but I know it was notorious for uh, for not doing so well. <laughs> I'm not sure what you just said, but all I heard was watch party. Watch party? What, you think <laughs> a heart beeps watch party? Oh my god, what if we did it with Jean-Pierre? That would be You're perfect. Like, Write Jean-Pierre, it down. do you want to watch heart beeps with us? <laughs> right. You, you turn down? <laughs> <laughs> he, could, he could just uh, wreck on him the whole time. <laughs> That would that be glorious. Fantastic. That would be awesome. See, this is this is how we come up with ideas at, at three thirty in the morning. Sure. So, for <laughs> everyone still listening, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, um, Merry Christmas, Allison. Would you like to introduce the interview with Professor Sandy Fries? You guys are in for a treat because this was a fantastic interview. I know I'm spoiling. I already listened to it, but. Uh, you know what? I, I thought it was really great. He was very personable, and I, I thought you guys talked about some really touching stuff. So I hope you guys really enjoy it. So take a listen with the interview with Sandy Freeze. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Sandy Freeze is a professor of mass communication at the College of DuPage. He was an NBC fellow at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and has written books, magazine articles, and episodes of television shows, along with numerous produced scripts for television networks. As a journalist, Freeze has met three United States presidents, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, and Bill Clinton. His memoir, Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You, is an informative book about the show business industry. For anyone who is planning to enter the entertainment industry, this book provides colorful and funny stories, valuable insights, and helpful tips and tricks on how to succeed. This is a fascinating and fun book to read. Of course, leapers know Sandy Freeze best as the writer of the Quantum Leap Christmas episode, A Little Miracle. Sandy has been kind enough to speak to Albie about his experiences and has earned a permanent spot on the nice list in the process. Please enjoy Albie's interview with Sandy Freeze. Thank you so much, Mr. Freeze, for joining us on the Quantum Leap podcast today. I'm very excited to talk to you. You have been a writer in television magazines. You have a book. I'm most excited to talk to you about different shows from my childhood and teenage years that I really love and uh, you've been involved with. Mainly, I want to talk to you about the Christmas episode of Quantum Leap that we uh, love to talk about every year. It's called The Little Miracle. Could you tell me how you got involved with Quantum Leap? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely happy to do that. Uh, First, please call me Sandy. Oh, thank you. Uh, Sure. And second, uh, thank you for having me as a guest. I, I, I'm a big fan of your podcast. You do a great job. So now, after the compliments are done, <laughs> here's, here we go to the question. Uh, I had always, always loved Quantum Leap as a show, you know, as a viewer, uh, before I uh, did the A Little Miracle episode. You know, the, the writing was just so brilliant and sophisticated. The acting was brilliant and sophisticated. Every element of a show that you need to work well worked beautifully on that show. Nothing was off. Uh, and I said to my agent, get me on this show. 
I don't care what you have to do. I want to write for this show. This is maybe one of the best written TV shows in the history of TV, best produced, best acted, most sophisticated. And I just pushed my agent to get me on the show. Uh, he knew, I believe it was Chris Rupenthal on the show. And uh, he sent Chris a script I did, and Chris liked it. And uh, I got to write for the show. And it was, you know, it's just an amazing thing. It, it was both uplifting and wonderful and nerve-wracking at the same time. Uh, and I'll tell you why nerve-wracking. I loved the show so much, Quantum Leap, that... Before I started doing the outline in the script, I, I was so excited and at the same time nervous because I wanted to do a great job that something happened to me that has never happened to me before or since. My hands just got full of nervous rashes. Hmm. And I literally had to go to the doctor and I said, is this from nervousness? And he said, oh, yeah, it probably easily could be that. So uh, anyway, how did I get started for the for writing for the show? I, I asked my agent, uh, pestered him until he got me to write for it. Was your first experience with Quantum Leap uh, writing A Little Miracle with them? Uh, yeah, I was writing A Little Miracle. I had to go into a pitch meeting. And at the pitch meeting, that, that was kind of interesting. But pitch meeting is where you obviously go in and pitch story ideas. And at the pitch meeting was, uh, if my memory's correct, Tommy Thompson was at the meeting. Deborah Pratt was at the meeting. Chris Rupenthal was at the meeting. Uh, I remember Donald Belisari was not at the meeting. But there were seven people I was pitching to. So at a pitch meeting, you go in, you give ideas that might make episodes work. And I deliver, you know, I, I walked into this room and I vividly remember the room. It was a little on the dark side. And I remember saying to myself, wow, I'm pitching to seven people who are brilliant people and writers. I hope I do a good job. And I knew before the meeting that I really wanted to do a holiday show. The reason for that is they run you know, Christmas shows, usually more often than typical shows. So I wanted to pitch a holiday show. I had known they had not done one. So I thought, okay, that'll be a cool thing to do. So I pitched them a few ideas and lucky enough, the holiday show was the one they went for. And it was pretty fascinating to be in that meeting because your brain has to work hopefully on a level with the other writers and writers slash producers because that's part of what the meeting's about. Part of the meeting is, do they like the idea that you're pitching? The other part of the meeting is, is this somebody we can work with? Is this somebody we want to work with? Is this somebody who's got a talent? Is this somebody who's got a good quantum leap brain? So it's, it's an interview as well as a pitch meeting. And uh, luckily, they liked me. They liked the Christmas idea. And we kicked it around in the meeting. And... It's the kind of thing where one person will come up with an idea, another throws in another idea, and it's TV is a very collaborative kind of a form. You know, it's collaborative in terms of the writing. It's collaborative in terms of obviously you have actors giving writers ideas sometimes, directors throw in ideas. Everybody's throwing in ideas to make the end product great. So it's a very collaborative process. And on Quantum Leap, everybody 
was phenomenally talented and helpful and nice that it was it was just a great great experience uh i'll tell you one other story and and you know this was interesting as well at least to me maybe not to anybody else but they gave me a bunch of scripts of quantum leap to read before i came into the pitch meeting and one of them was a donald belisario written script and I remember reading his script and saying, my gosh, this guy is one of the best writers I've ever read in my life, you know, for anything. His writing had such energy and such style and was so compelling and engaging and entertaining. And you usually don't see that in a TV script. You know, usually a viewer will only hear the dialogue. However, there's a lot of descriptive stuff that's also in a script. You know, Sam does this. Uh, the other character walks across and does this, this, and this. Uh, so the viewer doesn't get that. But Mr. Belisario's writing in the script, in the descriptive stuff, obviously in the dialogue, was some of the best writing I had ever seen anywhere. You know, it was up there with maybe the best script writers you can think of. Shane Black, Patty Chayefsky. And the guy is a phenomenal writer. I agree. I, I, I think the writing is what the whole show for most episodes has like a voice where you empathize more with the characters than you would on other TV shows. Like you feel like you're experiencing yourself while you're watching it. And whatever that magic is between the actors and the writing and everybody involved, it just it worked. And when you're talking about the pitch meeting and how collaborative the writing process is for a TV show, is that where you get the um, written by, story idea by, teleplay by, and how does that work? Uh, okay, that's uh, sort of a writer's guild kind of a matrix. Story by means the writer who gets the story by credit comes up with the overall story, the basic story, the beginning, middle, end, the twist. Uh, how the story flows, how the story develops. So that's the basic story. Uh, written by is the dialogue. So the dialogue is could be either one writer or two writers. So, yeah, on this particular episode, the credit was story by Sandy Fries and written by Robert Walterstorff. Uh, so that's how it worked on that episode. On episodes, for example... The Simpsons, you can have one writer write the beginning draft of the show, and then it's read at what's called a table read, and you can have a bunch of other writers throw in a piece of dialogue here, a piece of dialogue there. Uh, so, yeah, again, there you go. With uh, you and Robert writing the show, uh, I picture in my mind a smoky room and two guys pacing back and forth with a typewriter. Was it like that, or were you sending versions back and forth, or how did that work? Well, first of all, I have never smoked. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and I and I want to make clear, anybody listening to this podcast, please do not smoke. It's bad, it's bad for, for you. you. Yes, agree. Uh, so, no, there was no smoky room, really. Robert Walterstorff and I met in his office on the, I think it was the Universal lot. Uh, we discussed stuff. We kicked around ideas. I took notes. He took notes. I wrote a draft of the script. I wrote a full draft of the script, you know, start to finish. Uh, I started before the script with an outline, which is, again, the basic story beat by beat. Then I wrote the script. And again, we had some back and forth. 
and discussion over it. And then he took the script and made some changes. And that's how it worked. What was your inspiration for uh, doing the A Christmas Carol, the Scrooge story in Quantum Leap? When you knew you were doing Scrooge for Quantum Leap, did you just like in your head assign characters who this is going to be, who this is going to be? And does that kind of help like just the writing flow out of you once you have that all in your head? Well, you know, it's it's a very classic story, you know, the, the Scrooge and all that. And I just thought it would be very cool to give it a unique very unusual twist. So that was kind of cool. I also thought, you know, a show that has the heart and the soul of Quantum Leap really needs to do a holiday show. Uh, that seemed to be missing. Another thing I thought was, I work hard on anything I write, so I want this to run as much as possible. And usually the Christmas shows of any series will run every year, whereas the other episodes don't always run every year. They might run, you know, season two and maybe later on in reruns and syndication. But I, I thought a Christmas show would run every year if it went into syndication or even if it was in season X, they'd rerun it just because of the holiday. So it was it was that thought plus doing a spoof on the uh, classic Scrooge story and also, the idea of Dean Stockwell doing those uh, characters out of the classic story to me was like, oh boy, this is going to be cool. Mm -hmm. That's a smart thought of doing the holiday episodes because, like in syndication, or uh, did you you would get more residuals because it was played more often, right? Well, you want to know something? Yeah, I never said that to you. However, that <laughs> thought did go through my mind when I came up with the idea. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't all me being a noble, wonderful guy. <laughs> it, it was also me saying to myself, yeah, I'll get more residuals. And residuals, for those who may not know, means money. So in effect, to, in addition to trying to be a guy who does a noble story, a heart-wrenching story, I was also a writer who wanted to make more money. Mm. Got to pay the and bills. I, well, you know, hey, I'm going to work just as hard. Might as well make more money off mm -hmm, of it. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 was, it was a combination of those things. Making the extra residuals was great. Running every holiday was great. Uh, and it just the biggest thing was I, I remember saying to myself, how in the heck did a, a show with such heart and such emotion as Quantum Leap not do a holiday show? Yeah, well, I pull it out every year around this time, so uh, it's a, a, probably one of the episodes I watch the most. Um, Thank you. Uh, great job uh, in the writing of it. I mean, it, it really is good. It, it's it's right up there with the Tommy Thompson, Deborah Pratt, Donald P. Belisario scripts. It really is. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And and I got to tell you, my favorite part of that episode is the ending. You know, for some reason, the best part of my scripts or my writing best parts usually are the ending. And, you know, I just loved the ending. I loved the way it was shot. I loved the way it was acted. As I was writing it, I said, oh boy, if they do this correctly, this could be a cool ending. You know, I, I can't remember the exact dialogue, but it was something like something to the effect of Al saying to Sam, I did not put the star there. That's the thing that gives you that little bit of chills at the end of the story. Did you have that feeling when you thought of that idea? And how, how far along into the story idea did you think of that ending? 
You know, I don't remember when I thought of the ending. However, this might sound unusual. I've had experiences like that Mm. in my, in my own life where I say to myself, gosh, what was going on there? Was that a miracle? Was that help from the deity? Am I imagining it? And that's the feeling you get at the end of the A Little Miracle episode. Uh, and it's, I think it's an important feeling because I think, and this may sound crazy, I think miracles happen. I'll give you one or two examples from my own life where it had the ending of the A Little Miracle story. Was it real? Was it a miracle? There was a time many, many years ago, maybe 20 years ago, uh, maybe more, where I was feeling terrible about something, you know, just really, really down in the dumps, miserable. And I remember thinking, okay, correct deity. That's what I call him, her, correct deity. Okay, correct deity. If you exist, I'd like a sign, please. And please don't give me a sign that could be interpreted one way or the other. Here's the specific sign I would like. We, and I said, I thought to the deep, you know, me talking to the deity, which is a pretty pompous thing for me to do. But I said, okay, deity, this is exactly what I'd like. I don't want it to be up for interpretation. As soon as I stop thinking, I would like my telephone to ring as soon as I stop thinking. But wait, then I'll have to talk to somebody and I'm feeling so miserable. I don't want to talk to anybody after the phone rings. So immediately when I stopped thinking that, the phone rings. I pick up the phone and it is completely silent. There is no buzz. There is no dial tone. There is no voice. And that to me was a little miracle. And it was what I asked for specifically. And it was beyond what I asked for specifically. You know, I I didn't want to talk to anybody. So I got complete silence. Not a dial tone, not a voice, just complete silence. And I've never heard that on a phone. And to me, that was a little miracle. And you could say, well, was the star planted there or was it not? Was the phone ringing something from a deity or was it not? And you could debate that. My, my belief was and is that that was a little miracle, actually maybe a big miracle. So specific and accurate. Uh, it's, that's it's give me chills listening to it. It's crazy. That's- well, you, you know, it, it was it, it so darn amazing to me. Uh, and I deliberately asked for something that could not be subjective or interpreted. And, you know, I wanted to get that feeling at the end of the episode because I do believe there are miracles and I also believe that people are not attuned to them or not believing in them as much as they should uh, and people might say hey you know Sandy you're wrong it's it's this technical thing or that technical thing but that's just not how I read it well, the whole uh, Quantum Leap show in general, they were very rarely specific about what or who was controlling everything, but there was definitely some intervention from something. So that that really fits in really good with the Quantum Leap overall, I think. Well, let me, let me tell you something else. To me, those are the classiest kinds of stories 
where the storyteller sets up a situation that is a Rorschach test for the viewer. And the Rorschach test makes the viewer think what is the ending of the story or what is the story about. And it's a catalyst for thought on the part of the viewer. So A Little Miracle was, I think, most importantly, a catalyst for thought on the part of the viewer as to do miracles exist? Do they not exist? Are we alone? Are we not alone? And I have my answer, but if a million or two million people watch Quantum Leap and use their brains to think about that, then as a writer, I think I'm doing something worthwhile and maybe even noble. People will sometimes change their minds on things. But the whole concept of Quantum Leap is, as you said, it is something that is subjective as to what's going on. You know, who's causing this to happen? And is there a deity type entity intervening in this or not? Uh, so that's a catalyst for thought. And I think anytime you could, as a writer, create that kind of a catalyst for thought or a subjective call on the part of the viewer, you're doing something interesting and something useful and something that may help people evolve. Mm. Mission accomplished with that episode for sure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, one of the other things I'm excited to talk to you about is your involvement with Star Trek and Star Trek, the next generation and Star Trek Borg. Uh, uh, you know how uh, the butterfly effect, uh, little actions here or there, things happen. I wouldn't be doing a Quantum Leap podcast if it wasn't for the computer game, Star Trek Borg. Oh, wow. I, I, I was the story editor for that. I walked into a store one day and I saw it on a shelf and I was like, I want that. What is it? A computer game? Okay. So I bought the game and I took it to a computer shop you had to go to back then. And I said, I want a computer that I can play this on. And and they, yeah. they sold me a IBM Aptiva and I was able to play it. And from then on, I've been a computer nerd geek. I was a story editor for Star Trek Borg. Uh, and I, you know, it was a while ago, but I remember that game. And those kinds of games have huge scripts because there's so many branches yeah. that they can go off on. Uh, so I story edited that. I did a little bit of writing for it, but mostly I edited and rewrote other writers' material. And, you know, the whole Borg thing is an amazing concept because if you look at the situation a certain way, we are now all the Borg, mm. you know, in terms of the Internet. We're all fed the same stuff through the same Internet. Uh, we all input media from, you know, Sony, NBC, Comcast, etc. And to a large degree, we are the Borg. You know, we're all hooked up. We're all as one, you know, in terms of the media that we input. And I've traveled to other countries and I, you know, I was in Venice and I saw McDonald's in Venice. I've been to other countries where you see McDonald's. So, We've sort of Borgized the whole world, in effect. Am I pushing it for effect a little bit? Maybe, but not that much. Mm. Uh, it's very true. Like uh, nowadays, we don't really worry about learning too much because we know we have instant access to the world's information at at our fingertips. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else that I absolutely believe will happen. Elon Musk 
is part of a company called Neuralink. I believe he's an investor in Neuralink. But what Neuralink is, and let me just explain who Elon Musk is. Almost everybody knows who he is, but he's the founder of PayPal along with his brother. He was one of the founders, if not the founder of uh, Tesla, uh, I believe SpaceX as well. But anyway, the guy's a very accomplished, very brilliant guy. He's, he's part of a company now that is called Neuralink, and it borgs people. Neuralink is a link from your brain to a computer that links your brain directly to a computer. Uh, and that is the Borg. Wow. And it's, it's, you know, look up Neuralink, N-E-U-R-A-L-I-N-K. Uh, the last time I looked it up, about seven, eight months ago, they had uh, openings for people to work there. So if anybody wants to become a Borg creator, if they still have job openings, <laughs> go, go to Neuralink and you too can create Borg. You know, there's nothing different at the core of the idea between Neuralink and uh, what Elon Musk is doing. And, you know, Elon Musk is, he's he's an edgy, brilliant, out-there guy, and he absolutely believes this will become a mass market thing. And, you know, I've, I've written a bunch of science fiction. I can often predict what will happen in terms of science fiction because, to me, it's, almost a logical extension of what came before. Absolutely, we will become even more and more Borgized as time goes on. I think it's a natural progression. There are people with brain implants now, and there have been for several years. Uh, their connections through either implants or other devices on the head. I've seen video, I think it was on 60 Minutes, of a person who is paraplegic. However, the person was able to think and just by thinking, move a mouse. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that you could, you could, anybody who's listening can find that on the internet. It may have been 60 minutes, but I remember seeing that a few years ago. So the, I'll tell you another story. Listen to this. I am a college professor now. I continue to write have a wonderful book called Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You on Amazon. So I'm plugging that early. I know you're going to mention it later, but us writers plug. (laughs) (laughs) Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You on Amazon. One of the best things I've ever written. But anyway, college professor now, I continue to write. I had a student about three years ago who, after class, I don't know how it came up, but he was telling me about something that was going on with him. He was doing an experiment through an MD group of MDs where by thinking he had some device on his head, but just by thinking he could control a video game. Wow. And this is about three years ago. So the technology has advanced hugely since then. You know, I teach mass communication and writing and mass communication deals with things like brain implants, internet, you know, Neuralink, all of that stuff. We're we're headed into some very, very unusual stuff. I th- I think I'd be all for it if it was non-invasive and upgradable. I wouldn't want to get like an implant in my brain and then the next year they come out with the new model, you know? 
Yeah, you, your brain will only be able to watch cartoons unless you get <laughs> unless you get the updated model. Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm I'm hoping that uh, I can have a really good uh, retirement when I'm a senior citizen and be in a virtual reality world at my uh, leisure. You know, I know Rod Roddenberry is working on some uh, with uh, different companies for some virtual reality stuff. The Borg is is a really good character. Like we're talking about, I love that game. Uh, one of the best things I love about it is you have to lose the game to learn how to win the game. It's a very, you know, I worked on that game a long time ago, but the whole concept of the Borg is a fascinating concept. You know, you could look at it as possibly a certain type of government versus a different type of government. You could look at it as a technological world versus a less technological world, but it's a very clever kind of device. The Borg is a very fascinating concept. I, I've seen other things from Star Trek and other things just happen. On the original Star Trek, uh, there used to be, and this has been written about, so it's not a big deal. On the original Star Trek, the uh, speaking devices, the communication devices were flip phones, in effect. And, you know, flip phones at this point are obsolete, you know, the sort of clamshell but that's what the communicator devices were on the original Star Trek. And uh, another thing from Star Trek, uh, I remember walking through the sets and the computer interface on one of the set walls was supposed to be dark black and you would either speak to it or you might've touched it, I can't remember. I think it was touching the dark black and the computer would read your finger imprint or whatever. I test drove a Tesla. They have the same kind of uh, deal to control the Tesla. The dashboard of the Tesla is a black screen, no knobs, no nothing until you turn it on or whatever. And it's just like the interface was on the Star Trek Next Generation Enterprise in some of the hallways. Uh, so the Tesla, you know, the clamshell communicator, uh, I think we're about roughly four or five years away from Neuralink becoming mass market. Uh, a lot of stuff that science fiction predicts actually happens. I think uh, NextGen in particular has been a very big influence on our current like user interfaces for everything. It was just so cool. And I think everybody that's creating things now were in part inspired by that, like in their teen years uh, when they were a kid going, oh, yeah. And, you know, the acutograms, of course, uh, how all that works is very similar to how all our touchscreen stuff works now. Oh, um, yeah. Mike, Mike Okuda, also, Mike Okuda's designs were very... They work really well because the designs look as cool now as they did back then. They're not dated. And I can tell you another thing. There was an episode I wrote for Next Generation where the there were three or four candidates for Starfleet Academy. And my idea was to have them play a game that was 3D holographic game to test their reflexes, their knowledge, blah, blah, blah. You know, they told me, the production people told me, hey, Sandy, that, that's going to be too expensive to make it look good. We're going to have to do it on a flat screen. But now you can do a holographic three-dimensional game. I, I've seen holograms that are very, very realistic and, and believable looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, coming of age, right? 
Correct, yeah, coming of age. But Wesley tries to get into Starfleet Academy, and he fails. And the reason he, the reason he failed, one of the reasons he failed was because I uh, was a guest at several Star Trek conventions, you know, as a guest speaker, and fans always used to say, why is Wesley always a uh, genius? Why does he always save the day? Why? He's too, he's too brilliant. Why, why doesn't he ever mess things up? So I thought it would be cool to have him fail getting into Starfleet Academy. Something else a lot of people don't know about Wesley, uh, Gene Roddenberry's middle name was Wesley. So was uh, Wesley kind of like uh, a version of a younger uh, Gene Roddenberry maybe in his mind? Uh, that is a guess on my part. You know, uh, Roddenberry named the character after himself, and the character was a boy genius. <laughs> now, is there something going on there consciously and or subconsciously? I'm going to guess yes. <laughs> Wesley failed in that episode, but in a great way because he, was, he helped somebody else. Exactly. That was the twist. That was the twist. You know, so it's, it's kind of another Rorschach ending. He fails. But did he really fail? Okay, viewer, you figure it out yourself. It's helping another being a failure. So he did fail, but from a different perspective, he, he was noble. He did the right thing by helping another being. So it's another one of those Rorschach Viewer, please think about this. You know, if you think about it deeply enough, it gets into what is success, what is failure. And you could make a very good case for saying he failed the little part, but he was a great big winner where it really is important to win, helping somebody else. So you could say that. Or if you're cynical, you could say, hey, that jerk failed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, there was another scene I remember in, in that episode. I remember writing this and saying to myself, oh, this is going to be a cool scene. Uh, it's a scene, and I'm paraphrasing, this is a while ago, it was a scene between Wesley and Picard. And I'll paraphrase the dialogue. Picard is saying to Wesley, hey, Wesley, there's a dinner for our visitor. I'd like you to come. And Wesley says, uh, sir... I can't go to the dinner. Picard says, Wesley, I, why? I'd like you to go to the dinner. Wesley says, Captain, I failed you, and I failed the Enterprise. And then Picard says, Wesley, don't tell anyone. It's between us, but I also failed. And then he gets into something he failed, and I can't remember what it was. That was another cool moment because it's an admission of we're human beings. We've all got frailties. We've all got failures. And the trick is to overcome those failures, learn from them, and keep going. You know, every human being has failures, obstacles, flaws. Uh, that's not anything to be ashamed of. It's something to learn from and move forward and be heroic and overcome it. Uh, and that's what the scene was really about. You know, there was the text and the subtext, and the subtext was Picard admits to Wesley he too is a human being with frailties, and that's a way to connect. You know, there's somebody said, a philosopher somebody, that every human being has, uh, what's the word, flaws or gaps, 
and light shines through those gaps so that we can connect with each other as human beings. And I think that's very astute and very correct and very moving. Uh, you know, I connect most with other human beings, most powerfully, most dramatically, most effectively, when I reveal some of my flaws and they share some of their flaws. We kind of give each other advice and that's where you connect. You don't connect on, hey, I drove this cool car. Oh yeah, I drove this cool car. Hey, here's a photo of me eating at a $52 plate <laughs> restaurant. Oh, here's a photo of me at a $62 plate restaurant. No, that kind of crap mm -hmm. is not where you connect with another human being. Where you connect is where you show the flaws, the other person shows the flaws, you help each other with them, you have compassion for them, you have empathy for them, and they give you the same in return. So that's why I thought it was a cool scene. Uh, and Picard, who's a captain, and Wesley, who's usually Mr. Perfect, admit their humanity, admit their flaws. And that's why it was a powerful scene. And, and Patrick Stewart said to me once, you know, Sandy, that was my favorite scene of the whole first series. Now, he may have been saying that to be nice to me, because uh, he's a phenomenally nice guy. He may have been saying that because in the next episode, his real favorite scene came up. Uh, but, but I loved the scene, and he, he really seemed to like the scene. There were a lot of scenes after that scene that were probably better scenes. You know, the, the killer episode, the killer great episode for me of uh, Star Trek Next Generation, I wish I had written and was brilliant, but I did not write. I wish I could have written that. It's called The Inner Light. Oh, yeah. I was crying at the end of that thing. All of us. I, I was like, man, oh, man. I can't remember the writer, but that writer ripped my heart out. The scene you're talking about, I think, was very pivotal, and it's, it was like the beginning of Picard and Wesley's father-son friendship relation, that bond that they made, I think. That that was the first time he wasn't just a kid on the bridge, and, you know, it was more of a, like, they were a team. Yeah, you know, that kind of bond, as I mentioned before, happens when you let your force fields down and you let your humanity and your flaws show to another human being. The force fields go down and reality takes its place. There is no connection with, hey, my Rolls Royce is tan. Oh, yeah, well, my Rolls Royce is black and it's newer. There's no connection there. As a matter of fact, there might be some uh, underlying hostility that you're showing off or pretending to be Mr. Hotshot. I'll tell you a story about a Rolls Royce that is kind of interesting and funny to me. Uh, Rolls Royce story. Gene Roddenberry, I was in the building just outside Gene Roddenberry's office, and Gene was telling me a story. It was a real story. I don't know how it came up, but this was a story. He said, Sandy, oops, Funniest thing happened to me a couple of days ago. Oh, what happened, Gene? You know, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard, and my Rolls Royce hit another Rolls Royce. Nobody got hurt, but we dented in each other's cars, and it, it looked pretty messy. So we here we were 
smashed together. Luckily, nobody got hurt. Two Rolls Royces, two great big Rolls Royces. And I think he had it. He may have had a tan one. I forget. And he told me that as people drove by the two smashed Rolls Royces on Sunset Boulevard, they would applaud. (laughs) And what they were applauding at is, hey, you pompous guys who have more money than you need. We're glad you got a little reality going on here. But but Gene thought it was very funny. He laughed at it. I laughed at it. And it is kind of funny. You know, if, if it was a Camry that was 10 years old that smashed into a Camry that was five years old, nobody would be laughing. But it's funny when two great big Rolls Royces kind of dent each other up. And you want to know something? If I was driving by on Sunset Boulevard, I would have laughed and waved also. Mm. It's one of those things where you see it and you're like, eh, karma maybe? <laughs> You know, it's I I do not have a Rolls Royce. <laughs> I would never get one. Uh, you know, it's a pompous kind of thing to do. Mm. You know, get get a car that's maybe a hundred thousand bucks less or two hundred thousand bucks <laughs> less. You buy some food for a homeless guy, right? yeah, or or twenty homeless guys. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's something pompous about anybody driving a Rolls Royce. Mm. Uh, however, Gene Roddenberry kind of knew it and was laughing at himself. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big nerd. I drive a PT cruiser. So I, I, <laughs> I, I hate to admit this, but I drive a Camry. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Tell you yeah. that's, those are nice. I love my Camry. Everybody's always telling me, Sandy, get a new car, get a new car. <laughs> I love my Camry. You know, I've, I've tried really high tech cars and this is going to sound strange from a guy who writes science fiction, but I think there's too much tech in the new cars, uh, and it's not yet perfected. Even still, I test drove a Tesla. I test drove another car where you talk to the car, and the car talks back to you, and the car wasn't talking to me properly, <laughs> and it irritated me. You know, didn't you hear me? I said, <laughs> do this. The car didn't do it. Mm-hmm. So there's enough in life to irritate me. I don't need my car tech to irritate me too. <laughs> and I, I remember it's a very nice, sweet voice who completely misunderstood me and didn't <laughs> do what I asked for. So, you know, like there's enough real life stuff to get me upset and irritated. I don't need it in my car too. With my Camry, turn it on, it goes. The end. Did you see that story about the guy who passed out drunk and the car was driving him home because it was on autopilot or whatever? No, I did not yeah. know that. that it, that's it, interesting. That's and, a great story. I, I think we're definitely headed for, you know, cars that drive themselves, mm. but we're not yet there. When I test drove the Tesla, you know, thinking about maybe getting one of those, it was a beautiful car and a beautifully designed car. And a, just a, a, the design of it was like a piece of art. It was just phenomenally well designed. But as I was test driving it, I was scared and nervous. I was saying to myself, holy mackerel, I'm test driving a car worth so much money. I better not dent this or get into an accident. <laughs> yeah. I, I was very uncomfortable driving that Tesla. Mm. Uh, it was as, as beautiful and high tech as it was. I, I did not enjoy driving it. Too much stress. Too much stress for me. You, you, the whole time you're in a supermarket, you'll be worrying somebody's going to push a shopping cart into it. 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's, it's, yeah, it was too much stress. And I was happy when the test drive was over because I did not enjoy it. Hmm. As, as beautiful a car as it was, I did not enjoy it. So I've kept my, I've test drove a bunch of new cars. I've kept my Camry though for several years. Uh, and I just noticed today that it looks like in the backseat, my dog threw up. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, exactly. If it was a Tesla or a Rolls Royce and my dog threw up in the backseat, that would be a big situation going on. Big deal. Yeah, but right now to camera, he could throw up again. It's fine. And there's, some, there's something to be said for not caring about things that really don't deserve to be cared about. We don't need that kind of stress in life, right? There's plenty of other stuff that will stress <laughs> us out, you know, all kinds of stuff that will be genuine stressors. A dog throwing up in the car. I love my dog. I love my car. I hope he feels better. One of these days, I'll get that stuff out of the backseat. <laughs> you were a story editor on Next Gen for the first few seasons, right? Uh, I was the staff writer okay. uh, for Star Trek Next Generation for the first season. After that... I became the story editor for a lot of their video games, Star Trek video games, and I also co-wrote a Star Trek novel. So I went from staff writer on Next Generation to story editor for the Star Trek video games and also co-wrote uh, a novel. And when you're story editor for the video games, it's a big, big, big job. I, I mentioned before, because the scripts are huge, you know, on a... TV show and our script is relatively small on a video game. It's a stack, very high stack of scripts because there's so many different ways the story can go. Uh, but you know, Star Trek Borg, as I mentioned, was one that I was a story editor for Vulcan's fury. I remember story editing. There was another one called Starfleet Academy that I was story editor for and wrote some of it. And Bill Shatner was actually in that. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, in Starfleet Academy is a very cool concept. You as a player were in Starfleet Academy in the game. And if you messed up, you got booted out of Starfleet Academy. And if you did well in Starfleet Academy, the video game, uh, the William Shatner character, who we all know who he is, uh, Captain Kirk would give you a diploma and you got a diploma or something like that at the end of the game. William Shatner actually was in the game, and there was another actor from the original series who was in the game. I cannot remember which actor it was, one of the regular characters. And I wrote some of Mr. Shatner's dialogue, and I edited the rest of the scripts. And I call him Mr. Shatner because the guy is so brilliant and accomplished I don't feel I deserve to call him Dale. <laughs> you know, even even though I could and he he would be fine with it. You know, you, you don't call William Shatner Bill, even though you work with the guy. But mm -hmm. I remember very vividly the first time I met him on the set, you know, he came over to me and he said, Sandy, hi, thank you for working on this uh, project. I appreciate it. I go, yes, Miss Shannon, it's great to work with you, blah, blah, blah. And he says, Sandy, I got to tell you something. You look way too young to be a writer. 
you know, and he's just such a witty, funny guy. The guy's a great guy, you know, very nice, very brilliant guy, generous. You know, he, as a college professor, I called him and said, hey, Mr. Shatner, I still don't call him Bill. Would you do an interview over the phone with me that uh, my college students could be a part of asking questions and that kind of thing? He said, yeah, sure, Sandy, why not? You know, the guy doesn't have to do that. He gives to charity. He gives up his time. Very, very cool guy. Very cool. I, I, w- I met him for 13 seconds. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it cost How me- did those 13 seconds go? It was pretty good. He looked at me and nodded, and I said, thank you. And how was the nod? Was it a good nod? Yeah, he was in a good mood, so it was nice. It was one of those uh, photo ops, you know? Yeah, I I think I think the guy is a super guy. If you look at his career, he's got a phenomenal career. He's still going, still going, working on projects. Just a few years ago, I think he tried to ride a motorcycle across the United States. It didn't yeah. work. Yeah. But, but you got to give it to a guy his mm. age who tries to drive a motorcycle across the country. <laughs> he he hasn't you know, slowed like, down, that's for sure. Which is phenomenal. And he comes from a pretty humble background. I read one of his autobiographies. Uh, it may have been his only autobiography. Uh, he's had a bunch. I think I've read them all. Well, in one that I read, he recounts how he lived in his either truck or car when he was starting out. And I remember saying to myself, that is as cool as you can get. If you start at the bottom and you work your way through the obstacles to get to the top, that's cool. You know, if you are given all kinds of pluses and you don't have obstacles, that's not as cool. Hmm. I want to say that was either Get a Life or Star Trek Memories. Yeah, I can't remember, but if that was one of the parts of the autobiography that really struck me that stuck out to me bill shatner at one point lived in his car and or truck i can't remember which one you know actually that's what almost every story is about your central character your hero overcoming obstacles and it's a way to connect with the viewer and in effect to say hey viewer we've all got these obstacles let's be heroic and overcome them deal with them the best we can, deal with them with some style, with some intelligence. Don't let it crush you. Mm. While we're on the subject, uh, I wanted to ask you, since I have you, about Star Trek, The Secret of Vulcan Fury. That was one of my first disappointments in life. Like (laughs) I had watched the trailer online back then when it was dial up and you had to wait for it to buffer and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. like I waited and I waited and I waited and it just never happened. What happened with that? That was not my fault. Well, of course not. No. (laughs) Why did the game never come out? You know something? It was so long ago. Mm. I don't even remember. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, is there, is there like a script around? Is there a story somewhere? Cause I, I'm pretty sure I remember reading a, a big script on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could be wrong on this. I could be very wrong, but I think DC Fontana, Fontana Dorothy Fontana mm-hmm. wrote the script. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, again, it was a long time ago. So I, I, I'm about 98% sure uh, Dorothy wrote the script. Mm. She's uh, good. She's good. And very, very nice person. Really nice person. Uh what happened to it, why it didn't come out, I don't even remember. 
Mm, interesting. Was it good? Do you remember being good? <laughs> you want to know something? Yeah. I remember saying to myself, wow, this is a cool title. Mm-hmm. And, and I do not remember too much more about it. Mm, okay. So I, I'm sorry about that. Oh, no worries. I, I'm always trying to solve the mystery. I've been Googling that forever. So, uh, you know, but uh, we'll find out one day, maybe. I don't know. I just, I, I wish they would have turned it into a book or something, maybe like like uh, you did with uh, Starfleet Academy, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I co-wrote a novel with Diane Carey, uh, Starfleet Academy, based on the video game. It was the Starfleet Academy, I knew was a cool idea. Uh, the Borg thing, I knew was cool. Vulcan's Fury, I just don't remember what it was about, frankly. I'm, I'm guessing it was about <laughs> Vulcans who were furious. The, the computer-generated uh, stuff at the time looked amazing, and I know they recorded some uh, voices for it, so I don't know. Well, with Starfleet Academy... Uh, as I remember, and again, this is a long time ago, as I remember going on the set and they, they recorded Starfleet Academy in the studios across the street from Paramount. Uh, they did not record it at Paramount. It was, there's a big studio right across the street from Paramount. They recorded there. And I remember going into the set and the set was a huge set that was all green screen. Uh, and, you know, they, it was... It's an interesting technological kind of process where they can put backgrounds and, you know, tables and other things on the green screen. And at the time, I remember one of the technical people saying to me, you know, Sandy, this is really cool and different because it used to be that you could not move the camera with a green screen effect, but now we can move the camera around and by computer the background adjusts to the movement so it still looks realistic. So at the time, it was a very big deal. And if my memory is correct, it was a long time ago, the whole thing had green screen background. Yeah, green screen is also called, or was called chroma key. It might still uh, be called chroma key. But it's basically an effect where you have a screen in back of the humans and through technological process, you can uh, put a, a mountain behind them. And it's really a, a picture or a video of the mountain that meshes with the green screen. Or you could put snow coming down in the background. And it's, you know, it's a device they use on TV news a lot. They use it in movies a lot. Uh, and on Starfleet Academy, the big breakthrough was you could now move the camera and the computer compensates for the movement so the background looks real and cool and doesn't shift weirdly. So it was like at the time, it was a whole big deal. It was a very big budget for Starfleet Academy. I remember very big budget for a video game. I remember originally, if my memory's correct, uh, Spock was supposed to be in that with William Shatner, uh, but something happened uh, and uh, Spock did not come. Yeah, I want to say it was either uh, um, James Doohan or George might, Takei. I, yeah, I think it was, oh, you know something? I think it was George Takei. It, what, I don't think it was uh, Scotty. I haven't played it in probably 20 years, but I remember it being really good and watching all the cutscenes like together. I had figured out a way to browse the CD-ROM to watch all yeah. the videos in order. 
Yeah, I haven't written it or edited it in about 20 years. <laughs> um, you haven't played it in 20 years. Uh, I might pick but, it up again, though. Yeah, no, you know, it, it was a cool idea. When you have a cool idea, it kind of grabs you at the beginning, mm-hmm. and that definitely grabbed me at the beginning. Uh, the Borg grabbed me at the beginning. Not everything grabs you. Mm-hmm. Not everything says this is going to be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book. I had the um, honor of reading it a little bit over a year ago, I think. You had sent it to me, and I read it cover to cover, and I found it very interesting. Your life in Hollywood, television, and uh, writing, and the people you have as friends and people you've worked with. And uh, could you tell uh, us a little bit about your book? And uh, for people who haven't read it, um, maybe talk a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, The most, well, this is important to me, but I'll tell you, I've done a lot of writing, a lot of different kinds of writing, you know, Star Trek Next Generation, Quantum Leap, Fame, uh, on and on and on. This book that I just recently wrote about a year ago is one of the favorite pieces of writing I've ever done. Uh, it's called Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You. It's on Amazon. You know, you could look it up under the title or under my name, S-A-N-D-Y-F-R-I-E-S. But I, I, I'm very, very proud of the book. And I'll tell you what the book is. It's a gritty, real look at what really goes on behind the scenes in movies and television. You've never read a book like this. It also gets into tricks and kind of ways that nobody realizes of how to succeed in TV, in movies, and in any career. You know, there are tricks I've done that I look back and I go to myself, wow, that was cool. I'll bet nobody's ever done that. And I have those tricks discussed in the book. Again, it works for any career, but especially works well for TV and movies. I've known a lot of people in my career that I write about and I talk about their secrets, not, you know, not personal secrets because that would not be right, but their secrets to success. You know, one of my friends, he's passed away is Sam Simon, who was the co-creator of the Simpsons. And I talk about him. I talk about what he did that made him successful. Another person I knew very, very well was Joe Barbera. I always call him Mr. Barbera because I have such great respect for him. Passed away, obviously. Uh, There were secrets to his success that were phenomenal. And again, not personal secrets. Secrets he'd be okay with people knowing. I write about that. So... It's about how to get ahead in your career and how to live a life that when your life is over and you've got your final scene and your final scene is, oh my gosh, I'm going to croak any second now. Mm. That tuna fish sandwich is still stuck in my back teeth, (laughs) but I'm glad I have back teeth. Mm -hmm. But it's time to look back at my life and see, was I happy with what I did or not? It gives you my version and my suggestions on how to live a life you'll be happy with when you see it's your time to do your final scene. You know, you're, we're going to croak now scene. Mm. So it's, you know, it's about life. It's about career secrets. It's about people I've known, 
Gene Roddenberry, Joe Barbera, Sam Simon, uh, on and on and on. I've been very lucky to know a lot of very cool people. Uh, a bunch of people, you know, I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, I'm a college professor. I also write, but my students read the book, and after they've gotten their grades, so there's nothing in it for them to suck <laughs> up they, after they've gotten their grades, I actually had one student come up to me, a really bright student, cool guy. He said, uh, Professor Freeze, I didn't want to say this before the class was finished, but I'll say it now. Uh, if I said it before, you would think I'm just trying to suck up to you, but I loved that book. I started reading it, and I could not finish. I could not do anything until I finished reading it. You know, I picked it up, I started reading it, and I had it go through his great book. It was really moving. It was really gave me a lot of great ideas about life and careers. And I've heard that from a lot of students, you know, uh, two students of mine out of many, many students did not like it, but I think those were the ones that got asked. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's a cool book. The other thing about it is it's written in a way that has comedy way that has practical advice career advice, life advice, you know, I pack in everything that I've learned about how to have a cool life. Now, has my life been perfect? No. I've had stuff go on that's been bad. Uh, you know, illness, people dying. There's no way to avoid that kind of thing. But if I were to croak five minutes from now, and I certainly hope I don't, I would be able to look back and go, you know, I'm happy with how I did my life. I'm real happy. Did I make mistakes? I did. Did I make stupid mistakes? I did. Am I okay with that? Yeah, because everybody does that. Did I have some heavy hardship stuff? Everybody does. But I pulled off some amazing accomplishments, had a lot of fun, was the best person I could be, time to croak, hope I go to heaven. And fade out, fade to black. Commercial. <laughs> uh, I, w I would agree with uh, what what you're saying about the book. It, uh, for me, I enjoyed it. I I was able to read it uh, in one day, and I, that's not me normally. Normally, I procrastinate reading, but I just enjoyed it and was sucked in right away by it. And I really liked that it was such a like a from a personal perspective. Uh -huh. And like uh, you were saying, it's uh, the the Sam Simon part got me all choked up, and I think maybe a page later I was laughing again. So, yes, people have told me that too. You know, the, the part about Sam Simon, the co-creator of The Simpsons. You know, he was a really, really accomplished guy, a really talented guy. Uh, you know, the people would when they talked about him, they would say, "Yeah, he's a lucky guy. What a lucky guy." Uh, he had a very, very sad end of his life. Uh, he, he got a real, real difficult type of cancer that just inch by inch ate away at him. And, you know, as I was writing it, I was getting kind of weepy eyed. Uh, but he was a phenomenal writer. And I remember the ending of that section too, you know, it's, I'm not even going to say it because it's just too sad, but the ending of the Sam Simon section still brings tears to my eyes. However, however, a few 
a few paragraphs later or a few pages later, there's laughter. And, you know, I guess that's a metaphor for life. You know, there's things that bring you to tears. There's things that make you laugh. You learn some things, you evolve, or you don't, and then you die. I don't want to get into it because it's just too much of a down situation, but I describe what happened at the end. Basically, he had a terrific life. You know, he created a lot of cool stuff. He made millions of people laugh with his work. Uh, he worked on Taxi. I think he was a showrunner on Taxi. He worked on Cheers. So, yeah, he, the guy made millions and millions and millions of people laugh with his writing. Simpsons. To me, that's a pretty terrific life. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of good lessons in it, and it's a, just a really enjoyable read. So. Yeah, thank you. And I, I'm going to mention it again because I love the book. It's called Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You. It's on Amazon. Uh, you could go for that. Uh, just put it into the search bar on Amazon, or you could look up uh, S-A-N-D-Y. F-R-I-E-S, spelled like fries, and you'll see that book. It's, um, I think it's one of the three things I'm most proud of, of writing. You know, it's, I, I wrote it a year ago, and I was proud of it because I remember saying to myself, wow, yeah, I could still write, and it's good. Because <laughs> there are times where you, you, you doubt that. There are times where you go, gosh, can I still write well? I know I did a month or two ago, but maybe that talent is no longer with me. Maybe things have, the energy has seeped away. Maybe the brain has changed. But it was, you know, and I hadn't written something for a couple of years. And I remember finishing that book and, and having students love it. A, another professor, a friend of mine, was really, really very kind in, in terms of what he said about it and how much he loved it. And it was just nice to know that I could still write well. So that was that was kind of cool. You know, my eyesight is not quite as good. Uh, I can't run as fast. But that's one of the best things I've ever written in my life. That that's an amazing feeling too. When you you finished a writing project and you like you know you're done and you know wow you did a great job and you just get that feeling of satisfaction. I think. Yeah, and the other feeling is it's a great thing to have written because the book has the ability to change lives in a really, really positive way and a really big way. Yeah, I, I apologize if I'm sounding self-congratulatory, oh, uh, but it's just something I'm really proud of. So the fact that it can connect with my students, with other people who read it, uh, anybody could read it, student, not student, wife, husband, kid, and I believe have a good chance of evolving based on it, doing better at career or life or whatever. Uh, and to have that kind of ability makes me proud. And I do believe in karma. I do believe in the fact that I think I've got a cosmic debt because I've overall had a great life. So it's nice to know that I'm kind of paying off my cosmic debt. And it's nice to know that Hopefully, if karma exists, I hope I'll get some really good karma off of this book. Hmm. But I'm, I'm very proud of it. And we'll link to that in the show notes, and people should be able to click it right from iTunes and go right to your book. 
So. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. You know, and whatever you could do to let people know about it, I, I appreciate it. You know, like like I said, it's one of the best things I've ever written. And it's really nice to know that you still have that ability. And it was enjoyable to write. You know, it, the writing just came really, really easily. And that doesn't happen on every writing assignment. There's some assignments where, you know, at the beginning of Quantum Leap, my hands blew up in rashes. I was so nervous, you know, about writing for Quantum Leap because it was such an amazing show. The book, you know, Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You, uh, was so easy to write. It just went through my brain onto the page very easily, very enjoyably. It was just one of the smoothest pieces of writing. Uh, what are the other some of the other projects that are right up there with your favorite projects? I I knew you were going to ask me because <laughs> <laughs> it's an obvious kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, okay. In addition to the book, let me f- think a little bit. I wrote a script for Fame, which was a, a great show. It was an MGM show about uh, student students at the School of the Arts, and that was a really good script. I did it, and I apologize for congratulating myself, but I can tell you there's some stuff that I wrote that was garbage, so that evens it <laughs> out. But that same script is a really good script, and that same script got me the job on Star Trek The Next Generation. Gene Roddenberry read the, fa- the fame script, and he really loved how I handled character and dialogue, and that's how I got hired on Star Trek The Next Generation. And the script was such a cool script. Uh, there was a show called Saint Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Love which, that show. Uh, it was a phenomenal show. You know, it was, it's about a hospital in, uh, I think it's Massachusetts. Uh, and it's such a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant show. Howie Mandel was on it. Denzel Washington was on it. A lot of big stars got their start on that show. Uh, one review called it the best dramatic show in the history of television. Uh, Without spoiling the ending for people, uh, what did you think of the ending of the series? Oh, man, oh, man. They had a different ending. I thought the very last episode was kind of a cheat. However, the whole show was so brilliant and stellar, it can't be perfect. And the fact that they didn't get the ending to my degree of satisfaction, big deal. You know, like they were, I think they may have been the best show dramatically in the history of television also, dramatically. Uh, But the ending I wasn't nuts about. There were a lot of fans who didn't like the ending. There were a lot of fans who thought the ending was kind of an easy way Mm. to do the ending. And you you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But I got to tell you this, if you want, if anybody out there wants to watch a phenomenal, brilliant show, uh, I got it on Amazon Prime. Uh, I believe the first season's on Amazon Prime, maybe a little more. Beautiful, beautiful show to watch. I, I've been re-watching it just the past couple of months. A phenomenal show. But anyway, the, the fame script was read by one of the 
producers on St. Elsewhere, mm -hmm. and the producer loved it. Uh, producer called my agent and said, you know, we'd like to hire Sandy to work on St. Elsewhere. We need a female staff writer. <laughs> and my agent said, oh, gosh, Sandy is short for Sanford. His nickname is Sandy. His real name is Sanford. It's a him. It's not a woman writer. Mm. And I did not get it. Wow. That's, yeah. that's good to know that you still have that uh, ability that uh, they actually thought you were. Well, you know something? In my office, I have a picture of the same uh, elsewhere uh, actors. And when I go into my office every morning, well, Monday through Friday, first thing I'll do is I'll look at, uh, what do I look at? I look at my Star Trek little dolls and stuff. And I'll look at the stuff, little dolls I wrote for Hanna-Barbera. I'll look at the Spider-Man things I wrote for the animated Spider-Man. I'll look at all those things in my office. This is going to sound hokey, but as I look at each one, I say, thank you, God, for giving me this chance. Thank you for giving me the chance to do that. And the last thing I look at is St. Elsewhere. And I didn't write for St. Elsewhere, but the producers liked my writing so much that they wanted me to write on the show. Uh, if, and I thank God for that too. You know, there's two reasons I do that. One is to be thankful to the deity. And the other is, unfortunately, I have to remind myself each morning, okay, I did good stuff. I'm a good guy. Okay. That's great. I've accomplished good stuff. Okay. That's, that's nice. I have to remind myself that I've accomplished stuff because regardless of what I've accomplished, there's always the thought in the back of my head, am I good enough? Did I do this good enough? Did I do enough of this? Did I do enough of that? So after I look at those photos uh, and the dolls, there's a photo of me and a few presidents of the United States. Oh, yeah. You I, met uh, Bill Clinton, right? I did too. He's a nice guy. Very nice guy. Yeah, I met Bill Clinton. I, I spent a lot of time with uh, Jimmy Carter. I got a very nice photo that's inscribed from President Ford. So I've met three presidents, spent a lot of time with them. So I look at those pictures, and those get my ego into a form where I could say, okay, you did good stuff, Sandy. You're appreciative of it. Now go have a good day. Mm. Uh, you know, you would think, and it would be logical that I wouldn't need to do that, but I do. Mm. But after I do that, I also ask God for some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so Thank you. While you're at it, <laughs> if, and while, while you're listening, if you have another <laughs> second, could you do this for me, please? Oh, that's cool. uh, so, and, and I'll tell you another story. This is this is a, a little miracle story too. When I first moved to Los Angeles. I remember seeing the movie Fame, and I loved that movie so much. It was a it was a feature film, two hour feature film. It was a beautifully written movie. It was a beautifully acted movie. It was just a great, 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 great movie. And I was new in L.A. at that point. I had never written anything for TV yet. After the movie, I remember saying, 
dear deity, please, please, please let me have the opportunity to write something as good as fame. And a few years later, I was writing for fame, the television show. I wrote the season opener. I created a couple of characters. I asked to write for fame and I got it. Now, am I making more of a deal out of it than I should? You know, you might make a case for that. I think it was a little miracle. It's a great show. I got to talk to Debbie Allen about it not too long ago. And, uh, because she was on an episode of Quantum Leap, but I was a big fan of Fame, both the movie and the TV series yeah. as a kid. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it good was. Stuff. It was. It, it was on, and it had Fame had a lot of incarnations. It was a movie. It was on NBC. Then it was in first run syndication. It came back again. I think a few years ago, it was a movie again. Uh, you know, it's one of those concepts that's so solid that it can come back. Uh, but. I asked to write for fame and I got to write for fame. Uh, so that was, you know, I see a lot of these things as, as little miracles. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I'll give you one more and I hope it doesn't sound sappy, but when I, I lived at first in New York, uh, before I moved to LA, a friend of mine knew somebody at ABC news and said, Hey, Sandy, you want to meet this guy at ABC news? Uh, so we went into ABC News. We saw the anchorman's office for ABC News. And I remember there was a picture of the anchorman with the president of the United States. And they were walking down the street talking to each other. I said, boy, that is so cool. A picture of the anchorman with the president of the United States walking down the street together. Oh, and they're talking. and They're having a good time. Oh, boy, I that would be so cool if I could do that someday. In my office, I've got a photo, very similar to the photo I saw in the anchorman's office of me with Jimmy Carter. And it's a very similar photo. You know, maybe it's coincidence. Maybe I'm making more feel out of it than I should. Or maybe it's another miracle. You know, who knows? I choose to think that there's some deity that does things for reasons we're not totally clear about. How did that come about hanging out with presidents? That's just not something that happens to everybody. I've also done journalism writing. Uh, and in addition, well, the thing f with uh, president Ford happened. Uh, I was, I did freelance writing for the Los Angeles times. They had a, a children's section. So I did mostly stuff for the children's section. Uh, so I did a lot of freelance writing for the Los Angeles Times, and I asked my editor if I could do a piece on Gerald Ford, and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, Sandy, that's fine. You can you can do that. Uh, and I did the interview with President Ford over the phone. It was a very good interview. My favorite question to him was, hey, Mr. President, what was your favorite thing about being president? What was the most fun and he said, you know, Sandy, I really love butter pecan ice cream. And anytime I went on Air Force One, they had as much butter pecan ice cream as I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember that, and I thought that was cute. It did not run in the Los Angeles Times, but President Ford liked the interview so much that he sent me a picture of himself with a nice inscription. Uh, 
I'm trying to think what it'd say to Sandy Freeze with my admiration and respect, Gerald Ford. That's, that's one of the things I look at in the morning to get my ego going and to be thankful for. So that's the Gerald Ford thing, the Jimmy Carter thing. Uh, you know, I, I like to do different kinds of writing. So I've also done journalism writing. Uh, the Jimmy Carter thing, I was a radio reporter and I was covering his campaign for president. And I got to hang out with him quite a bit. I had two one-on-one lunches with him. Uh, very cool guy. I remember over one of the lunches, he had milk and a tuna sandwich. And it was always interesting to me that a guy who later became the most powerful guy on the planet would have milk and a tuna sandwich for lunch. You would think he would be more interesting or more elaborate than that. But I've I've heard, I never met the second President Bush, but I've heard that President Bush's favorite meal was bologna sandwich. <laughs> so even when you're president, I guess, I guess your tastes don't, change and and don't differ from almost anybody uh but carter very dedicated guy very very well read very well read i i've heard from reliable sources that anytime he's written a book he really writes it he doesn't have a ghost write it i've read a few of his books and they're very very well written and the thing about carter that's cool is you know, his presidency was not stellar, but he is the best example of a president and what a president should do after they leave the White House. You know, he's done a lot of charity work. He's got a foundation and he's very, very active to this day. Yeah, I get the impression from him uh, out of most presidents is that he's just very kind and he really cared. And and I think that shows through his actions of what he's done post-presidency. You want to know something? That was a big, big read that I got from him, too, that he cared and he was always trying to do the right thing. Uh, he's a very religious guy. Uh, I think he still does Sunday lectures at his church in, I believe it's Plains, Georgia, P-L-A-I-N-S. And I think anybody could get in to hear him talk on Sundays uh, if you can, you know, beat the crowd. But very, very religious. I remember some of the answers he gave me. I, I remember saying to myself, boy, this guy is a real guy who really wants to do the right thing for people in the United States. Another thing I remembered, and I always look for little signs and little nuances in people to see what kind of people they are. We had one-on-one lunch, the tuna sandwich and the milk that he had. And I remember him genuinely without making a big deal out of it, saying thank you to the waiter. Anytime the waiter brought something. And to me, that says a lot. I don't think he was showboating or anything, but that says that he will be polite and respectful to everybody, not just somebody who can get him some donation or do something for him. And he was, I just, the the big feeling I got out of him was he wanted to do the right thing in a genuine way. Uh, and 
I did not get that from a lot of politicians. Yeah, he was a rare one. Yeah, he was very rare. The fact that he's still working, the fact that he's written so many books, the fact that his post-presidency is just so phenomenal. You got to give the guy a lot of credit for that. And the fact that he's still going is is amazing. He's a very smart guy, very well-read guy. I don't know how it came up, but he was talking over lunch about Bob Dylan and some Bob Dylan lyrics. Uh, anything I would bring up that might have some kind of literary reference he knew about. Very well-read, very smart, very well-intentioned. Uh, I liked also that he was short, because I'm pretty short, so I liked the <laughs> fact that he was short, so that was nice. Uh, what else did I like about the guy? He was a peanut farmer. Yeah. I, I love the fact that the guy went from peanut farmer to Georgia governor to president of the United States. You know, to go from peanut farmer to the most powerful man on planet Earth, you got to give the guy some applause for that. That's pretty cool. And uh, I liked him a lot. I liked him a lot. Yeah, I'm a fan. Uh, Clinton, the first president I voted for, uh, he's a tall guy. He's, yeah, he's very tall. Uh, he still looks phenomenal. You know, I think I mentioned it in my book, but he looks, I, I could be wrong, but he looks like he had face peels or something like that. <laughs> Moisturizes, definitely. Uh, I don't know what, what he's using, but the guy looks really great. And, you know, the guy looks amazingly good. Absolutely. Uh, when, when, I, when I met him, you know, I, I prefer women, but... Uh, no, wait, wait a second. I want to make it clear. I prefer women too. But I was enamored by him when I met him. Like he had a presence where I don't know. It's hard to explain. Just like an it factor, an energy about him. Yeah, he did. He had a presence. He connected with people. Uh, how, how did you meet him? How did that come up? He's a friend of a friend, and we spent time together uh, when we were. Where was it? Uh, let me think. It was, it was one of the. Virgin Islands or Bahamas or something. We, I'm trying to remember what. Oh, Cayman Islands. The Cayman Islands. Uh, so we spent some time together in Cayman Islands. And uh, nice guy, very very bright, amazingly well kept. You know, for his age. Uh, we, you know, we just hung out, went shopping, and walked around. Crowds followed him everywhere. He had Secret Service guys with him. You know, the two Secret Service. Big black buses, not not buses, sort of SUVs or whatever. Uh, it was kind of fascinating just to see the stuff that the Secret Service does to protect these people. Uh, the Secret Service guys, that's a whole amazing thing that goes on. You know, they, they usually wear sunglasses so people don't know where they're looking. They have these earpieces. They often have a microphone on their wrist that they could talk to each other. Uh, they always look very, very grim and concerned. Because, <laughs> you know, they, they got to be ready for anything to happen. Uh, and I remember, I remember thinking there was one local police woman who was in back of us and her job was to walk backwards to make sure nobody would rush up to to the president and the secret service agent who was by his side 
just kept saying to her, watch the back, watch the back. Don't let anybody come up. And I, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, being a president, you're in constant danger. And these Secret Service guys, their job is to lay down their life for you, which, which is a noble thing to do. But all the mechanics of the Secret Service are fascinating, too. I, I once, while covering a president, saw the back of a Secret Service agent car. And as I'm thinking of it, I'm not going to tell you what was in the back of it because I, I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. But when I saw what was in the back in the trunk, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Uh, but I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, were were you vetted before you were able to just hang out with Bill? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was vetted. You know, they get your social security number. Uh, they look into your background. With Carter, they had an interesting thing. I, I'm guessing they still have this. Uh, but the Secret Service agents with Carter, and I believe they still do today, they have a little pin that they wear in their lapel and it could be a triangle or a square. It could be a red square with a green dot in the middle. You know, it could be almost any kind of little pin. They change it every day. Uh, and the people who wear those pins are either the Secret Service agents or the people who are vetted enough and okay enough to get close to the president or the candidate. So I, I, I had that pin for several days. And I'll tell you a story that I think was, I did something embarrassing and possibly stupid, but I'm proud of it. What did I do? Okay. I had the pin for the day and they switch it every day. I think, uh, and I hope it's okay for me to be saying this stuff. Uh, if any secret service person wants to call in <laughs> and, uh, Ask Albie to delete this. Please do it. I'm sure Albie will do it. Absolutely. But, but for now, keep it in. So anyway, I had the pin for the day, and I was able to get close to Carter. And I needed to get a quote from him that day for a story I was working on. So he's, this, this was either dumb of me or cool of me or both. So he's walking down a path sort of, a, you know, narrow cement path. On either side, he's got a Secret Service agent and a Secret Service agent in back of him. So I've got the pin, so I'm allowed to get close to him. And I got to get a quote from him for a story I'm working on. So I go in front of him, and he has to stop because it's a narrow path. And I say, uh, at the time, it was uh, ex-governor. So I say, Governor Carter, what effect has the press had on your campaign? And I stopped him. You know, he couldn't go around me because it was such a narrow path. He'd have to walk on the grass. It would look weird. So I said to him, uh, again, the question was, what effect has the press had on your campaign? And he looks at me really pissed off. And he says, you know, other than stopping me when I'm trying to get somewhere, they've had no effect at all. <laughs> That's funny. And yeah, so I pissed him off, but for some reason I thought it was cool. Yeah. And another thing about Carter was he had a vein in his forehead. Hmm. And people told me you could really tell when he was angry because the vein would throb. And I remember seeing that vein throbbing when I asked him the question. <laughs> 
that's, so I, that's I, a good indicator. Yeah, I got them. I got a guy who, very powerful person, who I got angry at me. <laughs> However, a day later, he was fine. Yeah, it he ha- was okay. It happens, but it makes for a cool story. It was a great story, you know. Like, how many people have had uh, one of the most powerful people on the planet angry at them? Uh, the only the only Secret Service agent I ever met was uh, Clint Hill, uh, the guy. Oh, I know who that guy yeah, is. Yeah, I went to one of his. Uh, uh, speaking engagements in uh, Dallas, and it was very interesting what they go through and how they live their lives uh, with presidents and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining it's it's not an easy life because you're constantly on guard. What, what did what did he talk about? Uh, the day in uh, Dealey Plaza where he had to jump up and you know cover Jackie, and and then uh, just daily life with uh, the he was with a few other presidents and the differences between them and what his daily uh, life was. And it was uh-huh. a, good, a good book he has. It's called The Five Presidents. If you're interested in him, uh huh. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, but uh, I think you might have a uh, political thriller uh, novel or something in you. There could be because I'm fascinated by Secret Service. I'm I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an FBI agent, mm. and I learned that you had to either at that time have a law degree or an accounting degree to be an FBI agent, and so that was the end of that. <laughs> uh, writing I, writing I, degree I, doesn't help. No, not at all. I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I did want to be an FBI agent, so it did not work out. But I remember visiting the FBI, you know, offices in uh, Washington, D.C. They had tours. Uh, They've always struck me as very cool people. You know, they're so focused and dedicated and brave and, you know, very, very fascinating, cool people. Mm. Uh, Looking at your credits uh, and uh, the the way you talked about how your agent can get you on something, um, did you – when you first heard the news about the new Picard series coming out, did part of you think, hmm, maybe I should uh, give them a call or see if I can help out a little bit? Do you ever thought about going back into television writing? You know, part of me thought that. And then that part of me said, nah, I don't really want to. <laughs> uh, the reason I don't really want to is because I've tried to and I have done lots of different forms of writing. Uh, the only show on TV I, I could now get really jazzed about writing, the only one is Family Guy. Oh, I love that show. Yeah, I, I think it's a brilliant show, beautifully written. The dialogue is great. The tone of it is very unusual and original. Uh, it's just a brilliantly written show. That's the only show I would get jazzed about writing for. But the reason I would not really get that jazzed about writing for the Picard show, you know, at this point in my life, I've got two big goals. I've done a lot of writing, a whole lot of writing for a lot of different shows and a lot of different formats. At this point in my life, my big goal, two goals, this this may sound hokey, is to enjoy my life as much as I possibly can and be as kind and loving as I possibly can. Those are my big two goals right now. You know, I'm a college professor, so obviously I want to be a terrific teacher, and I do my best for that, but I've done the writing thing. And I've done it to the point where I could say, yeah, yeah, I did good stuff. Congratulations to yourself, Sandy. 
Whenever you croak, you could be proud of yourself. So I've done it to that degree. I wrote the book, and I even mentioned the name again, Secrets <laughs> Your Textbook Will Not Tell You, available on Amazon. That, I'm proud of it. But anyway, I wrote the book, which was terrific. I don't have that big, big urge to write the way I did when I started. You know, when I started, it was, oh, I got to write for this show. I got to write for that show. Oh, I'm writing for this show. This is so great. Oh, blah, 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 blah. I wrote over 100 scripts that were produced and comedy, animation, drama, any format that I wanted to, I was able to tackle and accomplish. And I just don't have the urge to do that very much. You know, the book came and I was excited about the book, but I've had people ask me and say, you know, Sandy, would you like to write this? Would you like to write that? And I'm not, I'm just not that jazzed about it anymore. Yeah. You got to have the uh, drive behind it or it's no fun and probably wouldn't be doing a, making a good product if you weren't jazzed about it. If you enjoy what you're doing and you're really into what you're doing, that shows in the writing. If you don't care that much about what you're doing, that shows in the writing. And, and it wouldn't be fair to work on any piece of writing unless I was really, really enthusiastic about it. And, I, it, it, you know, people have asked me, would you like to write this? Would you like to write that? And my answer is, I've done it. You know, now I'm now I'm attempting to do something else, which is just enjoy my life as much as I can, be as evolved as I can, you know, in terms of kindness and be a good professor. And the reason I'm doing that is, again, you know, scenes in TV shows and movies, the dying scene where the character dies is always a fascinating scene to me. And it's always dramatic. Writers try to do it differently. I always try to think of my last scene in life and how it would play out and how I would want it to play out. And the last scene in my life, the way I would like that to play out, my dying scene, which everybody has, my scene would be I was as kind as I could be to people. I was as loving. I really enjoyed my life. And I did good work that connected with millions of people. Now it's time to croak. I could be happy having done that. Wow. And I've even, to make sure I'm on the right track, I've even asked people, does this make sense to you? Does that make sense? Is this last scene okay? And so far, everybody said, yeah, that seems like a good thing to go for. You know, how could you die bitter if you can say to yourself, I enjoyed my life with as much enjoyment and, you know, effort as I could. I was as loving as I could be. And I turned out work that made millions of people laugh, that taught some little lessons to millions of people, maybe made millions of people more spiritual or more evolved. So I've paid my cosmic debt. I could not be bitter at dying if I could say that in my final scene. You know, and I, I look at my life in the same structure as I look at it a script or a novel, it's set up conflict resolution. 
you know, I'm happy with how I've done so far. Have I done some stupid things? Absolutely. But I'm okay because I corrected for them and I learned from them. Uh, and everybody does stupid things. So, you know, I'm not at the phase now where a big, big, big part of my life is writing. You know, I've done it. Most of the time I enjoyed it. Sometimes I did not. Next next phase, let's go. I don't, I don't think you could uh, have a happier ending in life if you have those feelings and thoughts on, on your last day. Do you, what do you think? Does it make sense as to what you think would be a good final scene? Yeah. Um, it's, it's very touching and amazing. And it's, um, it's not a sad death. It's a happy death. Yeah. You know, uh, I believe there's a heaven hoping to go there. Uh, you know, there are different ways people die. I, I would guess a lot of people die bitter and regretful because they don't think of what they want their last scene to be. And I, I tell my students, okay, guys, I recommend that after class at some time, you figure out what you want your last scene in life to be and then aim for that scene. I don't think a lot of people go through that thought process which I think is a shame. Uh, and, you know, there are people, Sam Simon passed away in a dreadful kind of cancer, but the other part of his life was phenomenal. So, you know, something I urge my students to do and anybody listening to, to this, I'm going to urge you, take an hour or two, think it through, what do you want your last scene to be in the script that is your life? And then figure out how to make sure that that is your last scene. Uh, I urge people to do that. Uh, and I would guess very few people actually go through that process, maybe because it's difficult or they're busy or whatever. I heard something similar uh, uh, many years ago. I think it was in a Tony Robbins book, something along those lines. Uh -huh. um, imagine how you want your life to end. Do you want to be alone? And, you know, maybe you've gotten your way on everything and, and you've won, but you're alone. Or do you want to be surrounded by your adult children and your grandchildren and your loved one. And that really did change my life. And it, it changed my life in a direction to where I did want to get married, did want a family. And I did have a daughter and, and it made a, a big difference in my life. Instead of thinking about the now thinking about how I want my whole story to play out. Well, you know, you have thought about what you want your last scene to be. And you'll, whenever your time is about over, you know, hopefully, probably you'll have your daughter with you, your friends with you. You'll have some great memories. And, you know, it's never happy to be ending mm. a life. But there are less sad ways to do it, I think. Uh, and I, I read your Facebook page because we're Facebook friends now. Well, and, which I'm jazzed about. 
<laughs> and I was I was reading through it last uh, night, and you're doing a lot of very cool things. You know, you are very very passionate about the work you do with your podcasts. You're doing a great job. That's cool. You've got, I believe, it's a young daughter, right? Yep, Serenity, named after a spaceship. Very cool. That's an amazing thing to do. So you got a lot of cool stuff going on. Hmm. I try. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're a very, very, very good interviewer. I, I promise. You know, I listened to some of your interviews before I agreed to do this. And I said, wow, this guy is a very good interviewer. And the, the I think it was on a website, the podcast. I remember the design of the website was very cool. And uh, you're doing cool stuff. You know, you got a passion and you're working on something that you're passionate about. And I hate to say it, but I don't think many people have that. You know, somebody might have been a philosopher said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And if that were my life and it's not, I would have a horribly bitter end, you know. You know, uh, it's the last thing I want my life to be. Uh, you're you're passionate. You got things you're jazzed about. You are living a life that is the opposite of quiet desperation. Uh, you know, and I hate to say it, but I think most men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. Do you think so? Or yeah, think? I would. I would agree. I. I, I, I'm lucky enough to, uh, I found my passion, what makes me happy to be creative in the way I am. And, uh -huh. and, uh, I'm lucky that I can make a living doing it. And, uh, I'm happy that my career choice, which is editing is what I do professionally, gives me the opportunity to spend as much time with my daughter and enjoy life as possible. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I think Tommy Thompson is one of your Facebook friends too, right? Oh yeah. Love that guy. He has been there for me and, uh, He's just a great guy in every in every way possible. And that, and that's the same Tommy Thompson who was a writer on Quantum Leap, right? Yes, absolutely. I love his writing. It's really good. Yeah. You know, any, anybody who wrote for that show, everybody I interacted with, just really, really cool people. And one of the best script writers I've ever read in my life, and I've read a lot to kind of learn the technique of how to write a script, absolutely Donald Belisario, phenomenal mm. writer. If anybody wants to learn what a good script is, read a Donald Belisario script. Uh, the Leap Home, MIA, those are some great shows. Yeah, beautiful dialogue, beautiful descriptive stuff. Uh, and he's very, very successful. He's, I think, does he still have a series on? Uh, the NCIS New Orleans I wow. think is what he's working on now. I don't and, know how involved he is in day to day operation, but yeah, I did. He start did he start with the original Magnum? Like uh, Tequila and Benetti. There was um, uh, Tales of the Golden Monkey. There was yeah. all kinds of good shows that still hold up today. Uh, it's the writing. I'm I'm more a fan of the writing. Of course, the acting on Quantum Leap is great. The I, the, the casting was perfect. Everything's perfect on Quantum Leap, but the writing is what is the heart of the show, I think. And like you were describing earlier uh, with that pitch meeting, how they had so many writers, producers there. Those were the core team of 
quantum leap and it, you were like try, you were passing a litmus test almost if if you were good enough to be part of that voice that they were trying to tell in the story and i'm glad you uh passed yeah yeah and uh, let me tell you about a couple of my failures too uh i pitched to the animated version of hello kitty mm. and all of my ideas were turned down by hello kitty <laughs> So I've had plenty of failures. I pitched to the original Magnum, came close to getting an idea approved, but ultimately my ideas were rejected. Uh, I pitched to an ABC show, animated show called The Little Clowns of Happy Town. I was turned down for all my ideas. So, you know, by no means have I been successful all the time. And I remember thinking... With Little Clowns of Happy Town animated, what a stupid show I'm pitching to. <laughs> the, the guy I, and I was turned down, the guy I pitched to, the guy who was the story editor of the show, working on this stupid Little Clowns of Happy Town show that I was, it was about a bunch of clowns that were animated that lived in a stupid place, uh, but they were happy. But anyway, the guy, I, I even felt bad for the guy I was pitching to. You know, what the hell was he working? <laughs> And such a show for the guy I pitched to was Chuck Lorre. Oh wow! And if anybody doesn't know who Chuck Lorre is, he's probably now the most successful showrunner, executive producer of sitcoms on now. He, he produced, he executive produced, and co-created, I believe, Two and a Half Men, uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, Young Sheldon, Young Sheldon, phenomenally beautifully written show. I love that show, especially the pilot. So the guy, here's the life lesson. You could be working on something as stupid and embarrassing as the little clowns of Happy Town and still end up being Chuck Lorre. Do you have uh, ideas, like do you walk around like your house and come up with a great idea and say, I have to write that down and use that someday somewhere? Do you still get that as a, being a writer for so long? Things I get, I'll be talking to somebody and about, I'll say to myself, oh man, that would be a great piece of dialogue. Uh, or I do have ideas for a movie or something like that, and I write them down in a notebook. Uh, however, I don't have any great need or compulsion to actually write them. <laughs> <laughs> and I, right now, for the most part, thank God, knock on wood, I'm incredibly happy. You know, I've had bad things happen. I got divorced a few months ago. Oh. Uh, you know, I, I only have my dog four days a week instead of the whole week, so that that sucks. So yeah, I've had bad stuff happen, but for the most part, I'm very, very happy. And I know if I turned one of my ideas into a movie, it would be three months or maybe four months of writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting and being Mr. Perfectionist. I've done it. I don't need it. And there are probably people out there who want to be writers saying, what the hell is this guy talking about? Why doesn't he write more? You know, maybe there, there are writers like Donald Belisario who keep doing it. It's not a big uh, driving force for me, but I do like, Anytime I hear a cool piece of dialogue in conversation, I go, wow, that's a cool piece of dialogue. 
or, oh gosh, I said something that would be great in, in the script, but I don't have the desire to do the whole script. And I have a couple of ideas that are very cool for movies, but there are a few paragraphs and I have no desire to mesh them into or mold them into a whole script. You know, doing a script for a TV show, for a movie, that consumes you. That really consumes you. And, you know, when I was doing animated writing for Spider-Man, I had pictures of Spider-Man all over the place. And I, you know, in my mind, I tried to pretend I was Spider-Man. It was fun. It was cool. Uh, and I'm happy with the script. But, but my, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not driven to that anymore. I, you know, again, the only thing I would be driven to do is a script for family guy. And I know agents and I could give an agent to call and say, Hey, could you see if you could get me an assignment or a pitch meeting on family guy? However, I have not done that. Well, with uh, Seth's love of uh, the next generation, I think you would definitely get a meeting. <laughs> You want to know something? I thought this guy is obviously a big fan of Next Generation. I could probably pitch to that show. And then my next thought was, nah. If anybody out there thinks I'm nuts, you might be right. But that was my thought process. Wow, yeah, I could, I could probably get a pitch meeting or do a script. He loves Next Generation. Nah, I don't want to do it. I'd rather see a good movie or watch TV or eat too much food. Personally, I'd like to see you uh, do one more maybe for another Seth MacFarlane uh, series that has managed to recapture the feeling and magic of the next generation that he's doing called the Orville. I've seen, I've seen, I, I apologize to fans of the Orville. I've seen only one episode mm. and I liked it a lot. I thought it was phenomenal. The twist ending was something to the effect of him and his ex-wife were trapped. Oh, that was and a good the, one, yeah. Yeah, the twist ending, I won't tell the twist ending, but it was a very clever, cool twist ending. And I like the show a lot, but it's like asking... I love writing. I loved writing my book. I loved writing most of the stuff I wrote. Some of it was a, was a nuisance. Uh, but in a way, it's sort of like asking a foot doctor who's not into being a foot doctor <laughs> to do surgery on three of my toes. <laughs> when you put it like that, it's very understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, like I, I, I remember being at a party once and some guy literally came over to this is like a Hollywood party. There would be people, writers or producers or actors, so that kind of party. Some guy comes over to me and says, yes, Sandy, I heard you're a writer. Say something funny. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I hear you're an accountant. Do my taxes. You know, like, yeah. however, I maintained my politeness and somehow mm -hmm. got out of saying something funny. It, it would be like going up to an accountant saying, uh, well, let me think of a better example. Going up to a brain surgeon and saying, you know, I hear you're a brain surgeon. I might be a little dizzy. Could you do a couple of CAT scans on me? And I, if I need surgery, what do you suggest? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not equating myself with a brain surgeon, but I'm funny when 
I need to be funny or when it just happens. Uh, I'm making a point on an issue where I forget what the issue is. <laughs> that, that's, the, uh, that's the indication of a good conversation. Yeah, I think it's what I want to write for the Orville. Yes, I thought about it, but I dismissed the idea very quickly. Mm, it's worth a watch anyway. I would binge it if I were you. Okay, but, the, uh, the episode I saw I thought was terrific and clever, and I could see little touches of family guy, family mm-hmm. guy humor in it. Like the twist ending was sort of a – it wasn't as broad as family guy humor, but it was from that same mind. I, and I got to tell you something else. That Seth MacFarlane is an amazing guy. That guy does animated voices. He writes. He acts. He's written some phenomenal movies. He's good looking. He's about 28 times better looking than me. <laughs> he he's, he's, seems like a very nice guy. Mm. He sings beautifully. Yes. What the hell is going on with that guy? He got all the talent when he was in line for everything. So uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and he seems like a nice person, you know? Yeah. And uh, I I really admire him as a writer, as voice actor. He, he did a good job on the Orville that I watched. Uh, but what what are one or two of your favorite shows other than the Orville? Right now, a sitcom, The Goldbergs. I find that interesting because I uh, it's the the guy who made up the show um, comes it, from Family Guy. And he was born uh, six months difference from me. So his take on the 80s and pop culture and everything that happened to him uh, kind of happened to me. So it's almost like a show about me. And I think that's how a lot of the people in my age range feel. Uh-huh. Because I remember being a kid remaking Raiders of the Lost Ark with a VHS uh, camcorder, you know, that kind of thing. And, and he did kind of similar stuff on the Goldbergs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice show. I like that show. It's comedy, but it's a, a bit different it's not as broad as family guy comedy there's mm-hmm. another show that i actually like a lot called life in pieces which i think might have a couple of family guy writers on it mm-hmm. and very very good show yeah that's a good show there's uh something on um it's a show on cbs all access the uh new streaming platform and it's called no activity it's a police drama where nothing ever happens that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's good. It's like the day-to-day stuff without the exciting something of the week happening. And what, let me ask you the question. What is it about Quantum Leap that propels you and makes you as much of a fan of it? I've always been uh, fascinated with time travel. I think that comes from being a, a younger kid and, you know, having the insecurity and feeling like I'm constantly messing up with girls or situations or things and wishing I could travel back in time and fix my mistakes. I think that's, that's a normal thing. Um, yeah. That, uh, by the way, you and about 80% of humanity <laughs> has a hard time with dating or relationships or marriage, you know, like I'm allegedly a very smart guy. Uh, however, I've been married and did not do it twice, did not do a good job twice. Uh, yeah. Is it worth doing again? I don't know. I'm going through a divorce situation, custody thing myself. Well, divorce is very difficult. Uh, there were five pages in my divorce agreement that dealt with the details of the custody of our fluffy little Bashan. But I do not think I'm going to get married again. It's It's... Fifty percent of marriages end in divorce. Number one, I think that 
did Donald Belisario and Deborah Pratt get divorced? Yes, they did uh, quite a while ago. Okay, now if Donald Belisario and Deborah Pratt, who are two geniuses, mm-hmm. cannot make the marriage work, what hope do I have? My feeling exactly. And I'm going to give you another example. This is a quote from Albert Einstein, possibly the brightest, most amazing person in the history of humanity. Here's the quote, might be a little of a paraphrase. I have tried romantic relationships two times. I have failed both times, close quote. (laughs) Now, if Donald Belisario and Deborah Pratt cannot figure it out, if Albert Einstein cannot figure it out, I feel a little less bad mm-hmm. that I have not figured it out, and and so should you. <laughs> well, like Doc Brown says, the other mystery of uh, life is women, right? And to women, probably the mystery of life is men. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. It works beautifully in Disney movies, mm-hmm. but that's the only place it works easily. I'm guessing after the 50% that end in divorce – there's another 10% that should end but do not because of inertia or, <laughs> or dumbness or I don't want to give up the poodle or I like the house or whatever. I don't want to see my daughter less. That was a big thing why I held on for the last couple of years. Well, one of the reasons it makes you feel better, one of the reasons my wife and I both held on was not out of anything other than we didn't want to see the dog less. I'm right there with you. I totally understand. We we love that dog. You're you're my Facebook friend now. Mm-hmm. I'd say about forty percent of the pictures on my Facebook page are the dog. Super cute, by the way. Oh, thank you. He's really smart. Beautiful dog. I love that dog. I love lots of things, but I love that dog. He's a beautiful dog. Uh, so you know, don't feel bad about the divorce. Time will heal most wounds. Am I ever going to get married again? I think the odds are very close to zero. You know, most people, another theory of mine, this is going to sound a little cynical or a lot cynical. You know, you have person A and person B, husband and the wife. Usually person A is working hard to get their life going in a great way. And they have their obstacles and their problems and their difficulties and their successes. And then you have person B trying to get their lives going in a good way. You know, get over this career thing, do that. Oh, do I look good? Oh, is my hair turning white? I got to wonder about this. So you got both people working on a great big puzzle. Then, and it's a difficult puzzle of life, you know, then you join them together and say, okay, well, you haven't worked out your own thing. But now get together and work out things together while you still haven't perfected yourself or evolved yourself. Look, the bottom line, Albert Einstein, I tried relationships two times, romantic relationships two times. I failed both times. That's, I can't beat Albert Einstein. (laughs) That says a lot. I think it has a lot to do with expectation versus reality. And we all have that Disney fairy tale ending. Uh, they all lived happily ever after, and that's just something somebody wrote because they were done writing the script. Well, exactly. And I got to tell you, to a certain degree, I'm responsible for some a, a little bit of that. So anything I've wrote in a romantic sense, 
I've, I've done some romantic, dramatic stories. Everybody's happy at the end and they all work out their problems beautifully and they do it either in a half hour or an hour. <laughs> and I absolutely believe that subconsciously and or consciously, we think that is how it's supposed to go. You know, I see, I love Disneyland, Disney World. I go there a lot. I see little girls dressing up as princesses. They got to have in their head, I will grow up and be a princess. You know, it, that's Disney. And one of the big things that's a big problem about mass communication, it sets up completely unrealistic goals for human beings. And I felt a little bit guilty about doing that stuff. You know, even on Star Trek The Next Generation, everybody on the show is great looking. Everybody on the show is noble. Everybody on the show is wonderful. And at the end, the good guys always win. And somewhere consciously and or subconsciously, people think that's how it should go. Uh, I, I remember being at a party once with a lot of actors and there was like a TV crew that was coming around interviewing people and interviewing the actors and the TV crew came up to me. It's like a showbiz kind of party. And they said, oh, do you, are you having fun at the party? Do you like it? And my answer was no. Everybody's much better looking than me. <laughs> I think we all think that, though. Maybe. Mm. You know, like I saw all these great-looking actors around. I, it bothered me. Mm. So, But, you know, actors look a certain way and they act a certain way. We don't see the 28 takes where they mess up. Right. We see where they do it perfect. We also don't see on just about every show, and I'll, I remember this on Star Trek Next Generation, when you cut... The director says, cut. What happens almost immediately when the director says, cut, when a scene is done, hairdressers come in to straighten every hair on the actor's head. Wardrobe people immediately rush into the set to make sure the costumes, you know, with the, the, the stuff that has to look right is not tilted the wrong way. Makeup people rush onto the set to make sure there's no shine on the face. You know, you have people rushing in immediately to get the hair perfect, to get the costume perfect, to get the face perfect. And then when they do another take, everybody disappears. People don't realize what happens when the director calls cut. You know, on most shows, that creation of a perfect false life is what happens. I, I say I say it often that if I had hair, makeup, lighting, and writers, I would be perfect. <laughs> well, I don't need any writers, but I could definitely use hair and makeup and wardrobe people, <laughs> especially wardrobe people. My former wife used to constantly give me grief over my alleged wardrobe. <laughs> so I, I don't need a writer, but I hair guy. Yes. There you go. And a wardrobe guy. Yes. But you know, it's while these things are known at the same time, they're not known. We really expect to be 
like the TV and the movie guys. I once rented a brand new car and it was a cool car. And I felt like a better human being. Now that's because when you have this car, you're allegedly cooler and you're allegedly better. And I bought into that. And that's all a function of mass communication. Uh, however, the great majority of mass communication is very cool. And I love it. One of the things I like about going to fan conventions is I got to hang out one time with Marina Sirtis and Michael Dorn. Uh-huh. And just seeing who they really are, at least, you know, to a degree, they were just talking about taxes with each other. And Marina was looking for a cigarette, like the whole time. And it was just interesting to see them as themselves. And it made me feel like I knew them better. Yeah, it's comforting to know that they're really human beings. I remember Michael Dorn on the set once talking to somebody and he was saying something to the effect of, you know, I, I just can't eat pizza. It just lies on my stomach. I can't eat pizza. It's a human being. Hmm. I'm thinking, hey, I could eat pizza. Yeah, you love <laughs> pizza. I had pizza last night, right? I love pizza. Yeah, you have a great photo of a slice of pizza <laughs> in your Facebook page. People should become Facebook friends with you just for your pizza photos. Oh, yeah. But, but Michael Dorn, I can't eat pizza. Hmm. They're real human beings, you know, and, and you see that when you see what happens when the director calls cut. You know, they're real human beings, but people just don't realize that stuff. What was Scott Bakula like? Did you get a chance to work with him, meet him while you were writing for the episode? You know, I wrote for the show, but I never met Scott Bakula, and I wish I did because my guess is he's a very genuinely nice person. And I was thinking about it today. There's something about Scott Bakula's face. I was thinking about it because I knew I was going to do this interview with you. There's something about Scott Bakula's face that's it's it's not like a James Bond kind of face. It's not like a Sean Connery when he was James Bond kind of face. There's, in Scott Bakula's face, there's some humanity. There's some lack of perfection. You know, he's a very good-looking guy, but he's not a Sean Connery good-looking guy. Uh, And I think the fact that he has some vulnerability in his face, at least to me, makes him such a terrific actor. Uh, you know, James Bond is cool, but you can't really relate to him on an emotional level. So I'm, I, I think part of his success, he's a great actor, but he's got a face that's just not perfect. Uh, and I've never met him, but I'm guessing he's a, he's a very nice guy. I had the opportunity to talk to him once, and he was very kind, very giving, and just uh, everything you've heard about him is true. That's good. That's good. And, you know, the whole group uh, on Quantum Leap is great. Uh, One of the, I loved, I really, really loved, just shows you the different types of writing I've been lucky enough to do. Absolutely loved Joe Barbera, the Mm. founder of Hanna-Barbera. He was a phenomenal guy, brilliant guy. We would have story meetings or pitch meetings and like half the meetings would be me laughing and literally literally hear me outside in the halls out of his office laughing, you know, like he was so funny and such a brilliant guy. You know, you could talk to him about something you read in the New York times and he would read the New York times usually front to cover. 
and just a brilliant, brilliant guy. He was a great guy. I, you know, I, I loved him. They say never meet your heroes, but it's, it's, it's awesome when you do and they do live up to your expectations. Well, I, I met Stan Lee, phenomenal guy. Met Joe, uh, Joe Barbera, phenomenal guy. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, I didn't get real close to. I had plenty of meetings with him. You know, he, you know, took me on his golf cart that he drove around the Paramount Studios with, and he would aim for people jokingly and then veer away at the last time. He seemed like a good guy. I didn't spend a, a huge amount of time with him. I spent time in story meetings and pitch meetings and that kind of thing. But some of the greatest guys I've met, Joe Barbera, phenomenal guy. Sam Simon, co-creator of Simpsons, phenomenal guy. Uh, gosh, most most of the people I've worked with or met or had as friends, phenomenal people. And I talk about them in Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You on Amazon. Oh, oh gosh, I just worked that in. Uh, I've met a couple of jerks, but I'm not going to mention their names. And uh, the jerks are relatively few. I think if you're really bright, you're not a jerk. Because somebody said to me once, there's only short-term gain in being a jerk. And I think if you're really, really bright, you know it's counterproductive to be a jerk. I had one producer, very big producer, I'm not going to mention the guy's name, very powerful guy. I went into his office for some story meeting and out of the blue, he brings up a subject. He says, Sandy, do you know why I love being a producer? And I say, no blank. Why do you love being a producer? And he said, I really, really love getting to manipulate people. And I thought he was kidding, but he was not. But uh, anyway, there you go. Is there anything um, else that you might have remembered from your experience with Quantum Leap uh, that you could tell tell us? Uh, the most interesting thing about Quantum Leap was walking into that room for the pitch meeting, and I'd never had that many people at a pitch meeting. Usually at a pitch meeting when you want to pitch a story idea uh, – it's one person, maybe two people, but to have seven people facing you in a pitch meeting was fascinating and kind of scary. But as the meeting kept going, it was just an amazing joy, an amazing experience to be interacting with these phenomenal, brilliant brains and, and creative people. And it, it, was, it was joy. And that's my favorite memory of quantum leap the fact that i had the ability the luck the great good fortune to interact with those kinds of minds uh it was fun it was an honor and that was my absolute best memory professor freeze which is an awesome comic book villain name by the way Thank you, thank you. The book is Secrets. Your textbook will not tell you. I read a lot of books of for people I interview, but I don't recommend them all. This one I highly recommend. Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon. The link will be in the show notes in the description. Sandy, 
Thank you so much for being on the Quantum Leap podcast. Well, thank you for doing a really excellent interview. I do a bunch of interviews. You're a top interviewer. You're one of the best. Uh, I love how you get into the nuances of the things you're discussing. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to do it, the interview with you, and thank you very, very much. That was some fantastic stuff, Albie. That was uh, honestly, like, I really enjoyed listening to that. And uh, it was a very lengthy interview, but it was all very, very interesting. And I thought that that uh, Sandy, Mr. Freeze. Um, <laughs> Professor Mr. Freeze. Freeze. Professor, Professor Freeze. Freeze. He's got such a good name. Uh, I thought he was really sweet. And uh, and he was so nice about the podcast. And not everyone is, is so personal about that stuff. So that was really cool. He was great to talk to. He was worried about uh, going on too long. I was like, no, not at all. I want to know everything. I, I want to talk to you. And as I talked to him, I just wanted to talk to him more and more and more. I had such a great time talking to him. And um, it was just a, a, a real pleasure. And, uh, you know, of course, we talked about Quantum Leap because this is Quantum Leap and stuff. But the, that man's been involved in so many different things that I was a fan of that I didn't even get to. I mean, he's written for Gem, The Smurfs, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. All Care Bears, all these things that I grew up on, wanted to talk to him about. And, you know, I was looking at the time and saying, you know, brevity isn't one of my superpowers. I'll go on and on forever. <laughs> but, you know, uh, there came a point where I was like, okay, I have more questions for him. So I hope I get to talk to him another time, you know? You know, it sounds like he would, he would really enjoy that. It's not, like he seems to have a really great outlook on life and he had some mm -hmm. really great advice in there. And again, his book, read it cover to cover in one day. I think I uh, took a break in the middle of the day to eat and do some things, but I finished it that night. It was a really good read, so I really recommend it. And um, now, Allison, can you explain to the listeners what's coming up next? Hell no, I don't know what's coming up next. <laughs> oh, I was hoping you would do it. This is the hard part. Okay, for anyone not familiar with uh, how this works, this is the fourth version of the podcast does it say it on the time codes? <laughs> yeah, there'll be on? time codes. There'll be time codes. So as it's been called by many people, this is the inception of podcasts. So this was level four. I think they count this way. So what, what you're going to hear next is level three that talks a little bit about a little miracle. And it introduces level two, which talks a little bit about a little miracle, uh, which goes back to the first episode we ever recorded on a little miracle with our original host lineup. And uh, that was recorded out of order and upset a lot of listeners because they thought when we skipped ahead to that episode that somehow our server was missing the 25 episodes in between. Oh, no. Yeah, so more more hate mail again. Oh. But now it's all worth it. It's all worth it. It's all looped back around, you know. Yeah, so uh, sit back, relax, get ready for about three and a half more hours of the Quantum Leap <laughs> Can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> Oddly, in the middle of that, sandwiched is a, it's a wonderful leap. It's weird. <laughs> Just move on to a different Christmas one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. You're giving me all kinds of ideas, Allison. <laughs> oh, lordy. <laughs> so what happens in this next layer? I'm not even sure. I think Christopher D. Philippus is in it. Is he? He might Honestly, be. Honestly, I listened to this. Oh, did you? But it's been a while. 
Okay. So I couldn't tell you what happens. <laughs> I'll find out in the re-listen, I suppose. Uh, are you going to listen to all of A Little Miracle 4? Oh, man. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> That's a big commitment. Don't it hold really me to is. this. I can't, I okay. can't say this rec- in recording. I can't right. commit to that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I understand. At least you were here to record it in this layer. Uh, sure. As I understand, time moves slower as we get to each layer progressively. Is it true that podcasts are like onions? <laughs> <laughs> It got layers. <laughs> we got layers. This one definitely has layers. So uh, listen to the next uh, three and a half hours of the Quantum Leap podcast on A Little Miracle and enjoy. There's uh, interviews. There's so many different takes on what's going on. I think there's a Christmas party. I think Hayden and I watch a VHS copy of this episode. It's pretty interesting. Hmm. There's no more content on the internet about this episode of Quantum Leap than this podcast right here. We got the scoops. (laughs) We do. If you're interested in a little miracle, this is the place to be. And be sure to stick around for the end, guys, because if you want some more new content, we are going to be yakking away. (laughs) You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Episode 40, A Little Miracle, Phase 3. Everybody, I'm Christopher DeFilippis. And I'm Suzanne Smiley. And you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Welcome, welcome, as we gather here once again to witness a little miracle. Suzanne, do you know now this is the third time that the Quantum Leap Podcast is covering this episode? I suspected that. Oh, I wasn't <laughs> sure how many times they had actually done it. but um. Well, it's, it's crazy because Albie and Heather decided, I guess a couple of years back, to break the timeline of, of the show and do a Christmas special about this episode. And then just last Christmas that passed, we covered it again with new segments from QLP staffers Hayden and Amanda, and there was singing, and it was audio drama. It was just nuts. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So the show is back up in the rotation, and here we go again. This time, Chris and I are getting into the act, bringing you yet more new Quantum Leap Yuletide goodness. Yeah, and chief among the new presents... We have an awesome interview with actor Jarrett Lennon. Now, Jarrett is the one who played the tiny boy in this episode. He's the one that goes on to Charles Rocket's lap with the little rocking horse. And he's just like this moppet. Um, he told me about his time on the set and working with Scott and working with Dean and working with Charles. He had a really good time working with Charles. And I, I think, you know, he was so great. We had a blast talking about his acting career beyond Quantum Leap and after Quantum Leap. He's played so many roles on so many TV shows. Just a smart, funny guy. So stick around for that. We'll be bringing you him later in this episode. But this is a weird one, Suzanne, because... Since we've covered this so many times, and Albie is such a lunatic, he wants to inception this. That's what he said to me. We're going to inception a little miracle. So it's going to be shows within shows within shows. First, it's going to be you and me talking about this episode as a little bit of a fresh take. And then we'll invoke the ghost of Christmas past, and we'll listen to what Hayden and Amanda did back in December. And they, in the course of that, throw to Albie and Heather – 
who did the show originally a couple of years ago. So so it's wheels within wheels within wheels, and it's just a, a giant Christmas mess. <laughs> <laughs> but once we get through with all that, we will be bringing you that interview with Jarrett Lennon. So stick around for the main discussion, and then the main discussion, and then the main discussion, and then we go to Jarrett. <laughs> Sound good, Suzanne? Yes. <laughs> so if you've heard it all before, you can always fast forward to the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always going to love hearing that. Yeah, just fast forward to their parts. Listen to us, and then just go to Jarrett. That, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. So, so let's get on with it, though, because I got to tell you, I'm so happy that Albie asked us to come in and, and pinch hit for this episode since he's already done it, since Hayden's already done it. I love this episode, Suzanne. So can you tell yeah, me, me too. Yeah, what are your general thoughts of this episode? What are your memories of it? Um, first of all, I watch this episode every Christmas. Um, <laughs> it just kind of gets me into the mood since back when it first started. I, I just, I love, I don't know, there's just so much to love about it. Not only does it get you in the Christmas spirit, but I love their their take on Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how Al just like, especially at the end when he's the the ghost of Christmas future, how he just like totally gets into it, and I could totally see just them having just so much fun with it, just beyond acting, you know, beyond their actual characters, but with Dean and and, and Scott, just just they must have had a blast with this episode. I think you're absolutely right. I think Dean, this is an all-time Dean episode. Yes. With the way he does it. And when you speak of the acting, that's what struck me. I mean, I don't watch this every Christmas. I've watched it now three times in the last couple of weeks, and it's the first time I've seen it maybe since college. I'm a bad Quantum Leap fan. I'm sorry. But (laughs) I forgot what an awesome episode this is. And When I look at the acting and I look at everything that goes on in it, it is so over the top and none of it should work, but it just (laughs) knocks it out of the park. It's just an amazing episode. I, 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 maybe it's just because I'm fresh off of it. Now I want to put it in my top five. Like I think it's one of the best episodes they ever made. It really is. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Oh, I was probably in high school. Um, I, I got in, I got into uh, quantum leap a little late, um, only because I was too young to stay up until 10 o'clock on Wednesday <laughs> nights to watch it initially. So, um, when they started replaying it on the, uh, the USA network, um, I, it, it was like at seven or six o'clock at night, every night, that's when I started watching it. And my whole family got into it. And, um, so I was probably, oh gosh, 14 when I first saw it. Hmm. So that was like I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself now. It was like 1992, maybe. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you're not dating yourself. I I think I was 22 when the episode came out, and I was in the middle of college. I I honestly do not remember whether I watched it first run or not. Yeah, I definitely didn't. Yeah, I, well, it's an episode that that's sort of like always been in my memory. But considering that Quantum Leap was maybe the only TV show I made time for in college, um, hmm. Well, nobody cares when I saw it first anyway, because <laughs> here I'm thinking in my head, I'm saying, but it was at Christmas, so I might have been home on break and who knows what I was doing then. And right. <laughs> so suffice it to say, uh, I, I had pleasant memories of it, but not very specific memories and being um, invited to revisit it for this. It, it, it's just put it over the top for me. And like I said before, I mean, to me, so much of this episode should not work. Charles Rocket's character is a caricature, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. So Blake is over the top. Downey yes. is kind of over the top in her proselytizing <laughs> and her bringing in the chiefs. And um, there's so much like weird expository dialogue. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> but for some, I don't, I, I don't know if, if it's just the feeling of the episode that makes it work or the, the, the talent of Charles Rocket and Melinda McGraw, who was also just distractingly beautiful in this episode. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I actually love both of them as actors. Um, I, I love watching, uh, Melinda McGraw in, uh, in CIS. Um, and, and in other things, but like every time I see her, um, I, that's the first thing I ever saw her in was this episode of Quantum Leap. So I'm like, I'm like, it's Captain Downey. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you had mentioned Al and his turn as the ghost of Christmas future. Yes. <laughs> I mean, what did you think of, of Dean doing that? I just, uh, he, he was just, uh, I don't know. He was awesome. I mean, I just love how like, like he's, he starts just bouncing up and down, like in glee, sticking his tongue out. Like just, he just <laughs> loved to be like, just like freaking out Blake. And, um, and just because, you know, he's, he's a hologram usually, so people can't see him. So it's very, you know, seldom that he actually gets to interact with other people that Sam's interacting with. And I also love the fact that like Sam is just like totally acting like, I believe you, but I don't like, you know, I'll protect you. He's like putting his hands out in space, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I love how Dean punctuates the end of every line with, ooh, (laughs) you know, it's like you can tell it's like it's like a veteran actor having fun acting badly yeah yet he somehow yeah. he pulls it together yes. and just like the ha 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 the fake laugh as he as <laughs> he floats up and yeah i mean dean dean really really nailed it in this one and i i guess that's you know it, it's funny you're saying because i think this episode breaks a lot of paradigms in the sense that you have dean front and center being able to affect the resolution of mm-hmm. sam's leap but I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that noticed this or maybe, maybe it only, it, it just struck me that Sam takes a, a, a real back seat in this league. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is really a Charles Rocket show. I mean, he carries this episode along yes. with the scenes with, with McGraw. And what I loved about it is that, you know, Sam slots in naturally, but he's not the driving force True. yet. It still feels like an episode of Quantum Leap. And some of the subtle stuff that goes on in the background. Yeah, this is a great Christmas episode, but it's also maybe one of the funniest episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think, in my opinion, that's when Quantum Leap works best is when they're playing off each other for comedic value. And Definitely. Sam is so out of his depth. He's he's coming to like bikers and boxers and DJs. And when he's Pearson, he just doesn't know what to do with himself. <laughs> Which <laughs> also makes it hilarious, right? And you see, I mean, him like the just the just in the beginning with the, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, the leap in when he's like looking up at him with his powdered <laughs> boxers, and then just like from like the intercom to like not wearing, knowing, haha, the foyer, you know, not knowing like where anything is, and them just looking at him like he's crazy. And <laughs> that intercom scene is probably the funniest one in the episode, I think, because he just doesn't know how to work it. He's like, hello, yes. hello. Yes. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So kudos to Scott on that one. And it, it, maybe he had fun too, just playing the comic relief, you know? Yes. That's what makes it more watchable. A lot of the time, in my opinion, I mean, some, some Christmas, especially when you're doing Dickens, there's, mm-hmm. it, it's very pro forma. Like, you know, okay, they're going to have the Scrooge. They're going to see the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. And then Tiny Tim will say, God bless us all, everyone, and everybody right. will end happy. And they did do that here. 
but they just embody the spirit of it. They don't do it beat for beat for beat like so right. many other shows do when they're doing their takeoff on Dickens. Just like when Blake's like, Jacob Marley wore the chains. <laughs> it's like, and he's like, and you know, Al's like, I don't care. Like, shut up. Like, I am the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> I think that's also kudos to the writer Sandy Fries because another thing that subverts sort of the quantum leap paradigm in this episode is that Blake is sharp as a tack. Mm-hmm. When he sees Al the second time, he remembers him. Yep. He's like, and so many times in, in, Quantum Leap or other shows for the sake of the show, for the sake of the plot. Blake would be like, who are you? You're the No, no, no. You're that jerk from the lobby. Yeah, you recognize him through all the makeup and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so <laughs> so there you go. It's like, well, okay, maybe the heroes aren't actually being as effective as shows usually require heroes to be. You know, they usually yes. get someone of an easy pass. And Blake doesn't give anybody an easy pass. He no. he turns around, he sees Sam talking to thin air. Yes. And he doesn't, you know, like, it's, it always amazes me. Like, Sam is, what, four feet away in a room talking to Al and nobody seems to notice. <laughs> no, but he did. Right. And he's just like, oh, who are you talking to? <laughs> you yep. Yeah. 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 I thought that that was a nice little touch for this episode as well. And it just, again, it shows you how well Charles Rocket sort of nails it because, again, it's this weird, awkward moment, but he plays it so smoothly and then the show just goes on and a lot of the stuff that just shouldn't work and pointing out even flaws in in the format of the show, tongue in cheek, yet the episode comes together so magnificently. Definitely. Yeah, I've I've always loved um, Charles Rocket. I loved him in, uh, uh, he was, I don't know if anyone remembers because uh, uh, Touched by an Angel was a very popular show with, with Andrew as the uh, as the angel of death but actually Charles Rocket played the first one in the first season. He was actually, before Andrew came along and made the when the show became really popular, Charles Rocket played Adam, the first angel of death. And uh, I always you know, again, I was like, hey, look, it's Blake from Quantum Leap. Um, and uh, I just I loved him in that. And I was actually pretty sad when he was replaced. Yeah, I, I, have never, I don't think I've seen him in much of anything else besides Quantum Leap. And I recall that he was in a season of Saturday Night Live when I was about 11 years old. And that's when <laughs> I first started watching the show. So I remember uh-huh. him from that because that was sort of my inaugural season of SNL. And I don't think mm-hmm. anybody in that cast survived past a year except for Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. And uh-huh. then it became, you know, the juggernaut that it was in the early 80s with the buckwheat and uh, I'm right. from Jersey. And, you know, it was the Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo show for a while. So <laughs> I, it, it's weird that I remember Charles Rocket from there, but I can't remember any characters he did. I can't remember any sketches he did. So whenever I see him, I just think Quantum Leap. Because he was such an effective Blake. Speaking of sketch comedy, I think it's funny that, uh, you know, since we have the interview with, with Jarrett Lennon, I was uh, looking him up on IMDb last night and I realized that he actually was in a couple episodes of uh, Mad TV. And um, I had to watch one of the ones in particular, I remember, because I had recorded it. Um, when it first came on, it was, it was like a series of bad TV, um, fake commercials. And one of them was, uh, McDumpsters. And it was, it was, it's so funny because like, here's another, like, another scene where, you know, it's, it's a bunch of homeless people and they're all waking up in the morning, just like the old McDonald's commercials. They wake up and get the coffee, but they're all like walking down the streets and like they're all wearing ragged clothes. And the, the, the dad puts the kid, which is, which is Jarrett into the dumpster and he starts pulling out all the food and giving it to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> and like I didn't realize at the time I never realized at the time that it was it was the same actor 
And uh, it just made me laugh because, like, as soon I, I found it on um, on YouTube last night, and I played it back. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's him! That's the kid with the three legged horse. Yeah, right. And he's <laughs> he's a, yet another like coal smeared urchin. Right? Is he? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, we talk about that, just sort of the type that he was. So stick around for the interview. I mean, he's got a great sense of humor, and um, he had he Good. had some some stories about uh, just working on sets as a child because that's when he primarily did a lot of his stuff, and mm-hmm. it was fun to ask him because he doesn't act like other child actors. And I thought that he was so effective in this episode of Quantum Leap because mm-hmm. he just seemed so natural sitting on uh, Blake's lap and he didn't overact. He wasn't looking no. off camera for his cue. So yeah, people, please just stick around for our chat with Jarrett Lennon. He's the best. But Suzanne, let's, let's just get back to this episode. One thing that I did notice that you don't see anymore, and Jarrett was a big part of this in the episode, was... All of the music. Now, I know that we've had a lot of problems with DVD releases of Quantum Leap and them switching out the music. I did my segment on that's the first segment I did for uh, the podcast. Was Yes, right. So you're the expert on that. Now, <laughs> yes. I want to ask you a question a because I have been watching Quantum Leap on the NBC website here in the States for those overseas. I know you can't get it outside of the United States, it seems, but mm-hmm. in Rebel Without a Clue... And uh, it looks like for Runaway coming up, they're keeping all the original music on the NBC website. And in this episode, there was so much Christmas music that mm-hmm. was just so wonderful. And they even spent, I think it was like a full minute with both Jared and Charles and Sam and Melinda singing um, about Joy, Protect to the the Hall, Joy to the World, Joy to the World. Yep. You don't see that anymore on TV. Everything is so quick cut now. Mm -hmm. It's so wonderful just to settle into a moment like that. And I think it's another, and this is not, it's going to sound like a weird pun, but another reason why this episode sings, it, Mm -hmm. it, it, it gets to inhabit like this whole Christmas, uh, universe, I guess. I don't know. Yes. And I was wondering, because this is Christmas music, did that kind of stuff survive the DVD transfers? Because I know a lot of this was maybe popular Christmas music of the time that had to be licensed. Uh, I think the only one that was licensed, there was one, was it, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the song. It was right in the beginning. Um, uh, there's, there was only like two, but they, they're, they're, they were like, um, Oh gosh! I think they had had have yourself a merry little Christmas. Uh, yeah, when, but the, when Sam was yeah. only, that sounded like Andy Williams or or Perry Cuomo or something. Yes, so I, I don't remember which ones they are um, who sang them, but maybe it was easier for them to get because they were older. I don't. I'm not sure. Um, you know, a lot of the the more modern stuff, modern, you know, quote unquote, for the show. Um, like from the, the 60s and 70s and even 50s might be harder to get than some of the older. I'm not really sure, but I guess it wasn't, it, it really wasn't a very music intensive episode like other ones. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, I guess if you're going to swap out music, it's probably far easier to get generic Christmas music that'll right. work for this as opposed to, you know, when they're actually referencing specific songs, but the song's not playing anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, well, and and the majority of the music they produced themselves, so so that's another uh, way around it, you know. They were singing it themselves. That's true. That's true. And uh, I wonder if that was Melinda McGraw singing in those scenes because they sure had her character belting it out, but that could have been ADR. They, Matt Dale could probably <laughs> tell us that. Matt, let us know. <laughs> you know who sung what in this episode because if it was Melinda, she's got a good voice. Yeah, I'm not really sure. 
Another thing that I found interesting is um, during the end credits, they actually played like an alternate cut of the Joy to the World song. Oh, really? See, I didn't stick around for the end credits because, again, bad fan. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, that's the thing. Like, if you had watched it, I'm not sure if when it originally aired, if you know, because you know, these days you never get to actually see the end credits. They always chop them up, or they just have commercials running during them, mm-hmm. or whatever. Back when it originally aired, you probably were able to at least see the ending. Although a lot of times, still, you had like announcers talk over it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, they did a completely different cut of that Joy to the World scene, and um, at the very, very end, Sam and Al say Merry Christmas. So. It's just, it's adorable. And I like it because, um, like I said, like it's completely different camera angles and everything from the actual one that was in the show. So it was kind of like, just like an extra little Christmas treat. It was a much cleaner, crisper recording of it than in, you actually hear in the show because like you don't hear any ambient noise or anything. You hmm. know, it was actually like, like a studio recorded, you know, version of it. So it was really, I, I really enjoyed that. In fact, I like to make, um, I've made a lot of MP3s from, since there's so much music in this show. Yeah. Um, I like to record them and make MP3s and, and play them back, um, for my own personal use. And I actually chose rather than the one, the take from the episode, I used the one from the end because it's just so, just so nice. Was it kind of like, uh, did they break the fourth wall to say Merry Christmas or, cause I'm thinking it's- you're making me think of the end of Catch a Falling Star. Um, no, it's, you just hear them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. You just, you just hear like the voiceover. It's still showing the scene. It's still showing like after they've sang the song, you see, you see Sam and he's kind of like, like nodding and smiling. Like, yeah, that was a, that was a good, you know, good song. And, uh, and then you just hear them say Merry Christmas. And I'm like, oh, so cute. I never noticed that until I got the DVDs. <laughs> I'm so. going to charge you with making me an MP3 collection of all the Christmas music <laughs> in this episode, uh, because <laughs> I think it would be a perfect accompaniment to my opening gifts every year. Yes. You yes. Know? It's just, everything was just so wonderful right down to the music. Now, I know that they discussed this later on in the podcast, but tell me what you thought about the end with the star. I, I think that that warrants a, a fresh take. From both of us. I loved it. I loved it. (laughs) Yet another element that was over the top that should not have worked, but was somehow perfect. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't remember. I mean, I thought it was like the coolest thing ever, you know, back when I was a kid, the first time I saw it. Um, I think I actually shed a tear when I watched it last night because knowing what what was coming, you know, I was just like, it's just so perfect. It's just, you know, like you said, over the top, but somehow it works. Yeah. And talk about shed a tear when, when Blake is on the ground, you know, just saying, I don't want to die alone. Yeah. It choked me up every time I watched it. Yes. You know, testament to Charles again. Thank you, Charles Rocket. He's, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I hate to go on a bit of a, a morbid turn here, but um, it's, it's almost kind of weird how it was a sort of a premonition. Yeah. Um, you know, considering the way his life ended and considering, you know, what the, what Al said was going to happen to Blake. Um, I mean, I don't don't recall if this was mentioned earlier, but uh if you look at the dates on Blake's tombstone, he was um 54, I think. And um and Charles Rocket actually died at 56. So Jeez. Oh, it's yeah. yeah. And <laughs> so, it's funny. It it, it it's horrible that um, every time we discuss this episode, because I think both Amanda and Hayden discuss it, Albie and Heather discuss it, but you can't get yeah, around it. No. The terrible fate of, of poor Charles Rocket. In Such that a he, great actor. Yeah, he took his life. Um, 
much like Blake did. And it, it's, it's just yeah. said, I, I don't want to dwell on that because no, no, we dwell no, on it a lot, but, but it, <laughs> it, it can't not be said. And it right. really is a tragedy because who knows yeah. what could have been ahead for him. If he could make this script work, God damn yes. it. That guy could do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. But the, the star at the end, oh, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just loved it. I mean, I shouldn't apologize. I just. No, no. It was, it was the perfect sort of, again, this episode is so schmaltzy. Yeah. And that's like the schmaltziest schmaltz, but it never comes off as like saccharin. And, and, no. and again, I think it might be because of some of the subversive humor in it. When Al is, <laughs> that scene that I was just talking about where Blake, you know, crumbles onto the sidewalk, bawling yeah. his eyes out. Like a, a minute before that, Al is saying, you got nothing, zero, nada, <laughs> zilch. And you see Sam yes. in the background yes. nodding his head, like yes. mouthing without, like gleefully breaking this man's spirit. <laughs> like that's not <laughs> Sam. Yeah. You know, he's having too good a time torturing this poor bastard. <laughs> but then, but then at the end, you know, they put the star up there and he goes and knocks on the door and Downey, you know, says, uh, comes to the door and, and, and Blake says, you have room for one, one more lost soul. And I just lost it. I was like, Oh, I love it. I just started crying. You know, <laughs> it's just yeah. like, <laughs> it, it works. It works, man. It fires on all thrusters and it works. And yes, it's funny also the limited use of stock footage in this one. The only thing that we really got to give you a flavor of actual New York is that that still shot of Rockefeller Center with the angels mm -hmm. blowing the trumpets. Yeah. Yet I never felt like we weren't in New York. A lot of times when Quantum Leap, especially if they're doing uh, like Brooklyn, double identity. Yes. That felt like Hollywood backlot Brooklyn. Uh-huh. But for some reason, I don't know if it's because they shot a lot of it in the dark or maybe it was just the, the sort of the, the snow or... It was a lot dirtier, a lot gritty. I, I felt like they were in New York in this episode. I know they weren't. I know they were in LA. Right. I know they were in Universal's New York Street or whatever. But again, another thing that just really worked. Oh, believe me. Believe me. I know. Because in, um, was it a Leap of Faith where he's the priest? Yeah. It's supposed to take place in Philadelphia. And they are at the cemetery and in the distance, you can see really tall palm trees. And I'm like, well, there's, <laughs> that just takes me out of the scene right there. No, that was just a, a especially flat place in Philly that had a really long view. I mean, it went yes. past the Earth's horizon. Florida. That's how long that, <laughs> you could see all the way to Miami. <laughs> That <laughs> yes, must be, must be, must have been, uh, what's that, um, uh, Belmont Park or whatever. Uh, no, you don't, a... you don't know the famous Miami Hill at Belmont Park? <laughs> no, no, I mean in Philly. All right. I know I said this, this leap broke a lot of the show's paradigms, but one that really struck me on my third viewing now is, is this Sam's like shortest leap? You got to figure it happens in less than a day. He leaps mm -hmm. in in the morning and Blake is probably, you know, at midnight on Christmas Eve at the door of the mission saying, do you have room for one more lost soul? Mm -hmm. uh, can you think of another leap that was that was as short that took place in the confines of 24 hours? That's a good question, but I never really thought about it that way. So <laughs> I don't really have an answer, but yeah. Yeah, no, it just it just struck me because they they never have to do a costume change. They never really have to right. do, do anything but but what they're doing. And so much it's such a packed episode. It feels like it's going a couple of days. It's but true. It's not. It's 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 just a few hours. And 
It's almost in real time. Yeah, exactly. It's like a real time <laughs> episode. I want Matt Dale could probably tell us. So once again, invoking uh, Matt's going to be the ghost of Quantum Leap Past, Present, and Future, I guess for us. <laughs> so get on it, Matt. All right. Um, I know that. Okay, so this might have been the shortest sleep, but I, we don't want to make this the longest episode of the podcast ever. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I've said what I have to say How about you, Suzanne. Yeah, I think we uh, covered a lot of ground. Yeah. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's, let's hear what everybody else had to say. Uh, cue the harps, the, the sleigh bells. I don't know, but we are going to go to, uh, the pre-recorded segment of this show. The first impressions of Hayden and Amanda, the first impressions of Albie and Heather talking about the episode. And then stick around right after that. We're going to hear from Jarrett Lennon. So, ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Beginning to look a lot like Christmas Toys in every store But the prettiest sight to see Is the holly that will be On your own front door A pair of hop-along boots and a pistol That chooses the wish of Barney and Ben Dolls that will talk and will go for a walk Is the hope of Janice and Jen and mom and dad can hardly wait for school to start again It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go There's a tree in the Grand Hotel One in the park as well A sturdy kind that doesn't mind the snow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Soon the bells will start And the thing that will make them ring Is the carol that you sing Right within your heart Long boots and a pistol that shoots is the wish of Barney and Ben. Dolls that will talk and will go for a walk is the hope of Janice and Jan. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Toys in every store, but the prettiest sight to see is the holly that will be on your own front door. It's beginning. You hear the sleigh bells ring It's beginning That mistletoe will swing It's beginning to look a lot Like Christmas Thank you. 
Doorbell. Who goes to somebody's house without texting them first? Whoa, how did this house get here? Albie, Heather, I can't believe it. Uh, I, I got caught up in the hurricane. It pulled my house up off its um off its foundations, and I've ended up here. I don't think I'm in Oz anymore. Where, where am I? Southwest Florida. And why is your house in black and white? Uh, I, I have no idea. I can't believe it. Uh, we've always wanted to meet up, and I'm actually here. And it happened completely by accident. Why are you wearing ruby red pumps? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're just really comfortable, all right? And they make my butt look awesome. I was going to say that. I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, Heather, you look amazing. Hi. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't believe it. I'm over in America during Christmas time, and there's no snow. Why isn't there any snow? Trump. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Um, is he going to send me to Guantanamo Bay because I don't have any papers? Absolutely. Uh, uh, can I come inside then because I don't want that to happen? Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> on one yeah. condition. Yeah. You let me wear the heels. Oh, no worries. So um, it's near Christmas time, isn't it? Yes, uh, we have the tree up. There's tinsel everywhere, and uh, we're just stringing up uh, popcorn for the tree. (laughs) Hi, Serenity. Hi, Hayden and Amanda. So since it's near Christmas time, here's an idea. Why don't we watch A Little Miracle, which is the Christmas episode of Quantum Leap? That's a wonderful idea. We were just about to do that. We have it on Blu-ray. Oh, awesome. I haven't seen it in Blu-ray. It's very 1080p. Awesome. Ooh. And I, this 3D is amazing. It's almost like I can reach out and touch it. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Pearson. You forgot the talc. Uh, yes. Yes, well, talc. Now, Albie, I believe that you've already done a podcast on this episode. I have. If you look back in the archives to the episode that's coming out right now, uh, we already did it. Well, why don't we have a listen? Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and to find himself trapped in the past facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better his only guide on this journey is Al an observer from his own time who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear and so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life striving to put right what once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. 
This is episode 39, A Little Miracle. December 24th, 1962, the day before Christmas. I'm a 200-pound valet. Who's this guy I'm working for? Michael Blake, one of the richest guys in the country. He put more people out of work than the Great Depression. And me? Reginald Pearson. You've been picking up after Blake for three years. Why am I here? Well, that should be obvious. Well, to save the mission, I guess, but I don't know. No, it's to save Blake. Blake? What does a man like Blake need to have saved? His soul. Well, he's a real Scrooge. Al, you're a genius. Michael is Scrooge, right? He's alone, he's miserable. So? So, we Scrooge him. Hey, Blake, wake up! I am the ghost of Christmas future. Ooh. I'm here to show you your future. Ooh. I don't want to die alone. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to end like this. <laughs> Yes, sir. It's a sign, isn't it? I think so, sir, yes. Hello and welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And we're talking about episode 39, A Little Miracle. Basically, it's Quantum Leap's version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. This is our holiday show. So we figured we'd go ahead and cover this episode of Quantum Leap because it's the most Christmassy. It was suggested to us that we do this by one of our listeners, Hayden, and uh, I couldn't think of a reason not to. Since it's a time travel podcast, there's no reason why we have to stay linear. So, Heather, what did you think of A Little Miracle? I liked their take on A Christmas Carol. It was cool to have a little glimpse into a future season of Quantum Leap. This episode is not very spoilery at all, which is good. Otherwise, we couldn't do it. Is that a new word? Spoilery? Spoilery. (laughs) Not in 2015 like it is. (laughs) You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. Exactly. (laughs) One can watch this episode out of order. And not get spoiled by anything. There's a couple little things in the opening from shows we haven't seen yet. Yeah, but they don't give anything away. The only thing that was really different was the the handling was a little bit different. And that was about it. I think that was pretty much the final version, the cool one that everybody thinks of when they think of the handling. Yeah, it was a different look, had a different look to it. But I I like I liked it. It's a little update. And I liked that Al wasn't the brains of the operation as much as he is at least in so far in in what we've seen but sam kind of came up with a lot of ideas this time and i like that al was seen by michael blake that was really cool as soon as michael blake could see al i was like okay i know what they're gonna do here i see i wasn't as smart as you with that (laughs) maybe because i went into it knowing that this was their take on a christmas carol if i didn't know that maybe i wouldn't have thought of it ahead of time but as soon as i knew he could see al i was like oh they're gonna mess with him yeah i guess that that makes sense yeah i i just kind of went in blindly i guess but um I, i have never seen him be acknowledged except for mrs melney when he was yelling at her in the car so it's cool that that is a possibility it'll be interesting to see in between the past and the future if other people can see al or not like we did (laughs) 
Well, how could you miss him in that shirt? <laughs> uh, that's the second time he wore a crazy, loud, short-sleeved summer shirt. Well, that one was like a Rocco's Modern Life shirt. Did you ever watch that show? Not at all. Well, if if you look up Rocco's Modern Life, it's a bunch of, like, I don't know, shapes like that. Triangles and crazy shapes. The last time I saw Al in a weird shirt like this was in Double Identity. And it's pretty much their shortcut into saying, yes, it's winter where you are, Sam, but where I am, it's middle of July. Heather, can you read the episode recap? Sure. Season three, episode 10, A Little Miracle. Original broadcast date, December 21st, 1990. Teleplay by Sandy Fries and Robert A. Waltersdorf. Story by Sandy Fries. Directed by Michael Watkins. On Christmas Eve, Sam leaps into Reginald Pearson, who is the valet to business tycoon Michael Blake. Michael is a thoroughly unpleasant man, though he is opposed to firing Sam despite his incompetence as a valet and his meddling in Michael's personal life, who is planning on tearing down a Salvation Army building in order to build Blake Plaza. He also just happens to have very similar brainwaves to Sam and so is able to see Al until Al changes the frequency slightly so that Michael can no longer see him. Sam is sympathetic to the Salvation Army and so promises Captain Laura Downey that he will find a way to save the building, with her help, of course. When Sam is ordered to sort through Michael's suits to find which ones to save and which to give away, with heavy input from Al, as Sam knows nothing about clothes, he finds a box of memories in the closet, which reveal that Michael changed his name and used to be a poor orphan living on the same street as Blake Plaza is to be built on and that he is trying to show the world just how far he has come by building the tower there. Sam convinces the chauffeur to let Sam drive Michael to his meeting and ends up taking him to the Salvation Army building. He stops the car, and one of the local kids comes over and lets the air out of one of the tires to give them an excuse to stop. When Michael gets out, after wondering how Sam thought this was a good route to get to the meeting he had, he is assaulted by memories of the past aided by several children playing and calling someone by Michael's original name. Captain Downey appears and denies having seen the boys. Caught up in nostalgia and charmed by Downey, Michael happily tells her about growing up here. When they stop to buy chestnuts, Michael recognizes the vendor as Max Wyshynski, an old friend that he had lost touch with. The two reminisce for a bit, and then Michael asks what happened to his old best friend. Max is forced to tell them that he became an alcoholic and killed himself after losing his job when the bakery became automated. As Michael made his money off of laying off workers like this, he is deeply upset. He tries to pay extra for the chestnuts, but Max just tells him to go. Blake pays him anyway. Michael storms off and then sits in his apartment getting drunk, and so Sam thinks that he has failed. Al believes that this is actually a good sign and that Michael is thinking about what he is doing, and so they put phase two of their plan in action. Sam tells Michael that he feels sorry for him because for all of his wealth and power, he's still missing something from his life. Michael angrily asks how he would know, and Sam bets a month's rent that he can prove it. Sam takes Michael back down to the site of the future Blake Plaza and has him put his hand on the side of the building, telling him that that path is just cold. And Michael retorts that he has had people who loved him, but they all either died or left him, and that this building and his empire won't. Before they can leave, though, they hear singing coming from the Salvation Army building and go in. Michael is once again caught up in nostalgia as he joins the festivities and really starts to open up to Downey. 
Unfortunately, a little boy comes over to give Michael a Christmas present, and Michael recognizes him as one of the children from earlier and realizes that this is an elaborate charade to make him change his mind. Furious, he storms out and tells Sam that he had better hope he didn't still want to fire him in the morning. Sam was discouraged, but then he remembers that Michael can see Al and sends him in as the third ghost. Al chooses to go all out and dresses up as Jacob Marley, which Michael calls him on. Because Michael saw him earlier, he doesn't initially believe that Al is a ghost and keeps insulting him. Eventually, he tries to punch Al and falls right through him. After that, it doesn't take long to convince Michael that Al is really a ghost. Michael calls for Sam to get rid of Al, but Sam pretends he cannot see him. Al takes Michael to the Salvation Army building and shows him the future. Michael is delighted at the picture of the finished Blake Plaza, but then he sees a news report from 1975 featuring an older, bitterer him declaring bankruptcy. He sees that his tower has been renamed and that he eventually jumped from the top of it into oncoming traffic. Michael is horrified and breaks down sobbing. Sam convinces Michael that it's not too late to change, and a bright star leads Michael back to the Salvation Army's door, and Downey lets him in. Al reveals that the two of them marry in six months and have three kids. Michael still builds his tower, but he gives the first entire floor to the Salvation Army. Sam wonders if Michael would have knocked on the door if Al hadn't put the star there, but Al says that he didn't. And that episode recap was from the Quantum Leap Wikia. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. So what did you think about this episode? I liked it. And I like the fact that the show keeps getting better at what they're doing. Skipping ahead like we did, it was nice to see that uh, they finally got everything worked out to where they know what they're doing. In other words, uh, one of the first things I noticed was uh, the leapy Reginald Pearson was a heavyset man. And uh, the suit that Scott Bakula was wearing was not tailored to fit Scott Bakula. It was tailored to fit this heavier man. And that's the way it would be because uh, a heavier man would have to wear a bigger suit. So Sam was wearing a bigger suit. So I like that. Yeah, that was a pretty in-depth thought that they covered the mistakes they were making in season one and the beginning of season two they're not making anymore so that's nice to see well i think that that kind of goes with most shows for me this episode was pretty much scrooged without the comedy there was a no there really wasn't any comedy in this one um yeah it definitely was because it was a modern version of a christmas carol which is you know like scrooged but all of his employees were scared of him, just like Scrooge, and he really didn't have a Christmas spirit. He had a Christmas tree, but it wasn't for any purpose. I mean, he didn't want the lights on. It was just like to show that he could have a big Christmas tree. Everything he did was just to show off, but he really had no one to show off to, so it was kind of all pointless. It was almost like when he was a child and his mother died and... When she was doing anything she could just to scrape by, and then he was an orphan, he told himself, I'm going to be the richest, most powerful man in town. And uh, that's all that mattered to him. And he didn't care who he stepped on along the way. Well, see, the thing about that is, is, you know, that famous saying, money can't buy happiness. I mean, depends on if you have someone to share it with or not. I mean, what what's the purpose of having everything that you ever wanted, but nobody to share it with? Yeah, he has more paintings than the Guggenheim, and he has all this money and all these buildings. But what Sam's point was when he was trying to have him feel the building, it's like, there's no life here. Like there's no, there's no one to hug or, or talk to or enjoy your life with. You can't enjoy your life with a building. You forgot the talc. 
That's just weird. No, seriously, you forgot the talc. I'm waiting. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, no. Sorry. What's that about? I mean, I don't care how rich I was. I think I'm going to put my own pants on. Like there's high maintenance and then there's that. <laughs> like that. I don't even think that counts as high maintenance. That's just beyond that's normal. A, that's a whole nother level. Yeah. That's I wouldn't take that job. Yeah. like, And he's been doing it for years. Yeah. Poor guy. I guess the pay is pretty good. <laughs> this episode, I noticed a lot of Reginald Pearson in Sam, he was acting totally different than we normally see Sam. He was very unsure of himself, very nervous, very fidgety, very just uh, he lacked confidence. And I thought that was from his leapy, maybe. In the beginning, definitely. But then as the episode went on, it wasn't as bad. But in the beginning, with him fumbling with the intercom and trying to find the newspaper, I felt so bad for him. He leaps into a lot of different situations, but I think if I leaped into the situation he leaped into in the beginning of this episode, I would have been like, okay, you know what? I'm out. (laughs) Not it. (laughs) Because he was staring at a man's crotch, basically, a foot away. Yeah, it was definitely a a different scene to open up to. It just, uh, I would be like, you know what? It's probably not that important, so maybe just leave me somewhere else. Well... As far as Sam is concerned with his leap situation, he at least knows he can't really do anything. I mean, he can't really go anywhere else. He's not going to go live his life as that man. He's got to get home. So he's got to do what it takes. Yeah, he's got to accomplish his mission. Speaking of mission, I wish they hadn't called this the Salvation Army. I wish they would have just went with like uh, what they did in Star Trek, the original series, The City on the Edge of Forever. Just call it the mission. Just a generic place to help people out that are downtrodden. That one charity. Yeah, just <laughs> just something nonspecific. Because that's one thing that kind of dates and affects this episode a little bit. In the past few years, the Salvation Army has released statements that's kind of tarnished their image as of late. And... Um, It doesn't go along with the Quantum Leap version of what is good and right, because there's at least one episode and one comic book of Quantum Leap that deals with homosexuality and hate towards homosexuals. Um, But I'm sure that the writers of Quantum Leap had no idea that the Salvation Army would come out to have those beliefs. I mean, I I understand why you're saying that, that it should have just been like a generic thing. But who would have thought that the Salvation Army would come out with saying such hateful things? Well, I'm not blaming the writers of Quantum Leap at all. They have no idea knowing what's going to happen 22 years in the future. Yeah. And nobody expected them to come out and say that. You would think they would be more enlightened and say, well, mm, I don't know what they would say. But uh, like I was saying, uh, Quantum Leap on two different occasions at least has uh, said, you know, Basically, what our philosophy is, is people are people. And And hate is bad. Hate is bad. And everybody should be treated equal. And uh, nobody deserves to die, in in my opinion, especially for being born a certain way. Innocent people don't deserve to die. Yeah. With Quantum Leap, it is very religious, but overall, it's the loving part of religion and not the hateful part of religion. I think in the beginning, they kind of left it up to the audience as to who was controlling the leaping. But now that they have kind of hinted that it's God and he is the one who put the star there. At least that's what we're assuming, right? Is that... Oh, at the end? Yeah. Yes. So it has become a little bit more religious, but it's not really in your face about it either. Um, So those who aren't religious, it doesn't offend anybody. It's still kind of a 
just touching on religion a little bit. Right. It makes it more of a supernatural fantasy type of entertainment, which uh, whether you are a believer or a non-believer, it's just good storytelling. So if they had used just a generic mission, it wouldn't have affected future viewings of it down the road. Yeah, I, I agree with that. When I when I saw the Salvation Army, I, I was a little, I don't know, I it was a little standoffish, the Salvation Army thing. But once you look past the name, it was fine having them in the episode. But like you said, if they had made a different name. Definitely the people in the episode, they didn't seem to have any hate or malice towards anyone. They were just trying to help people. Well, and also the Salvation Army as a whole, the top people of the Salvation Army might not represent the opinions of all of the people that work for the... Right. I'm sure not everybody who is involved in the Salvation Army has the same views as that person that was interviewed. Right. And uh, as of today, this recording, it is still in their handbook and that's still what they believe. But, uh, you know, I was hired by a company and I signed a handbook and I never read it, so... Yeah, and they're to this date they still stand outside and ring the bells, and people still donate. And ha- I mean, there's still not, not a lot has changed as far as stopping all of that. Right, it's a difficult situation, but uh, hopefully in the future that will get resolved. Hopefully in our future there will be more love than hate. And now I sound like a hippie, but <laughs> um, but really, I mean, if anything, this season and this time of the year is to love one another and appreciate the people in your life and celebrate the people that you have around you and the love in your life and not hate on other people for who they are or what they do or what they believe in. I found something online that I think is really uh, fitting for this discussion. And uh, could you read that, Heather? Sure. This is actually kind of fitting because it's kind of holiday related. Um, Okay. Being an atheist is okay. Being an atheist and shaming religions and spirituality as silly and not real is not okay. Being a Christian is okay. Being homophobic, misogynistic, racist, or otherwise hateful person in the name of Christianity is not okay. Being a reindeer is okay. Bullying and excluding another reindeer because he has a shiny red nose is not okay. So I think that really uh, says it all. Yeah, I mean, you're entitled to your own opinion. You're entitled to your own beliefs, your own faith, all of that. As long as you don't force it upon anyone else or bash someone for what their beliefs are, I think that everybody would get along. But yeah, (laughs) we should all just get along. Exactly. And this is the time of year to get along. You ever notice around Christmas time, everybody's like in a happy mood and pretty much uh, willing to go the extra mile to help each other out and maybe donate to their favorite charity or give somebody that they don't know a gift or have somebody to their home for dinner. And don't you wish it could be like that all year round? I don't know. I work in retail. Um, (laughs) So there's that. Um, But yeah, for the most part, um, people are, are a lot nicer this time of year and more caring and more forgiving. And I I really do wish it could be like that all year long. I mean, if we can pull it off for a couple months, we should be able to, you know, do it at least most of the year. So going back to the episode, uh, I noticed Mr. Blake's breakfast was a hard boiled egg and toast. And you see that in so many things for rich people. Like they have that little egg stand and they break the egg open and they eat it with a piece of toast. I don't know why, but that I guess is storytelling shortcut for I'm rich and important. Man, if I was rich, there would be some bacon 
and lots of cheese involved and some hash browns. I mean, listen, if I had a cook, it would not be a hard boiled egg and some toast. I could do that by myself. I don't need a kitchen staff to make me a hard boiled egg and toast. I would an omelet, maybe some eggs Benedict. Michael Blake definitely has a big staff. And uh, maybe that's why he went bankrupt in the future. When you're rich, that's another criteria, I think, is having a staff of people, of mostly unnecessary people. Um, But I guess with that huge house, he couldn't clean it all himself or do all the maintenance himself. And that's the point of being rich. You get to uh, employ people to do the things you don't want to do. And uh, back in 1962, when this episode takes place, I'm thinking it was more like... uh a lot of things were a lot less automated like today. And uh, it was more like the Flintstones where you needed a bird to take your picture and you needed an elephant for running water. So it was more like that. Like you could have anything you wanted to get done as long as you had enough people to do it. Can we get an elephant for running water? Where do we sign up for that? We already have running water. I think it would cost more to have an elephant. But like, can you imagine having an elephant in your backyard? Like, hey, can you just water my plants? <laughs> Thanks, dude. So I noticed that, speaking of his wealth, um, he kind of sounds disgusted talking about his mother's life and that whole childhood part of when they're in the car and Sam asks him about the pictures or, you know, brings up his childhood. Um, and, And he talks about his dad leaving and, you know, obviously he's upset about that. But the way he talks about his mom, he's so disgusted. Like that she died on her hands and knees on someone else's bathroom floor. You would think he would be grateful. Yeah, like doing what she had to do to give him any kind of life. Though she, you know, didn't succeed as far as, you know, she passed away. But like being a mom and having to struggle as a single mom and do whatever you have to do to take care of your child. Like the way he talked about her was just so bitter. Maybe when he was younger, he made a very immature judgment of his mother about what happened and was angry and took it out on his mother and never changed his mind, like never took the time to think about it and understand. Yeah, I I see where you're going with that, because, you know, he could have looked at her death as her leaving him and made it kind of a selfish thing because he is kind of a selfish person. But to get where he was, that's how he had to be. I mean, he he viewed his lifestyle as a child to be not acceptable and that he needed to have a better lifestyle and at whatever cost. So I I don't know. I, I don't know if I would be able to step on anybody I wanted to or I had to to get there. But I guess you're either born with that or you're not. So in this episode, I don't think they really had the time to do the three ghosts. So they just did the Ghost of Christmas Future, which was Al. Done very well, by the way. But I think taking the place of the Ghost of Christmas Present was Sam, because he was kind of letting him know where he stands right now. And the Ghost of Christmas Past, I think, was represented by the box of pictures. Oh, that makes sense. But see, what's crazy is I I watched this episode twice. For some reason, the first time I watched this episode, I didn't realize that the children were reenacting a scene. I totally thought that was his memory, that he was recalling things. And I didn't catch that at all. I just thought he looked around when he saw the kids and realized that the little boy sitting on his lap was fooling him. And like that's I just thought that that's what happened. 
I totally didn't realize that the kids were actually reenacting. I thought it was his memory. I did not get that until my fourth time watching this episode. <laughs> well, then I don't feel so bad. But um, I couldn't understand why he was mad at the children being there the first three times until the fourth time, like you said, and I realized everything that went on. Yeah, well, when Al's prediction percent or whatever is, is going going down and he's getting mad at the kids, I, I was like, I think I missed something because I don't really know. And then I just figured he thought the little kid with the horse was trying to make him feel bad you know like i that's what i thought and he just like looked around and realized what was going on but i didn't realize that the kids running in like i just thought that they were running in and like startled him into realizing what was going on if that makes sense but um yeah i didn't get that well that's why i watch an episode repeatedly until i don't have that confusion feeling anymore <laughs> We don't have the benefit of having a podcast to go along with Quantum Leap. But with other shows that I watch, I like to have a podcast to go along with that show. And what I do is I watch the show and then I'll listen to the podcast and then I'll watch the show again. So it's kind of like you see things that you missed before or somebody else's opinion or observations on that episode. But for us watching this, we have to just watch it over and over until we get as much as we can out of it. I guess that's kind of like the modern day commentary, but you can get other opinions. That's how I got into podcasts, because I was so into bonus features and commentaries. Yeah, see, I was never one for bonus features and stuff until I met you. And I, I'm now like such a junkie for it. I love the bonus features behind the scenes. Commentaries are pretty cool to hear. Well, podcasting really is kind of like bonus features or commentary because you get to hear opinions other than your own four people can watch an episode and see four different things. So that's always cool to see a different point of view. So it's basically the same thing, just on a different platform. With me, while I'm watching something I haven't seen before, I'm like, I can't wait for the movie or TV show to get over so I can get to the bonus features. I don't think I'd go that far into uh, <laughs> liking them that much. It doesn't make sense, but I'm being honest. Well, I guess then when you watch it a second time, you're not in a hurry, right? When you rewatch it, then, then you enjoy it more. So one thing I liked about this episode is Blake calls out Al on being the wrong ghost because he's supposed to be the ghost of Christmas future, wearing a black robe and presumably being death. Instead, he's got the chains and trying to be more like Jacob Marley, which is the ghost that tells Scrooge or Blake in this case that he's going to be visited by ghosts. So Al was trying to get it all into one, I think. But can you imagine Al not dressing up for the part? I mean, a black robe is so not Al. No, this outfit that Al had on was awesome. It looked like the character was supposed to have done the makeup himself, kind of, and it had a black hand on his throat. Like he was being choked by a makeup artist or yeah, something. Yeah, and different color ears. I think one was red and one was green. Yeah, and he had lipstick on. Yeah. Red and green, like almost checker. So yeah. that was pretty cool. Uh, just everything great about that outfit and the makeup with Al. But Al's always, you know, fashion forward, especially for back then. But I'm sure that Al, as a character, loved getting ready for that. <laughs> Did he have a collar on and no shirt? Is that what I saw? Or like uh, a low cut shirt, but a collar? It was very interesting. We didn't watch this one in high definition. We watched it on the Region 2 DVDs. Well, I know that his shirt was all ripped and stuff. That so might maybe, have been it. Yeah, maybe his collar was ripped away from his shirt. But they did a great job. But, uh, oh, speaking of a great job, the whole special effect where Blake goes to punch Al and he falls right through him. 
it looks so real and good. So way to go. Season three. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. The effects keep getting better. Oh, yeah. Like I could not tell he wasn't in that room except for Blake going through him. I, and you know what? I really liked that Sam had to pretend he wasn't there. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> He's like, OK, I, you know, I can't get him out of here if I can't see him. And if for our listeners, I'm feeling around with my hands. I know that doesn't translate well to audio, <laughs> but uh, I just love that he did that. And it was great. Yeah, I think that Al had a lot of fun with um, the way he acted as this ghost, how he changed his positions, jumped on buildings kind of thing. And he overacted a lot, which is really cool. Like he, the, his facial expressions and the way he used his hands and the way he said things was just like really awesome because you know that Al's not really like that in person, but it was just really cool to see him out of his normal self. Yeah, Al was doing a great job acting like the ghost of Christmas Future, and Dean Stockwell was doing an awesome job as acting like Al being the ghost of Christmas Future. <laughs> uh, Dean Stockwell's amazing, and uh, being one of the two leads of the show, and both of those guys, Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell, doing 97 hours of television, and at that high-quality level, it's, it's pretty amazing, and they did a really good job. Yes, they are both very amazing actors. As we say, a lot. Yeah. We like this show, by the way. Just in case you were wondering. Blake lets it slip that he thinks Captain Laura Downey is beautiful. And she is a very pretty lady. And I, I liked her acting in this episode. I liked her character. Um, I had recognized her. And it wasn't until our researcher sent me more information on her that I realized where I recognized her from. Yeah, she's from uh, X-Files, right? Yeah, she played Dana Scully's sister. So well, that's really cool. To add to that moment where he calls her beautiful. Did you see Sam's face? He was like, hey, we might have gotten something here. <laughs> well, right then I had thought, you know, this is going to turn out great. And like Al was saying, there's a 97% chance they're going to get together. But then when he started saying 96, 94, 92, yeah. I was like, uh-oh, what's going on? Well, there's always the love interest in A Christmas Carol, right? In, really? in A Christmas Carol, they Who go back... Scrooge? He was in love. They showed and when oh. they went back to his his past, it was his young love and how in love he was. And so okay. trust me, the Muppets Christmas Carol is my all time favorite Christmas movie. So I, I was going to ask, what is your favorite? So that's your favorite? The Muppets Christmas Carol by far. Do you have other favorites? Um, Scrooge is good. I like the uh, what Kelsey Grammer one. That one's good, too. I mean, they're all pretty good. I have a thing. Every holiday season, I try to watch as many different versions of Scrooge as possible. I don't know why. I think just because the story is very comforting to me and I enjoy it and I enjoy seeing it done over and over again by different people. Uh, I'd have to say probably Scrooged is my favorite. And uh, like the 1930s black and white one is really good. For some reason, that one reminds me of the first Doctor Who. Like the screw. <laughs> I wonder if it's the same guy. Probably not. I, probably not. But for some reason, the guy who plays Scrooge reminds me of the first Doctor in Doctor Who. The Patrick Stewart one's really good. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one. There's so many. There's a, there's another one uh, with, was it Vanessa Williams? Isn't there it, one with uh, Tom Arnold? There's so many like Hallmark yeah, ones. Yeah, there's a Tom Arnold one too. There's so many Hallmark Channel ones. There's so many... Well, they redo the Christmas Carol and then the one where you replay Christmas every year. They redo those so many times because we keep watching them i keep watching them yeah but i enjoy all those i really do it's part of the christmas season right if you haven't seen that story at least once during the christmas season it doesn't really seem like christmas yeah, you're totally missing out if you had to pick just one out of all those what would be your favorite 
The one where Data does it on the holodeck on Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. There's more gravy than grave of you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a good... I have to watch that every year. I don't know. Um, Scrooged, I would say. Yeah, that's a good one. It's very dark. Yeah, but it's got a good ending. Notice how mine's like the Muppets one where they're all like singing and I, puppets. <laughs> you introduced me to that one and I really enjoy that one. So I watch that every year. Also. I honestly could not believe you hadn't seen that one. <laughs> I love the Muppets. I love a Christmas Carol. I just had never seen a Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah, it's definitely a good one. If you listeners have not seen a Muppets Christmas Carol, definitely go watch it. It's a happy go lucky. Well, I mean, it's still a Christmas Carol, but. I wonder what the listener's favorite version of A Christmas Carol is. If you have a favorite version, let us know by calling 707-847-6682. Leave us a voicemail, and we just might use it in the show. You can also leave us a comment on Facebook or send us an email if you are too shy to call in. It's uh, quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. Or facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can also tweet us also um, at quantumleappod. There are many ways to get a hold of us, so please do. Yeah, because we want to hear if there are some that we haven't seen yet. That would be cool. Yeah. I know I have a lot of Christmas movies to watch. Yeah, I I love all Christmas movies. You know what? No, sorry. I don't love all Christmas movies. Is there one you don't like? The Christmas Shoes and the sequel to The Christmas Shoes. Don't watch that. I mean, (laughs) horrible. I love Neil Patrick Harris. That's why I watch one of them. But well, you didn't see the first one, did you? You just saw the sequel. I knew from the song not to watch the first movie. I had no idea that the Neil Patrick Harris movie was a sequel to that. If I did, I might not have watched it. Yeah. When when. Yeah. Don't watch those. They're just too sad. I don't like sad Christmas movies. I like the happy Christmas movies. (laughs) I like the movies where everything's going good. Something minorly bad goes wrong mediocre <laughs> yeah towards the end of the movie but then they get past it and everybody's happy right and it all ends with everyone by the christmas tree right and merry christmas lots of hugs and kisses and everything's fine and there's cookies and and those movies don't yeah no they no so going back to the episode blake definitely knows the whole story of a christmas carol since uh he calls al out on who he's supposed to be and what he's dressed like i think everyone knows that story Sometimes people in the retelling of A Christmas Carol don't realize that there there was A Christmas Carol before. It depends on the universe. But he knows definitely, which helps with the shorthand, because all he needs is the ghost of Christmas future to show him his future. From 1975, the newscast, where he goes bankrupt, and uh, they just made his hair a little bit gray. Yeah, he was wearing a wig. Yeah. Pretty bad. But in the 70s, maybe people wore wigs. I don't know. At some point, people had to wear wigs, right? Yeah. But he I, might, he I, might have went bald and needed a bad wig. <laughs> was there a good wig in the 70s? I don't know. <laughs> you are totally right. All he had to do was see he was going to go bankrupt. And then Al told him in this episode that he commits suicide because of his financial problems, which is kind of um, eerie, let's say, watching it nowadays, because turns out the actor who played Michael Blake did commit suicide. No way. Yeah. um, Charles Rocket, who played Michael Blake, died on Monday, October 17th, 2005, of an apparent suicide. The manner and age of Michael Blake are a terrible, unintentional foreshadowing of this event. Ouch. Yeah, I found that out when we were trying to contact him for an interview. Yeah, I guess not. So uh, That's so sad. A horrible way that life is imitating art. Uh, I this brings up a topic of suicide, I guess, around the holidays. Not a good thing, but it seems to happen a lot. I guess it just highlights if you're not doing so well, it highlights all the things that are going wrong in your life. Um, all the things you don't have. 
Still not a reason to kill yourself. It seems that Charles Rocket didn't learn a lesson from this episode to where suicide is not the right answer. Yeah, yeah, I guess not. But that's it's a very sensitive subject because um, suicide affects a lot of people. And for whatever reason, you know, they obviously think that it's the better option in that moment. And it affects so many people around them. But in the episode, Blake didn't have anybody and all he had was his money. So when he lost his money, he lost everything. So at least in this episode, in the art form, not in reality, at least he, you know, realized that even if he lost his money, at least he has a family now in the new future. Right. So he's got something to live for. Yeah. But Christmas or the holiday time is hard because if you don't have family, you know, everywhere you look, it, it's about spending time with your family. Or if you don't have money, it's about spending money. Um, it, it does highlight all of the problems that you have or the lack of support or family that you have during this time. So it might push people with problems with depression over the edge, maybe. Oh, yeah, definitely. It also puts a lot of pressure on people who do have family and maybe not a perfect situation with their family or, you know, people with anxiety, social anxiety or things like that. I know that uh, Christmas and holidays, all of that stuff can be really stressful to most people. And if you already have a, you know, predisposition for stuff like that, it can be really tough. So on the way to my day job the other day, I was listening to Mission Log podcast and I found out that the actor who played Cyrano Jones on Star Trek, Stanley Adams, had committed suicide. And I was like, that kind of brought me down. And uh, while I was at work that day, uh, the building next to where I work is a hotel and somebody committed suicide like three days ago, I think now. Wow. It's the holidays and suicide. Uh, I just want to tell everybody out there, if if you have any thoughts of suicide, it's it's not the answer. If you don't have people in your life, if you think that life's not worth living, change your environment, move, find new friends, go somewhere else, do something. Being alive is always better than the alternative. It's hard to actually act on those words. I mean, they, they sound good and they are definitely words to to live by and, you know, advice to take. But when you are in a position that you feel like you can't go on and stuff like that, it can be hard to just hear those words and, and act on them. But um, there's always somebody who thinks you're important and there's always somebody who loves you. You just have to reach out and find that person. And it gets better. That's always that's always a good phrase to live by. It gets better. It does get better. And uh, one thing that I've heard from people who do commit suicide and don't succeed is... Oh, I was like, have you been talking to those people lately? <laughs> no, not, not the ones that do succeed, but the ones that don't succeed, so they do succeed, <laughs> um, is as soon as they do whatever they were going to do to kill themselves, they immediately regret it. So don't be that person. Yeah, most of the time you can't go back. But um, life is worth living. Yes. Back and to lots of lots of touchy subjects in this episode. There's a lot to talk about. But I mean, suicide happened in the episode and it really happened in real life to the actor who played it. So, yeah, it's just when when you've been in in a spot where you feel like you can't go on and, and you've been in that dark place where you feel like nothing could get better and, and things like that. I mean, I've never been in a, a spot where it's that dark and, and that extreme, but I know that everybody has bad days and I can't imagine being in a situation where my bad days are that bad. 
And I just, I want everyone to know that there really is somebody, there's always somebody out there that will miss you if you're gone. I've been lonely before and depressed, but I've never not wanted to live. I love life. No matter how bad it gets, I love it. You want to live forever. Fame. I want to live forever. It's true. I want to live just long enough until they discover immortality. You say that. I don't know. I watch a lot of uh, vampire shows where they're all miserable because they've lived forever. Yeah, I don't get that. Not me. Maybe they don't have cable. See, I could, <laughs> I could see there's so many shows right now. I don't have time to watch. If I live to a couple hundred, maybe I can watch them all. That, that's your goal in life, to live forever so you can watch TV. It's <laughs> Not good... like go travel or build an empire or... I want to see the next Star Trek series. I want to see when they reboot Quantum Leap. I want to see all that. I think we're starting to be in the era where they remake everything. So we might actually see a lot of that sooner rather than later. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. There's always something to live for. When they remake it, are we going to have a, a QLP too? <laughs> oh, we'll be right there. What were the messages and meanings in this episode that we could take away from it? Money can't buy happiness. Um, being alone in a huge empire that you've built by stepping on everyone is not worth it. Maybe love is more important than money. Oh, I like that one. Don't be a Scrooge. Don't be a Scrooge. If you own a business, give your employees the day off. <laughs> <laughs> I am lucky to work for one of those companies that gives me the day off. You are. And I get paid for it. You, you do. <laughs> and I'm very happy for you. But you are not one of those people. <laughs> I am not one of those people. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those of you that have to work on uh, Christmas Day... We're sorry. And I'll be, can, uh, he's right there with you. He'll be working right, right alongside you. I sympathize with you, but I still love life. So I'm going to come home after work and be very happy and enjoy the holiday with my family. Yeah. Whatever holiday you celebrate, Hanukkah, winter solstice, Kwanzaa, Festivus, Christmas. Are there any others? Just oh. a general holiday. Wasalia. That's the new Disney Junior Channel uh, holiday. Tell me about it. I like it. I have no idea. There's no information on it other than the fact that it's not a real holiday. Well, <laughs> uh, it is now. You mentioned it. They light a candle and there's presents. It's everything like Christmas, but there's no actual holiday called Wasalia. I'm sure somebody celebrates it. And if you do, happy Wasalia. <laughs> exactly. If you're at home watching Sophia the First with your children, happy Wasalia. <laughs> We celebrate all the holidays as just the basic holiday season, but we have a tree, we have a Festivus pole, we have all kinds of things, decorations. I love the holidays. I really do. I love the movies. I love the music. I love these episodes of television that have the Scrooge storyline, which there's got to be over 100 by now between Welcome Back Carter, Three's Company, and MASH. And I could go on and on, but like I think every television show that's gone more than a few seasons has always had a Christmas Carol storyline do you think they sit down in the meeting and they're like hey, it's time it's time to do the christmas carol story i think they go uh it's time to do the holiday show and uh after about 15 minutes if they can't come up with anything they go a christmas carol yeah it's either that or the christmas repeating those are the two right after groundhog day yeah they went right to christmas repeating well because you know this the saying why can't every day be christmas is it bad that sometimes when i watch the uh hallmark or ABC Family Channel movies, I think that this is going to be a repeating Christmas movie, and it's not, but I expect it to be. You kind of just expect it from every movie now. What was a good one not too long ago? The one with Jay Moore. That one was good. Oh, that is a good one. I like him. And I watched Pete's Christmas this year. That one was pretty cute. 
And if it's not the time repeating movie for Christmas, uh, they redo It's a Wonderful Life, which is my favorite Christmas movie, probably. Yeah, I um, I get. Yeah, they do redo that one, don't they? Yeah, a lot. But it's a good story. Or they do a combination of all of them. (laughs) This episode of Quantum Leap was almost a combination of A Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, I can see that. But overall, I really like this episode and I'm going to add it to my yearly holiday movie television show list. Pretty soon you're going to have to start watching them like at Halloween to get to all of them by Christmas. As it is right now, December 1st, I'm like, okay, we're starting the holiday movies. Well, you know that they start in like November now, like on Hallmark Channel, they start way early, way before Thanksgiving. You just skip Thanksgiving. There's not really a lot of Thanksgiving movies, planes, trains and automobiles, maybe. But other than that, not so many. I don't feel like that is a Thanksgiving movie. I know you say that. It takes place on Thanksgiving and they're trying to get home for Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then the ending, they have Thanksgiving. Other than that, it's got nothing to do with Thanksgiving. (laughs) But I mean, like when I think of Thanksgiving, I'm not like, oh, yeah, planes, trains and automobiles. Spider-Man part one. That takes place on Thanksgiving, but that's not really a a holiday movie. But other than that, you go right to the Christmas movies, the holiday movies. The You got to start early because they make more and more every year. I know. What's some of your favorite Christmas television shows? Like every year I have to watch X-Files, The Ghost Who's Told Christmas. I don't think I have a favorite. Well, you can watch the one I watch, so. I, I have now for the last couple of years watched that one, which is good. At least I know the whole story now. <laughs> of that one episode. Of that one episode. Well, now add Quantum Leap, a little miracle to that list. I've seen a 10% of X-Files and that one episode <laughs> a whole bunch of times. Hey, this is MC from the Hater Nation Show podcast, thehaternationshow.com, wishing all the Quantum Leap podcast listeners a happy holidays. Due to the nonlinear nature of this episode, we're not going to do any listener feedback just because it would be out of place. If we had feedback from the future in the past, that could be dangerous. Or if we had feedback from the past in the future, that could be boring. At the end of this episode, there is what I like to call the credits. (laughs) At the end of this episode, when Al is showing Michael Blake his future and projecting all these images... Finally, what gets him to go into the mission at the end is that shining star with the beam of light to the front door of the Salvation Army. And he goes in. And of course, we all assume that it's uh, Al and Ziggy in cahoots. But then when uh, Sam says that star was a nice touch, Al was like, "Uh, that wasn't me. That's what I like to call the cane in the corner moment. The what? The cane in the corner moment, like uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Where at the end, it's like, ah, supernatural. Like every Christmas movie, TV show has to have that little moment at the end. Like in the uh, Lucy Christmas special, they all dress up like Santa Claus to surprise little Ricky. But there's only four of them and there's five Santas. So that's the cane in the corner moment. What exactly is the cane in the corner? At At the end of Miracle on 34th Street, when the little girl gets the house she wanted... And it's theirs. How did they get it? Ah, Santa Claus's cane is in the corner. Okay, Okay, yeah. So every Christmas movie, I think, to do with Santa Claus anyway, or something like that, has that. Is that like when they do the Christmas carol, they're always sleeping? Like they they go to sleep first, they either fall and hit their head, or they go to sleep and then they see the three ghosts? I think that's a different moment. But it's kind of like leaves it up to question whether it really happened or if they dreamed it. But every holiday Christmas TV show movie has that little moment that you don't really believe 
what's going on is really happening until that little cane in the corner moment. So that's my cane in the corner moment for this episode of Quantum Leap. The, even though I think I'm pretty sure that Ziggy threw in the star and the uh, spotlight just to get the job done and let Sam get out of there. On a different note, this might open a whole other can of worms, but why don't the parents believe in Santa Claus in the Santa Claus movies? Because they're the ones buying the gifts until that cane in the corner moment where, where did that gift come from? <laughs> But like, if there are gifts from Santa under the tree every year and the parents didn't buy them, I mean, like that's what always got me when I was a kid. I'm like, but the parents don't believe, but the parents are the ones, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. That was totally off topic, but it was just something that Christmas movies have in them. Can you tell we like the holidays? Favorite time of the year. Uh, I thought it was a nice sweet moment at the end where uh, Al and Sam say Merry Christmas to each other and it snows. And then they sing after the credits, right? Yeah, they sing during the credits. Uh, they sing a Christmas carol. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and uh, they, then they say, Merry Christmas, everybody. I like when they do that. Yeah, it's not like a Tiny Tim thing. Bless us all, everyone. Something like that. Mary Lou Retton makes an awesome Tiny Tim, by the way. I don't know how that is. So then Sam leaps onto a boat. That seems like a good episode that we'll get to either next week or in about a year and a half. <laughs> Or a year and a half ago. Oh, no, it's the next one after this one. Oh, okay. Well, you know what I mean. So whatever holiday you celebrate, we wish you a merry one. We wish you a happy all of the holidays. Every single one. Yes, enjoy them all. The more the merrier. The whole month of December. Enjoy the entire month. And into January because that's when my birthday is. I think I'll still be watching holiday movies in January because there's no way I'm going to watch them all. Even if you start now, you have we don't have enough time. Tebow's full. Why don't we make the whole year a holiday movie year? Because then it... Oh, I see what you did there. What did I do? You know, the whole, I wish every day was Christmas thing before the you relive Christmas every day. That's a great idea. The Tebow's full of holiday movies. Uh, so is my DVD Blu-ray shelf. And uh, we just leave the tree up and the pole up and watch the movies. Leave the pole up. Happy festivals. <laughs> and nature sing Joy to the world The Savior reigns Let men their songs employ While fields and floods Rocks, hills and plains Repeat the sounding joy Repeat the sounding joy Repeat the sounding joy He rules the world and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his wonders of his wonders of his wonders of his wonders wonders of his love okay okay we're back it's me and Suzanne hi we're back again hello hey so as i promised uh we are here now with our interview with Jarrett Lennon so, Suzanne, are you ready? Are you ready for this interview with Jarrett Lennon? Yeah, can't wait. Take it away, Chris.
Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Jarrett. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Well, you played a tiny boy in the Quantum Leap episode, A Little Miracle. So can you tell us about yourself and how did you get into the world of child acting and how did it lead to that role of tiny boy? <laughs> yeah, that was one of my most uh, descriptive character names. <laughs> uh, most of my characters actually had full names, but uh, this was clearly a, a tiny Tim-esque character. And I think they were playing off of that with the name. Yeah, my uh, my acting career started very young. I uh, My first job was when I was uh, four and a half years old. My mother, at least the the version of the story that she's always told is is that a lot of people always said that I would be great at acting. I had the the natural uh, personality for it and and charisma. And she she supposedly didn't want to put me in it. She didn't want to be a stage mother. She didn't want to exploit me that way. But people kept trying to tell her. And she was working with Ed Asner at the time on some sort of uh, food program for Africa. And he specifically said, no, seriously, he'd be great at it. Plus, it would pay for his medical bills because I had some some medical problems at the time that were kind of eating us up. And so that was kind of his suggestion of, hey, it would it would really help with those costs. So uh, so she she took me to an agent who said, all right, yeah, I mean, you know, the kid's cute. Sure. Uh, we'll send him out on an audition. And I I auditioned for a commercial for my first Transformers, um, which are just like the preschool version of Transformers toys. And I, I got the, the commercial. I booked it and they said, OK, yeah, that that's good, but probably a fluke. Let's let's send him out on something else. So I auditioned for a, a miniseries in New York uh, starring Lee, Lee Reddick. Um, and I booked that. So my very first two auditions, I booked right off the bat. Uh, and at that point, it, it was it was a sealed deal. So uh, I uh, I started working pretty steadily from there. And gosh, I don't even remember where this was exactly in my age timeline, but uh, uh, it was it was a decent way in. Yeah. And I was wondering, how old were you when you landed the role on Quantum Leap? Because you looked genuinely like five, six years old. I know they always cast older to play younger, but you didn't look older. And that's part of why I, I worked out so well, relatively speaking, for for the work is I always looked much younger than my actual age. Let's see. OK, so that was uh, that episode was 1990. So I would have been eight years old. Wow. OK. OK. And tell us how you got the gig at Quantum Leap. Uh, that's a good question. And honestly, I couldn't answer that at this point <laughs> anymore. I mean, there wouldn't be any special reasoning behind it. Uh, I auditioned for a lot of jobs constantly, and I booked a pretty decent amount when I was young. I worked really steadily. So this would have been a case of agent got the uh, the breakdown for it, submitted me. They were interested. I read for it. And then I... Uh, they liked me enough to give me the job. So it's a pretty small role. So I can't imagine that I had a lot of auditions. Uh, there probably would have been the first audition and a single callback for director and producers. And then that would have been it. Uh, it. They wouldn't have required much more than that for this role. Can you tell us a little bit more about your time on set? I know you got to do a scene with Charles Rocket and Melinda McGraw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember really enjoying this one. Uh, this would have been on the Universal lot, if I remember correctly. And I, I'd worked there a lot and continued to work there a lot. And the cast of this was really great. I mean, the two of them were, were lovely. I obviously most directly worked with Charles Rocket, both in the Christmas Carol singing scene, uh, helping him with uh, with the uh, dialogue for this or the, the lyrics for the song and then sitting on his lap later on. And yeah, he was he was a joy to work with. I know my mother had been a fan of his from years earlier, so she was really excited to get to work with him and, and told me how cool he was. And I I enjoyed the experience. He was a, a lovely person. You can tell a lot about people based on how they interact with kids on the set. There's definitely some who will keep their distance. Um, 
and in fairness, that's that's not unfair because I know kids on a, on a set are a real problems sometimes. Uh, it's something I was always credited for was that I was one of the easier kids to work with. But uh, there's kind of this uh, this saying among the crew, uh, kids and dogs, you, you never want to work with them. <laughs> it's funny you because I was going to ask you about this a little later in the interview, uh, because I've been reviewing your work. And it seems to me when you see child actors on screen, mm-hmm. they're either so focused on their lines that they're not looking at anything, or they seem distracted because they're looking for a cue from off screen. But you seem to be so natural with not only dialogue, but improvising stuff. And you just seemed like a natural on screen in, in just about everything you did. And was that an anomaly for children actors at the time? I, I have to think it was. Uh, that's my understanding of it. Yeah, because I was always regularly called out for being, quote, a natural, which was which was I mean, I didn't have a lot of perspective on that at the time, but that was what I was always told. In fact, my first agent specifically uh, instructed us not to get me acting classes. So I didn't take any sorts of classes till I was uh, a teenager just because I, I kind of held on to that perspective and people seemed happy with what I did. I don't know what it was. I can't say where that came from. But frankly, rewatching this episode, which I did before the interview uh, a couple days ago, uh, I, I did not enjoy my performance. In really? That I felt like it was. Yeah, uh, I was watching my eyes when I was sitting on uh, sitting on Charles Rocket's lap as they were going back and forth between him and, and whatever was going on. And it was like I was really hamming that up. And <laughs> I was shocked by the performance. That is funny because that's the one thing that struck me is the subtlety of your performance. A lot of child actors, again, go big. Yeah, because they're on screen and acting. You seem to be so naturalistic and kind of down to earth and just talking to this guy. You know what I mean? About your rocking horse. Well, thank you. It's what struck me about the performance. Now, if we can stay on Quantum Leap just a little bit, did you get to interact with Scott Bakula or Dean Stockwell on the set? Do you have any memories of working with them? Yeah, uh, nothing incredibly specific, sadly. But I do remember having a conversation with Scott Bakula, uh, and he was also very nice to me. He and I didn't uh, work as directly together. uh, I don't think we were in the same shot together. But I definitely did chat with him because I was a fan of the show. I I mean, it was exciting for me because I, I, you know, I had seen it from the pilot episode on. I watched every episode of that series, and it's first run. Uh, so getting to be there, see that, see that the hand link in person, you know, mm-hmm. all these things that was that was really, really exciting for me. Uh, so I did get to have a, a, a conversation with him. And I remember him being very kind. Uh, another example of that. Uh, Dean, I don't think I got to talk to. He was he was off in his own place. He was I remember him being very uh if I remember correctly on the set, he was very professional. So he was off preparing or doing other things related to the job. He was not necessarily hanging out the way other people might have been. I don't remember if that's exactly true or if that's just the way my brain's held onto that memory. But that's that's what I picture. Ah, OK. Yeah, and uh, that's fine. That's not uncommon from what we've heard about Dean in other interviews, because he usually only had to interact with Scott. Right. So a lot of the times it was rare if you were a guest star to really interact with him on set because there was no reason to. But everybody says he was just a stand up guy and a gentleman. Yeah, I certainly have absolutely no negatives about him. Um, I think I might have briefly said hello to him and he was he was polite and nice. So, but yeah, I I didn't get to actually spend time with him as I did the other actors. I got you. Now you had such an authentic look as an orphan boy on quantum. (laughs) I really, I have to ask tooth and all (laughs) right. (laughs) Did central casting have you on speed dial for whenever they needed a, like a lovable Moppet? (laughs) 
it's funny. It's not the only time I played the Tiny Tim character. I, I ended up doing a, I did a Pillsbury commercial years later. Uh, I'm not sure how many years later, maybe two. Uh, but I did a Pillsbury commercial that was a Christmas commercial. And it was clearly, you know, a, a Christmas carol was the theme of that commercial. And I was, I, I think I even had literally the God bless us everyone line you in did. it. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I've I've definitely I've definitely done that. Uh, uh, yeah, that seemed to be a thing. I know I played a, a a homeless child a few times, so I definitely fit into that well. I tended to play. Uh, I think when I was a kid, I fell into a few stereotypes. There was that. There was the uh, uh, young Italians, young young Jewish kids, <laughs> and geniuses. It's just those those seem to be my uh, my things. But yeah, and that role was so funny too because. I was missing that front tooth. And normally in any job, when you're a kid and, and, and you lose a tooth, you get fitted for what's called a flipper, which is uh, it's an insert that uh, it's a fake tooth that that inserts locks into place and, and looks like you're not missing a tooth. And literally, like when your tooth falls out, you're immediately on the phone scheduling for the dentist, which uh, Dr. Smith was the dentist that I think all of us kids use at the time. Um, we'd all go see Dr. Smith immediately get fitted for it. Uh, sometimes you get fitted for it ahead of time before the tooth would fall out. Once it was loose, you'd have an appointment. So they take a mold of the tooth and then you'd get that in there and you'd wear that on set. So this was a rare opportunity where I, I was filming without the flipper in. Well, it did add to the authenticity. So it worked. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Well, I mean, speaking of those other roles, I mean, from Quantum Leap, you went on to appear in just a ton of TV shows and movies, including an episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, mm -hmm. with fellow QL alum Terry Hatcher. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that that was a really fun experience for a lot of reasons. For one thing, there's an extra connection in that uh, Michael Watkins directed both the Quantum Leap episode and that Lois and Clark episode. And it's huh. it's possible that there may have been a factor there in me getting the Lois and Clark role because directors do like to request actors or they do obviously connect, reconnect with people that they already worked with before and like them. So there may have been a trust factor there. But yeah, that one, uh, I was a much larger role in that episode. So I have more specific memories of it. Uh, that was on, uh, I think that was the Warner Brothers lot that we did that one on. It should have been. Uh, and yeah, the entire cast of that, the entire crew of that was just absolutely fantastic to work with. Terry Hatcher uh, was lovely. Uh, she was she was very kind and nice to chat with. Dean Kane, I spent a ton of time with. In fact, to the point where several times over the years after that, I would run into him in situations, and uh, he were, he would remember me by name. Uh, I ran into him on the, the lot a few years later when they were still doing the show, and then he called over Terry, and I, I chatted with both of them, and then I ran into him when he was I think when he was filming uh, whatever whatever the speed film was that he start in i think it was probably speed three that went straight to dvd uh i ran into him when he was filming that uh not too far from my home at the time but yeah that was that was a really fun one we got to film in a lot of cool locations there was this gorgeous massive mansion with this huge expansive uh yard yeah i was gonna ask you about that that set was beautiful yeah. that that house that you yes in, oh. right in the, in the tease that's where that that's where you first appeared on the show and yep i mean what tell me tell me about working there where was that i'm trying to remember because i think i've seen that a few times since but gosh it's been so long i, I know i've seen it in shows since then uh i have no perspective on it because it's it's ridiculous the amount of land that they have there was 
uh, I mean, it, it blows my mind. I'm sure I'm sure in my head picturing it now, it's even bigger than it was in, in real life. Right, uh, right. But yeah. And yeah, we got to go around and inside the house a little bit, too, because they filmed uh, around it. And and yeah, it was just that was a mind blowing, mind blowing experience. Yeah. If you have to do a location shoot, that's a place to do it. Right? <laughs> yep. Yep. And then we had this whole uh, carnival scene that was on the back lot of Warner Brothers. They had this whole beautiful shutdown carnival that we filmed in that was crazy uh and then of course we had the really cool uh, uh magic set where the the thrust of the episode or at least the uh, the ending tension occurs right i enjoyed your performance in that and i saw that you got to work with dean very physically because he had to pick you up and kidnap you basically so, <laughs> yes yes <laughs> so there's i guess uh, there's a reason why he remembered you all those years later right <laughs> that's right yeah i forgot about that i think we had a, a, har- a whole harness for that and everything too to make sure it was really easy for him oh, to did pick you? me up yeah i think they had something on me that uh, uh, there was a handhold. So he was able to reach around behind me, grab onto that handhold and grab me so that it was a really natural, quick, easy one-handed grab. And I think they might have even maybe pulled me up using some sort of external apparatus too to just make it look effortless on his part. Yeah, well, it would stand to reason, right? Man of Steel. Yep. Well, I know a lot of people are geeks about Superman and genre stuff, but I have to admit to you that I am a huge Frasier fan. I'm a Frasier geek. (laughs) And you got to appear... In three episodes of Cheers as Carla's son, Ludlow, like you said, playing playing young Italians. But mm-hmm. in, in one of those episodes, you got to work extensively with both Kelsey Grammer and B.B. Newworth playing Frasier and Lilith. Yeah. God, what was that like? Oh, that was spectacular. Uh, it's I mean, that that's a career highlight for so many reasons. I mean, to this day, you tell anyone you, you did Cheers and you, you get two reactions. One is you get the awe because I mean, everybody loves Cheers. You know, it, it's still in reruns constantly. Uh, but also you get that that confusion of, wait, that took place in a bar and you had to have right. been a kid at the time. <laughs> what? <laughs> How does that make sense? Uh, and yeah, that was just it, it was. Yeah. Since I played Carla's son, which a little bit a, a backstory on the character she in the second season of the show i believe it was the second season she had an affair with a psychologist a very famous uh, very intelligent psychologist and then we'd never hear anything about that again it was a one episode deal if i remember correctly and then you know many years later like six or six years later uh, i show up and it turns out i was the result of that so i'm her uh, one of her eight children uh, which she was famous for having right. four yeah one is one is in prison the rest are live with her and that my quirk was that, yeah, I'm a genius, which she does not know how to deal with. She can't, she can't take me to, to, to play baseball or, you know, w- w- all the, all the types of things that are the Tortelli family standards of how you interact with a kid don't work on me. They don't make sense to me. They're not my interests. And she doesn't get what I'm into. She doesn't get this opera stuff. Right. Uh, and so, but immediately, obviously Frazier and Lilith are deeply intrigued and, uh, immediately take me under their wing, start taking me out to take to the opera, to museums, to everything they love. And I'm just, I'm excited and into it. And Carla has no idea what to do with herself anymore because she's lost her kid to them. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's, that's the backstory of, of the character. As far as my experience on it goes, uh, it's hard to think of a more enjoyable job in my entire career. There's not a single bad person on that set from top to bottom. I mean, the director, James Burroughs, is a sitcom legend and an exceptional director because the thing is, he knows his cast and crew so exceptionally well that he knows how to trust them. And so every rehearsal, literally every rehearsal, 
went exceptionally poorly because that <laughs> cast knows themselves. Yeah, that's the thing. The rehearsals are terrible because the cast knows themselves and one another. And so all they do is goof off instead of actually taking it seriously. There was one day where uh, for an entire scene, BB just sang all of her dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like the, it, there were, there were pranks being played all the time, practical jokes all the time. I, there was a time that uh, I think, uh, I think Woody Harrelson uh, locked Ted Danson out on the balcony uh, because it, w- the the green room there was upstairs behind the audience and big green room, you know, had a foosball table and all sorts of things. Really nice. And there's a balcony there and the, the tours would come by. This was on the Paramount lot. And, you know, the, the, the tours would come by. And if one of the actors was up there, they'd, they'd, you know, they'd wave at them. And so one of the tours comes around, Ted Danson's out there uh, and Woody Harrelson sneaks up behind him pantses him and then locks him out there <laughs> and this yeah this was just the, the the norm there no one considered this remotely unusual and so it was scary at first for us because it was my first time doing the job i was also a big fan of that show i'd been watching it uh as a kid and uh so it was really exciting but we're looking at all of these goofballs not at doing their jobs and thinking oh my god this is going to be a disaster but everything came together so well on shoot night. That's the moment where everyone goes, yeah, okay, now we do our jobs and they do them perfectly. And it's, it's so uh, orchestral. It's so perfectly formed and they're all such professional people. And yeah, I mean, James Burroughs, just to go back to him for a second, he and his, uh, his script supervisor um, are an incredible team. And many years later, I was probably, I don't know, I was probably about 25 at the time. Uh, I went to see a taping of a show uh, that he was directing at the time. And afterwards, you know, I had been out of this for a while. You know, I, at that time, I had I had just started to ramp down my my acting career. Um, but I went up to the front of the the audience section at the very end and, and stood there and hoped to chat with him. And he, he came over and I said hello. And I reminded him that I had, you know, played Ludlow on Cheers. And he lit up and he said, oh, hold on a second. Uh, uh, come with me. And so he walks me over to his script supervisor, who's far enough away that she definitely didn't hear the conversation. And he says to her, uh, do you see this, this gentleman here? Do you do you know who he is? And she looks at me for about three seconds and then says, why, yes, that was Carla's son Ludlow on Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's funny because, I mean, you reprised your role as Ludlow in two more episodes, but it was like a couple of seasons later. Right. I, yeah. And this is going back when character continuity wasn't such a big thing on TV, especially on sitcoms. Mm-hmm. So was did you find that um, a remarkable occurrence to, to get called back so many seasons later? Oh, absolutely. That was wonderful, especially, again, for a show that's really hard to justify having a kid on the show in any way. But then, yeah, I ended up doing, yeah, two more episodes. The second one um, uh, was, if I remember correctly, yeah, the second one would have been when we were being babysat by uh, Sam and uh, uh, um, Rebecca, Kirstie Alley's character. Rebecca, thank you. I remember the actress, not the role. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that was, uh, which was, uh, that was a fun one, although it it was a little bit less focused on me, which of course was fine. That was actually really fun to get to see me interacting with the whole horde, the whole family. That was a, a, a strange environment and we actually had a we had a fun moment on that set uh when during rehearsal uh during one of the scenes i walk out of a a hallway to uh to interact with uh rebecca and during the rehearsal i walk out and she's sitting on some guy's lap 
And so we continued the whole rehearsal. But for some reason, there's just some guy whose lap (laughs) she's sitting on. And uh, again, my age and my lack of perspective, I had no idea that that was John Travolta whose lap she was sitting on. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. So there's those sorts of random things. Uh, And and of course, uh, Leah Remini was in that episode who was she was spectacular to work with. I think, of course, she's very much in the news lately. And I'm I'm very excited for her and and what she's doing and, and the efforts she's making. So that was fun. And then, yeah, the third episode was a much smaller role. And they actually had planned to have me in one more episode. I was on a veil for it. So they had me on hold ready to do it, uh, which was uh, it would have been Leah Remini's character's wedding. Hmm. Uh, but it came down to they, they couldn't come up with a uh, it, it was going to be such a busy episode that they couldn't come up with a good enough use for me. And so it just seemed a waste. So I ended up not doing that. So I would have been in four, which I think that would have been in the last season of the show. Shortly after your last role in Cheers, um, you appeared in a big film, a major motion picture by Robert Altman called Shortcuts. Yes. And in that, you played Chad Weathers, who was the son of a character played by Francis McDormand and another character played by Peter Gallagher. Now, there were, I don't know, a million big names in this movie. Oh, yes. And uh, you also got to work with, you know, Tim Robbins. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also had something of a quantum leap reunion there did you not yes yes i did yeah this was uh, another funny little connection because of course this world is very very tightly knit uh yeah in that one uh my character's mother francis mcdormand has broken up with uh peter gallagher's uh, character stormy weathers was his name he was a uh, a weather reporter uh so of course he had an appropriate name and so there it was a contentious uh, uh divorce and he he still wasn't fully accepting of the breakup and and was pretty jealous and so she was she was uh seeing Tim Robbins character who was cheating on his wife with her so of course this is all just deeply interconnected so so she's having this relationship with this married cop played by Tim Robbins and meanwhile, she's also cheating on him with some unknown factor. And there's this 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 whole interaction we have in a, a restaurant. Uh, Lily Lily Tomlin's character is there, and she's trying to cover for the fact that she's going to be out of town and, and making up this fake uh, sister that she's got that she's going to go visit. And eventually, we actually see uh, the the guy she's she's connecting with. We uh, we had a a scene where he he drives us uh, out of town for the weekend, and it's Charles Rocket who, of course, uh, played uh, our lead role in uh, A Little Miracle. Did Charles remember you? Uh, he did. Yes. Yes. And uh, it was once again, a lovely experience working with him. He was uh, he was just such an incredibly nice guy. And uh, unfortunately, as I'm sure, you know, he uh, he we lost him some years back. And that was that was very disappointing. Yeah, he, was, he was an exceptional person. Yeah. yeah. Talented, yeah. talented guy. Now, Deeply. I, I just have to ask, I mean, at that point, I know you're still young, probably about eight or nine years old, but you're in a room with Francis McDormand, Tim Robbins, Lily Tomlin. Mm-hmm. Did it make any impression on you at that time, the caliber of people that you were sharing the scene with? Was it somewhat surreal or was it just another day's work? It's always a, a mixture because uh, when you're doing this, and especially for me having done it as long as I did and being in it, you do almost immediately see all these people as just coworkers. It very quickly shifts, but it's always it's interesting which ones will will kind of uh, uh, blow your mind. Uh, like on that one, I didn't specifically know Francis McDormand or Tim Robbins that well before it. I I knew that they were major people, but I didn't have as much direct experience with them outside of just working with them. So they were immediately just people 
I was working with uh, and really enjoying. They were spectacular. Lily Tomlin, I definitely knew of before that. I knew from a lot of her, her sketch comedy work. Uh, so that was a little bit more of a, a mind blow. <laughs> Strangely, the one that was the most exciting to me and had me the most nervous, and I didn't get to work with him directly, but I asked Robert if I could come to the set when he was filming and get to meet him, and, and I got a special opportunity, was Lyle Lovett. Uh, Lyle Lovett was in that film, which was the craziest thing, because, of course, he's not an actor. And, and honestly, frankly, he's not even a very good actor. But his delivery in that and the player, because he's not an actor, is so much better. Uh, and so he works so well in those roles. But I, I was a huge fan of his music. So I got to go to the set uh, on an off day when he was filming at, at the bakery. And I got to meet him and got him to sign a, a copy of, of one of his albums for me. And that was that was really mind blowing. But yeah, the rest of the, the cast, I mean, that movie is a ridiculous powerhouse collection. Like all of Robert Altman's films, it's just actor after actor after actor. And they beg to be in his movies. He, he pays everyone at the same level. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, and people will still beg to be in his films, or or did. Yeah, well, he was one of the last great auteurs, and I can't say that I was a fan of every one of his movies. I found them plotting sometimes. But oh, sure. It'd probably been a good 15 years since I saw Shortcuts, and I always found that one very intriguing. And I just want to thank you, because in revisiting it to watch your role, I, I realized what what an incredibly intricate and complex movie it is. There, it, It's funny, and it's tragic, and Tim Robbins is a lunatic, and it was a really nice experience to rewatch it. And one thing I noticed about your scenes specifically is that you were always, you always had some kind of on-screen business and you were very chatty. Was that scripted? <laughs> yes. Did Altman ask you to improvise that? How did that go down? Working with him is fascinating because his entire method was to keep everyone on their toes and, and natural. So for me, for instance, specifically, yes, literally all of my dialogue was improvised or ad-libbed to the point where he actually had requested of my mother that I not be allowed to read the script. He did not want me to be influenced by what had been pre-written. He wanted to make sure that every day on the set, I was just myself. Uh, my, my audition with him was merely a conversation. This was one of the more unusual uh, auditions I ever had. Uh, we met at his his offices, and it was it was a group of kids that were brought into the room together. There was probably five or six of us lined up in a in a row, and he he just kind of walked down the line and chatted with each of us, asked us a, a few questions about ourselves, and. Earlier that day, uh, my mother had taken me to uh, an art gallery where they were they were displaying some uh, some trompe l'oeil art, which is an art style that it, it's it's a flat painting, but it's so exceptionally detailed and perspective is so well used that it kind of tricks your brain into seeing it as a three dimensional object. Uh, and so I brought that up to him, and I, I think I, I I think I said to him uh, yeah, that it's, it's trompe l'oeil, which is French, <laughs> and he laughed and said, uh, "I know, I have a home in France." <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and, and so we he and I ended up chatting for several minutes, kind of awkwardly, while these other kids are just standing around next to us. Uh, and then he finally finishes with me and chats with the other ones. And uh, yeah, I, I I think I got the job the same day. There was no other audition. There was nothing else at that point. All he cared about is, is this a person I can communicate with and have a rapport with? And that's all he ever cared about is, is just people he could talk to and he, he trust 
to carry on a conversation. And so our rehearsals were were very interesting in that it was kind of we were rehearsing the gist of the scene, but it was never ever done the same way twice. And that wasn't expected. And the filming process. Yeah, I, I knew what was expected of me. I knew we had to get from point A to point B to point C. But how we got there was up to the whims of the people doing it. And he always lived to to screw with his actors to get natural reactions out of them. Years later, after after he passed away, I got to go to his uh, his L.A. memorial service and the kind of stories that actors were telling on stage of the way that he would just, uh, you know, they, they knew what they were doing. And then as the camera would roll, he'd walk on the stage and give them some sort of instruction that would completely destroy all of their expectations and then just walk off and call action. And, and suddenly <laughs> they're, they're yeah, <laughs> they're dealing with the aftermath of it. Or or he would he would do things like he would have actors who had no idea that they were being screwed with. I mean, uh, I think uh, it was Mr. T and the oh, I'm sorry, not Mr. T, <laughs> Dr. T and the women uh, that uh, he had a main a main scene with two of the main characters. There was a lot of pre-written dialogue. And there was another actress who was just supposed to be sitting in the background, not doing anything. It was her first day on the set, um, and major role. But in this scene, all she is is background. And as they called rolling, he walked up to her and said, when I call action, I want you to start talking and never let them get a word out. Oh, God. And yeah, there's a whole scripted scene that he's just decided in that moment, you know what? We don't need this to work. We need something to completely disrupt it. And that was his style. And 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 Shortcuts was a three hour and 19 minute movie that was just a nonstop collection of all the things that he randomly made happen and then figured out how to stitch together. It was all based off a script that he and, and Frank Barheit wrote together. Um, it was, so it, it came out of something, you know, something real. There was a, a plan there. It was based off of a series of, of short stories um, off the top of my head. I'm suddenly forgetting the name of the uh, the, the, the author who wrote the stories. But uh, they, yeah, they wanted to stitch all of those together. And so they wrote the script uh, and there was absolutely a real physical script. But from then on, it was a case of what do we do with these people and how do we make them interesting in every possible way. And so so most of what was filmed was not remotely scripted. All of the actors were relied on to improvise and ad lib and and respected to do so. And if I remember correctly, uh, when when Robert uh, finished his first edit of the film and realized he needed to bring in outside help editing it, uh, he had brought the length of the movie down to 18 hours. Oh God! <laughs> and so, so he ended up he ended up needing help, and eventually got down to the three hours and uh, three hours and nine minutes. That's what it was—the three hours and nine minutes that that hit the theater. I think I feel like there might have even been an intermission when we saw it in the theater. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, but in those days, it was a little bit more unusual to have three-hour films. Uh, I think after that, we ended up with a, a bunch more things like Casino and Heat and stuff like that. But at that time, that was that was really unusual. But I think it paid off. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting movie. At times funny, at times tragic, at times just manic. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 really an interesting watch. And to be able to work with such an acclaimed director, mm. I'm sure that, that that was a treat. But shortly after that, you got to work on an acclaimed drama, the nineties teen drama Freaks and Geeks, <laughs> which again, powerhouse names. It helped launch the careers of people like Seth Rogen and James Franco and Linda Cardellini. And mm -hmm. the director was Judd Apatow, right? Yes. Yes. The director was Judd Apatow. Uh, and the creator, oh my God, the creator was, was Paul Feig. Marvel Paul Feig? 
Yes. Yeah. He created the show. And then and Judd Apatow was the executive producer. Uh, yeah. Uh, director. The the uh, although actually I'm sorry, the director of the first episode uh, was Jake Kasdan. So a son of, of Lawrence Kasdan, if I'm remembering that my uh, my lineage correctly. Um, so also uh, Lawrence Kasdan, The Empire Strikes Back, Lawrence Kasdan. Yes. And unless unless I'm I'm connecting threads wrong, but I remember his father was <laughs> uh, was <laughs> well known. And I'm pretty sure that's the only other uh, known Kasdan. So, uh, yeah, sometimes my uh, my brain loses those threads. Uh, but, yeah, uh, uh, so amazing director, amazing executive producer, amazing writer and creator of the show. Uh, and then the cast was ridiculous. And so I was on the, the geek side of that equation, which uh, most of the geeks I'd say, well, no, actually, the geeks have done very well for themselves themselves too because you've got uh john francis daly who played the lead role who he wrote the latest spider-man film uh he's turned into quite an acclaimed uh film writer uh and he starred in bones for many seasons uh and then you've got martin Starr, who it took him a little bit longer to finally uh get what he deserved out of the industry but you know he's of course on silicon valley um he was on the fantastic party down and he's had a, a bunch of uh, of good roles so it's exciting to see him do well and he was also in in spider-man homecoming he had a role that's there. right yes yes yeah. that's right he was the yeah he was the the coach of the uh the debate team so friends you're yeah right. Connections that go back, yeah. yeah and uh, my 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 friend on that, Sam Levine, I'd say he's probably the one who who's been passed over the most, sadly. And I think he's one of the most ridiculously talented people. He he's an amazing stand up comedian. He was the youngest ever member of the New York Friars Club, and he does. Uh, he's on uh, Kevin Pollock's chat show. He's a he's uh, his kind of sidekick on that. And uh, he was an inglorious bastard. So he's he hasn't done uh, badly for himself, but I'd say he has not gotten quite the level of success that I would have loved to have seen for him because he's a ridiculous talent. And then everyone on the freak side has gone on to ridiculous levels of success. I mean, they're they're basically running Hollywood. So, yeah, amazing experience, amazing opportunity. Uh, and and that was a weird one, because actually uh, how I got that job. Uh, would have been semi more normal. I, I, I read for originally I read for Neil uh, Sam Levine's role um, and I, I didn't get that, which, of course, that's that's typical. But then they eventually brought me back to, to read for a, a smaller character, the role of Harris. Now, Harris, as you may recall throughout the show, was the incredibly deadpan, uh, emotionless uh, senior senior geek who they, they all looked up to, uh, played by my friend uh, Stephen Lee Shepard. And what had happened was I read for that role. They loved me. It was it, it was great. I, I had callbacks. It was it, it felt like a sure thing. And then nothing ever happened. And then I got a call one night from my agent saying, hey, uh, we need you uh, on a veil for tomorrow morning. They're filming uh, the episode of Freaks and Geeks. They're filming the pilot and they, they loved you, but you're there. You're actually their second choice for the role. But the actor that they found, they found in, in Vancouver and they don't have his his work visa yet. And, and and so they may not be able to work with him in the morning if it doesn't come in in time. They're waiting for it to come through. And so what they, they need is they need you on set in in wardrobe, makeup, hair, everything ready. And if by I don't remember, maybe it was 9 a.m., 10 a.m., if by that time that hasn't come through, you're in. Wow. And and that was that was crazy. I had never done anything quite like that before. And it's that weird mix mixed moment of. Yay, I'm your second choice. <laughs> but then again, out of all, all of the actors who read for the role, second's pretty good. So, yes, yeah, so I, I went in uh, and it, it filmed pretty close to my home. It was in at, at my home at the time. It was in New Hall because New Hall's uh, New Hall, California. It's all part of Santa Clarita. 
And Santa Clarita has a lot of range to it in modernity. So some of the neighborhoods are quite old, which look perfect for the 80s of the 80s uh, of that show. So a lot was filmed out there. Uh, and so, yeah, I was out there in this this little neighborhood getting ready. And literally, we're all just standing around watching the clock tick away, waiting for this threshold. And finally, the time hits and they've got nothing. And it's like, all right, you tag in. And so I, I filmed uh, that was the fight scene that we had in that episode with uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Chauncey Leopardi, played the, the bully, uh, Alan, in that in that show. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm suddenly in in this this big fight scene. And they still loved uh, the other actor and wanted to use him. It's just that they had been held back by this. So what they did is they split the role in half. And so later on in the filming of that pilot, we filmed the the prior scene where where Harris was supposed to be introduced and instead introduced both of us. Colin was my character and Harris was his introduced both characters side by side. And then, you know, just had to make the plot make sense so that I'm the one who shows up for that later scene. I ended up doing two other episodes of the show, um, which were both fun and a little bit different from that. And, yeah, I got to be a part of television history, arguably the best canceled show of all time. So would you say that you were maybe one of the few or the only actors to have a role invented for him on the spot in a, a major <laughs> television series? Uh, it, it kind of feels like that. I, I'm sure I'm sure it's <laughs> happened in weird ways like that before. But yeah, that was definitely it was definitely a last minute creation. Uh, yeah, it's that's happened in weird ways. Probably not for me, but I mean, if we go back to Cheers, Cliff Clavin's character was created by him in the audition room. Because he, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the character of Cliff Clavin, I should say, John Ratzenberg's character, Cliff Clavin, he had read for Norm. And when he was leaving the the audition room, famously, he, he, he turned around and said to them, by the way, do you have the guy with keys on his belt? And, and they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, there's always there's always that guy. He's 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 so important that he's got to have keys dangling off of his belt. Uh, it's like, you know, that's always an interesting Barfly character that you should consider. And they loved him. Um, and they wrote that character specifically for him. Uh, so, yeah, the, those sorts of oddities happen in all of these things where where the person you uh, you didn't expect or that character that you love came out of the strangest origins. So you're in good company. Uh, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, what do you what are you doing these days? Uh, well, uh, the the last uh, the last paid job I had was uh, was Entourage back in 2005. At that point, I uh, I had kids who I needed to to focus on uh, more stable work because sadly the the acting gig is not reliable for for most of us, and that was a difficult time for me because I was transitioning into adult work, and that transition age kills a lot of actors. I mean, it just destroys their careers, uh, and a, a select few make that successfully. And I might have, but yeah, as I said, I needed to focus on taking care of them. So I, I, I will transition into other work, and I, I work full-time in, in IT support these days. Uh, I played a lot of nerds, and, and I became one. But yeah, <laughs> so that's what, that's what pays my bills on a regular basis, which is good. But I, I do a lot of more hobby acting now. I, uh, I was with a, a theater company for, for a few years which was uh, I hadn't done theater since I was very young. So it was interesting because most people kind of start with theater and work their way to screen. And I worked my way backwards, which is a really unusual transition to make, uh, but really fun and, and rewarding. And now a huge focus for me is improv. I started doing improv a few years ago. Ironically, especially given our conversation earlier about shortcuts and how that entire film was improvised, I spent years convinced that I couldn't do improv. Huh. Uh, it was just this this mental block that, oh, that's not a skill I have or could possibly have. 
And so I kind of I avoided it. And then a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine talked me into taking some classes at uh, I.O. West in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood. And I took the classes and I really enjoyed it. And I, I wasn't as terrible as I expected to be. And uh, eventually I, I co-founded uh, my current uh, team, the Feel Good, Not Bad Death Laser. And uh, what? We, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is our name. The Feel Good, Not Bad Death Laser. Uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic team made up of uh, we've got 11 amazing members. In fact, one of our team, you know, again, all these securities connections. One of our team members uh, works with Sam Levine on the Kevin Pollack uh, chat show. So uh, again, everybody's somehow connected to someone else. Uh, and yeah, so a few of us, uh, my friends, uh, Josh Spence and David Coe and I created this team together and then started bringing on ridiculously talented people. And so we've been doing this for, uh, Oh, about two years now. And, and we've been really successful. We've done, uh, 131 shows in two years, which is, which is actually pretty crazy. Um, most people don't get anywhere near that. And we had a really good, uh, we had a regular run at IOS for uh, for quite a while. And, and sadly, that theater just very suddenly closed uh, last month, leaving the whole community uh, uh, very, very depressed and, and in shock. But we're, we're all finding new homes again now and some new theaters are going to open up and fill in those those gaps. And it's going to be fun again. Is there some place that our listeners can find that online if they want to go see you? Yeah, you can go to thedeathlaser.com. We've also got the feel good, not bad deathlaser.com, but the deathlaser.com is a quicker address. A little more succinct, right? Yes, exactly. Or at the deathlaser on uh, on Twitter and Facebook. And so we keep a, we have events always up. We have a Google calendar on our website that tracks all of our, our shows. And then we're going to be, uh, we're going to be performing at the OC Improv Festival in Orange County on uh, April 7th. Uh, that's a, I think it's a three day uh, festival of improv. And we actually, uh, we get to close out the entire show that Saturday night. So in the, the 10 p.m. block, we're, we're teamed with some ridiculously uh, talented other teams, and uh, and I think we're going up last. So we're actually going to be closing out that festival, which is going to be really exciting. So so check that out. Well, that's great. So everybody, please go to thedeathlaser.com if you live in L.A. or in the California area and go see it. Uh, now, getting back, if we can, just to circle back to Quantum Leap a little bit. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about your time on the show or any message that you have for the Leapers listening out there? I just say that being a part of something so special, I mean, being brought on this podcast reminded me to rewatch my own episode, which when I watched it reminded me of just how much joy I got of that show when I watched it originally. And I was a kid at the time. Uh, and, and now I realize I really need to go back through the entire series. It was such an exceptional level of quality for the time. I mean, there's so much cheese that happened in the, in the 80s to 90s in drama and of course the show had those moments but it had so much heart it had such amazing chemistry between between Dean and, and Scott and that's rare so i think for people who are hardcore fans of this show there's a darn good reason that you are and i i, I wouldn't let go of that and i hope uh, i hope the uh, the the news of a potential movie is is true and comes through uh, I hope we have it continue in other forms. I hope the uh, the sad eventual reboot that's guaranteed of everything we loved uh, manages to mm -hmm. hold up to it whenever that happens. But uh, yeah, just just keep on with it. Uh, I'm here with you. I'm a fan too. Well, that's terrific to hear, Jared. And thank you so much for being here with us on the Quantum Leap podcast. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me.
So Suzanne, was I lying? Was he not terrific? That was awesome. <laughs> right? I told you. I mean, so interesting. <laughs> so funny. Just a real down-to-earth guy. Real Jarrett, thank you so much. We really love talking to you. Um, if you want to come on to A Little Miracle Phase 4, maybe Albie will have you hosted. I don't know. Just, you know, I have your phone number now, so nobody's safe. <laughs> anyway, I think that... Uh, Suzanne, do you think this wraps up our part of the show? Yeah. I mean, this is not, you know, there's much more to come. I mean, I, this is a giant Christmas mess. It's, there's singing, there's dancing. It, the, the sleigh <laughs> goes off, off the path, but it's so much fun. <laughs> and, uh, especially, uh, there's, there's something about hippopotamuses and Christmas and just radio dramas going on. So everybody hang around, <laughs> listen to that. And, uh, we just want to wish you the merriest of Christmases. And uh, Suzanne, tell the people. Should we end it with a little bit of our singing and dancing, too? You know? Oh, <laughs> put me on the spot. What are we going to sing? <laughs> I'm dreaming of, of a white Christmas, Christmas with every Christmas card. I like the way you think, because if it's one thing I like more than talking on mic, it's singing badly on mic. With every Christmas card I write. Take it away. Who travels through time, his holographic pal is heard but never seen. Well, now, in a holiday surprise, Holland McClure reveals that the show's own cardinal rule is about to be broken. In NBC's Quantum Leap, Scott Bakula is a scientist trapped in time travel. Each week, he leaps into another person's life. With guidance from his holographic sidekick, Albert, played by Dean Stockwell, Sam must correct history before leaping on. Leap may be based on a science fiction gimmick, but all of the stories are from the heart. For the holidays, the show will borrow a page from Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. Sam leaps into a valet's life to change the heartless ways of his Scrooge-like boss. Marking. Uh, Mr. Blake is unavailable right now. Mr. Blake is never available. Mr. Blake hasn't been available for the last 18 months. He returns all my mail, and I am not going to let him tear down the Fourth Street mission. I'm sure that he has no intention of demolishing the mission. We scrooge him, basically. We take him back to his old neighborhood. We show him his pictures from his family and all that, and try and soften this guy up. To become the ghost of Christmas future, the normally invisible Albert will be seen by this Scrooge, a callous land developer played by Charles Rocket. That's just saw you. How could I? I he actually saw did you. Did he call me a jerk? He didn't listen, though. We use this um, aberration or anomaly, whatever it is, to our advantage at the, at the end of the show so that we enable him to see me again. And I convince him that I'm a ghost and scare him into changing his ways. Now in its third season, Quantum Leap has a loyal following, including fan clubs with their own newsletter. I'm so glad you came by, Hayden. But uh, you guys, I'm just not feeling that great. So I think I'm going to go off to bed, if that's okay. I hope that's not too rude. Oh, it's all right, Albie. We understand. Um, yeah, um, we'll keep the party going and try not to be too loud. Oh, thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Merry to you Christmas. too. Hi, Albie. So, um, so Heather, uh, what are your um, thoughts on the episode, having seen this a second time now? Well, I think it's one of the better episodes, um, and I like the fact that Al is in completely different attire than we usually see him in. He's in this great big floral shirt, and he looks like he belongs <laughs> on the beach instead of in the imaging chamber. 
<laughs> oh, I'd love to be on the beach. I miss being on the beach at Christmas time. I've never been on the beach at Christmas time. <laughs> uh, you've got to come visit me in Australia. I keep telling you that. Maybe we can get a decent deal on, um, you know, house planes or something. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. I need my no, own artist. Um, I need. Yeah. No, I really enjoy the episode as well. It's definitely something that I pull out every Christmas. Uh, it's just such a lot of fun and seeing Al as the ghost of Christmas future is just hilarious. And one green ear and one red ear. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And um, yeah, his complexion is pretty much exactly the same as it is any other time. (laughs) (laughs) Al and green. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, yeah, it's a great episode. Uh, Always a lot of fun to watch. I love how they kind of do the ghost of Christmas past, ghost of Christmas present, and ghost of Christmas future through it as well, just like uh, Dickens. Um, who do you think repre- – obviously, Al represents the ghosts of Christmas future, but who do you think represents the, the past and the present ghosts? Um, I think the ghost of Christmas present is Sam um, because he's trying to, like, usher Blake through the episode and show him – you know, where his present course is taking him. Um, The ghost of Christmas past, I feel is the old friend that Blake runs into who's selling the chestnuts and um, then tells him that his friend passed away and everything. Cause at that particular scene, he starts to kind of soften a little bit because he remembers, Oh, I was one of these street urchins once, you know, I was poor once I, you know, lived out in the cold once and You know, he's right there at the mission and he's seeing all these kids that don't have a home and he's remembering the way that he grew up. And for an instant, you see this little bit of shame that bubbles up inside of him, but then his pride takes over and he pushes it away. And so, yeah, I feel that 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 particular moment and that particular person is the ghost of Christmas past because it is his past confronting him. So. That's really good. Completely different to what I had as well. I actually thought that Sam was the ghost of Christmas past because he's the one that found the photographs and he's also the one that drove Blake to um, his old neighbourhood and made it possible for him to see his old friend and all that. Uh, And I actually saw Captain Downey as the ghost of Christmas present because uh, she was kind of representing everything that Blake wanted at that point in time. That's a very interesting theory. I almost like that better. Yeah, but uh, yours is great as well. Uh, maybe um, Albie can be the, the <laughs> maybe Albie can be the deciding vote. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He can choose which one he likes best and stick it in. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I like how the episode opens where we see Sam as the servant that he has leapt into, and he's in an awkward situation he's having to dress this grown man who we see (laughs) only from the legs up and it's shown in a way that makes us the audience believe that he's nude and this man is forcing sam to put the talcum powder in his shorts and the man steps into them and then sam begins shifting the pants up and lowers his head saying oh boy oh boy is right this loser can't even flipping dress himself really (laughs) i don't know if you if you were rich would you want someone else dressing you that's the thing Uh, i don't think i would yeah (laughs) first of all they'd go blind (laughs) yeah yeah well you can Uh, never you can never stare directly at the sun can you no (laughs) 
And plus this, I mean, this, this character that, that Sam is working for Blake, he's, he's very obnoxious and ironically for the episode or perhaps purposely, he's an Ebenezer Scrooge type character that obviously enjoys making other people grovel all over him. He's one of the richest men in the country at the time. And so it, it's, it's fitting that together Sam and Al have to melt his icy heart. Yeah. Looking at the, the opening, the opening teaser to the episode, you'd never guess that it's going to be the Christmas one, would you? No, no, because it looks like, you know, it's going to be this everyday thing. And, and then we jump in and there's Christmas music and there's lights and it's like, Oh, (laughs) surprise. Do you think, do you think maybe if it was done today, they'd try and make it seem somewhat more Christmassy in the, in the teaser just to try and pull all those people in? I don't think so. No, I, I think, I think the way that culture is today, um, you know, the Christmassy things are, it feels like they're being downgraded from being so Christmassy. Maybe that's just me. Um, so I think, I think that today the episode would have fit in just fine for what television is doing today. Certain shows anyhow. Okay. I like how at the end of the episode where right before Sam and Al do their Dickens thing. They're in the fourth street mission and they're having cake and everybody's singing and everybody's happy. And you glimpse the softness in Blake for a few minutes and you think, Oh, Oh, we did it. And even Al is looking at Ziggy and going, we did it, Sam, we can leap. We can go home. We succeeded. He's broken. And you know, he's singing Christmas carols with people and enjoying himself. And then all of a sudden these kids walk in and you would think, oh, this would be the perfect opportunity. You know, these kids are coming in and they're going to show him just how miserable everything is. And they're the perfect reason for why the fourth street mission should stay open. And he has the complete opposite reaction. He gets really mad and he storms out of the place and he's telling Captain Downey, you did this deliberately. You're trying to make me melt. And, you know, he runs out of the place. And then. Did you realize that the reason for that is because um, they're the same kids that uh, he saw in the in the the street earlier? And they're the ones that uh, tried to remind him of his past. I did. I did notice that. that the one little yeah. boy with the flat cap that came in. Yeah. I recognized him. I was like, uh-huh. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say? Um, yes. Um, I also like the fact how at the end of the episode, Al is able to use the fact the annoying fact that even though Blake could see him and hear him in the beginning of the episode, he's able to use it to his advantage. And this is when he disguises himself as the ghost of Christmas future, Um, which I want to make a note. This character gets ripped apart a lot of the time for being over the top, but (laughs) Dean Stockwell did that deliberately. He meant to play him over the top. And you can tell that Dean as Al is enjoying himself completely. So personally, I don't think there's any problem with his performance being over the top and ridiculous. It was meant to be that way. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, if he, if he just pretended to be like a normal person, then he wouldn't believe he's a ghost, would he? Exactly. And the effect works because Blake is like 
so scared he's wetting himself the entire time, right? And yep. with the help of Ziggy, Al, as this over-the-top ghost of Christmas future, is able to show Blake his bleak future of loneliness, bankruptcy, and failure. And Al is able to eventually show Blake that not only will he lose everything if he continues on his present path of greed and unbridled lust for power, but he'll also be led by his own misery and destructive nature to commit suicide. And for a dramatic flavor, Al drives the horrible point home by showing Blake his own grave. And yeah. this cold and horrible truth of his heartless attitude causes Blake to finally break and he melts into a pool of tears. And yeah. that is where we come to the marvelous end of the episode where he realizes that he's a horrible person and he's able to change. And we see the star in the sky and Sam thinks that Al did it. And then we find out that Al didn't do it and that it was a genuine miracle. And I think that's one of the best endings for a Christmas episode for a TV show that anybody could have ever come up with. So Absolutely. well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, just in general, the whole A Christmas Carol story, it's pretty much the perfect story, isn't it? It's the perfect yes. story about how anyone has the has the chance of redemption. Anyone has the opportunity to try and make something better of themselves. Yeah, and uh, there's a reason. Yeah, and there's a reason why every single TV show in the world pretty much or every single genre in the world has – a, a Christmas Carol story for it. It's because yeah. it just is transcendent. It can apply to anything and anyone. Yeah. And it's timeless. I mean, Charles Dickens was way ahead of his time and it's proven itself with that story because it's come all of these, how many centuries later and we're still using it today. Yeah. Which reminds me, we should go and see the man who invented Christmas, which is the movie about Charles Dickens, which is out at the moment. Oh, that sounds good. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, it looks good. Tell me a little yeah. bit about it. I actually don't, <laughs> don't know that much about it. I've only seen the trailer once. Um, but <laughs> All right, I'll, I remember, I'll do the trailer later. <laughs> yeah, but I remember it looked good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, while we're on the subject too, uh, it's a bit of a sad topic, but uh, depression is a very big issue during the holiday season as well. Um, I mean, it's a horrible issue at any point in time, really, but especially in the holidays because it, seeing everyone so happy and seeing people with things that you don't have and all that, it can really build up. Um, just know that um, you're not alone. It is very um, – and it's not a sign of weakness if you're feeling depressed. It just means that you've been strong for far too long. It's nothing to be ashamed of as well. There really shouldn't be any stigma to any mental illness. It's caused by um, chemical imbalances in the brain. If you are feeling like you're worthless and feeling like you do need, um, like nothing's ever going to get better and that uh, you're not able to get any enjoyment in anything, please do go and see your doctor. They can um, give you some amazing tender loving medication to help get those serotonin levels back in um, balance. Things will get better. And please don't do anything stupid uh, because there is always going to be someone who will miss you if you weren't here. Yeah, exactly. And I would like to add to that by saying that if there's anybody who is proof that it does get better, it's me. 
a year ago, my life was not working out and I thought that it never, ever would until one day I decided that I was going to take, take steps to make it work. And I took those steps and my life has changed dramatically in the last three months. My life is nowhere near perfect yet, but it's getting there. And I have hope for the first time in my life and I'm 30. So, you know, it may take a while, but you will eventually get there. Just keep hanging in there and know that there are people out there who love you, who, as you said, would miss you if you weren't here and just keep fighting. It's worth it. That's it. Yeah. And I'm also one of the success stories. Um, I got post-operative depression after I had some cancer cut out of me. Um, Really horrible experience. um, And it doesn't help healing when you're feeling depressed either. Um, Nope. Yeah, definitely feeling like nothing was going to get better. And um, also not knowing if you were healthy or not, just waiting for the results. Don't see it as a sign of weakness, all right? If, um, I mean, <laughs> when you go through a massive trauma, it, it's obvious that you're not going to feel the best, all right? Yeah. Um, please do go and see your doctor. Um, they might just, they might think that therapy is the right way to go. They might think medication is the right way to go. But uh, do what needs to be done to try and make things better. Um, it's all right to not, to not be able to do this on your own and talk to someone yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we need to be able to reach out to other people. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us. It just means that it's not something that we can handle by ourselves. That's all Absolutely. it means. So don't be afraid yeah. to get. All right. Well, let's get off that horrible topic. <laughs> yes, please. Let's get this party started. <laughs>
Merry Christmas. Thanks. And like any good invisible hologram, we see you when you're quantum deeping. Quantum Leap Comics, published by Innovation Comics, are a fun way that the Quantum Leap universe has been expanded. This is the perfect opportunity to look back on issue number three. The cover art, featuring an annoyed-looking Sam Beckett atop Santa Claus's chair, with a young boy on his lap and a line of impatient, screaming kids nearby, is absolutely gorgeous. I especially love Al, next to Santa's chair, being surrounded by a white glow, making him look angelic. See Winston Taylor really outdid himself on this cover, being able to get so much expression into one picture. If the cover art didn't give it away, the first of the two stories in this issue is entitled, He Knows If You've Been Bad or Good, and see Sam leap into the aura of the Davenport Mall Santa a few days before Christmas in 1963. If you haven't read the comics before, you might be a bit surprised at the dramatic change in style between the cover and the first page of the main story. The artwork for the main story is nowhere near as lifelike as that of the cover. Not surprising since they were drawn by different people. And the artwork for the main story gives a cartoony vibe. This isn't a bad thing, though. One would expect something a bit more childish for a Christmas special. Cells which show people from a distance do not tend to have much detail in the faces, but it is to the credit of the illustrator, Andy Price, that a great deal of expression can still be seen in them. Close-up shots are far more detailed, and while he got Scott Bakula's facial features just right, it is a shame that he didn't quite get Dean Stockwell's. But that is more than made up for with the extremely cute Christmas-themed drawings on the borders of each page. My particular favourite are the stockings in the top and bottom left corners of page six, one for each member of the Project Quantum Leap crew, and filled with gifts very fitting for that character. It is a shame that the three on the top of the page were partially cut off, but if you want to see them complete, they were reprinted in issue six at the request of a reader. The Playboy and cigars in Al's stocking are almost enough to make up for Donna being given a book entitled Absent Husbands and Sam's stocking being left heartbreakingly empty. The story itself is very simple and follows the usual formula for a Christmas special. Sam's host, Nick, a man that Al and Ziggy are unable to get much information about, is a good friend of Mark, the assistant manager of the mall. Nick is also a frequent babysitter of his two children, Jesse and Shannon. Their mother died two years earlier and has resulted in Shannon becoming a cynical and depressed teenager. Mark has been working extremely long hours every day and is such a generous person that he will always help out anyone who needs it. Unfortunately, this means he doesn't get to see his children much and this perceived neglect only adds to Shannon's depression and cynicism. Sam tries to defend Mark, saying that each little thing that he does to help someone is a miracle to them. Shannon doesn't believe in miracles, so Al thinks that Sam's mission is to restore Shannon's Christmas spirit. Meanwhile, a group of little people keep trying to get Sam's attention, wanting his help for the big night. For some reason, they can see Al. 
The mission proves difficult for Sam, making him think that he needs a miracle himself. To make matters worse, Amos, Mark's superior, has been embezzling money from the store and has framed Mark for it. Mark is arrested. Al can't believe that Ziggy missed this event, but Ziggy has been preoccupied with trying to find out information about Nick. With their father locked up just three days before Christmas, all hope of restoring any Christmas spirit seems lost. But when word gets out about his arrest, all of the people that Mark has recently helped pitch in to post his bail. Mr Davenport, the owner of the store, also comes to the police station. Knowing Mark's character, he does not believe that Mark stole from him, so drops the charges and swiftly fires Amos. Shannon is overjoyed, and seeing this as all the little miracles adding up to one big miracle, now has her Christmas spirit restored. With Sam's mission complete, he is again approached by the little people, who are carrying a huge sack of toys and pointing to their watch. Realising that he's leapt into the real Santa Claus, Sam leaps. I have mixed feelings about this episode. I've only talked about the first story in issue three because A, it's the Christmas-themed story, and B, the second story is a hot mess. More concerned with trying to tack in science fiction elements than trying to have a story that fits in the lore of Quantum Leap. I'll save that discussion for another time, though. As for the Quantum Leap lore in the first story, it's hit and miss. It is nice that they tried to stick to most of the rules established in the Quantum Leap canon, such as having small children able to see Al, and as much as I'm sure Christopher D. Philippus will hate it, the formula of anything supernatural being alluded to, proving to be true for the twist at the end, is followed. However, it is established in the illustration of the mirror shot that Sam's host Nick has a full beard, so it doesn't make sense that Sam would be wearing a fake beard for most of the story. Actually, maybe it does. If the small children can see Al, then they should be able to see Sam too. And if so, they'll think that Santa doesn't have a beard unless Sam wears a fake one. So maybe Sam is wearing the fake beard for their benefit. But then why does the cover have Sam without a fake beard? And why does the first page of the story show Sam leaping in to a man wearing a fake beard when that man doesn't need it? I also have issues with how Ziggy seems completely unable to predict anything that's going to happen, despite having all the information in front of her. However, just for the sake of having another heartwarming Quantum Leap Christmas story, this comic is well worth checking out if you haven't done so already, or pulling out of storage to enjoy at least once over this silly season. Hi folks, Allison here, reading an email from George Broderick, the editor of Quantum Leap Comic Number 3, who contacted us with his thoughts. Hi, David Campiti sent me the link to your podcast for issue number 3 of Quantum Leap. Generally well done. You were spot on with most of your comments. Let me give you some context. Number 1. C. Winston Taylor was quite a coup for innovation. He was a one-time president of the Society of Illustrators in Los Angeles, and this was his first and, unless I'm missing something, only work for comics. He did all of our QL covers, and a couple of Lost in Space ones as well. The general layout of the covers was usually mine, and number three was no exception. I wanted Owl's flamboyant dress to include a green fur coat, making him look almost like a Christmas tree, and Winston nailed it. He used his own kids and their neighborhood friends as models for the kids in line. 
Number two, budget limitations and time constraints kept us from using Winston on the interiors and our original artist flaked out and bailed on us after issue one. So I had to rely on a rotating roster of artists for the series until issue number eight, when Mike Diodato Sr. took over. Sometimes the art was hit or miss, but my only real editorial mandate was that we were paying for the likeness rights, so Sam and Al had to look as much like Scott and Dean as possible. In Andy's defense, I will say that the bits you liked most, especially the stockings, were all him. I didn't direct him to do that, and it wasn't in the script. I loved it. Number three, the conceit of the series was to have Sam leap into someone of a certain occupation and have my writers be part of that occupation in real life. For instance, issue number two involving the legal system in Ohio was written by Bob Ingersoll, a public defender in the Cleveland court system. Issue number four's game show scandal story was written by an actual writer slash researcher for TV's Jeopardy. No one had experience as a real-life Santa, not even a mall one, I looked. So I tagged in John Holland, who I knew as a writer could handle whimsy. Since I can't remember the second story in issue number three, I guess I'll have to agree with your critique. Again, time and budgetary constraints. C'est la vie. Once again, well done, Hayden. I hope my comments can help with future podcasts. Merry Christmas. All right, so it is time for trivia, and joining us is Hayden and Amanda. How are you guys doing? Hi, how are you, Chris? Hi, Merry Christmas, one and all. Merry Christmas. It's Boxing Day here. Boxing Day. So what kind of gifts do you have for us? Tell us about some of the trivia that's in this episode. All right, well, um, first of all, the really obvious one is uh, Al calls Blake a real Scrooge, which is after the character in the Charles Dickens novel A Christmas Carol. In fact, the entire episode is a homage to this timeless novel. From what I've heard, and because that's one of my favorite books, and I read it every year at Christmas. And from what I've heard, Christmas was sort of a moribund, even looked looked down upon holiday. And it was the popularity of A Christmas Carol that that brought it back, that that made people celebrate it uh, with renewed uh, fervor, maybe. Or it it, it just it, it made Christmas a thing again. And for that, I'm ever grateful because it's always a thing for me. Well, I've always got to watch at least one thing about A Christmas Carol at some point throughout the Christmas season. Um, Me too. Usually the Quantum Leap episode, but there are many, many others. (laughs) What I think is the funniest one that I recently saw was um, the Flintstones did a play where they, they put on the play of A Christmas Carol and mind you, this is thousands of years BC, long before Christ was born. So, <laughs> well, here's the real question, though, and I think I remember seeing that when I was a kid. But is that uh, with Gazoo or without Gazoo? I think he was in it. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't think it's part of the original Flintstone series. I think it's like one that was done like the last fifteen years or so. Right. Right. So, okay, dum dums. What do you have next? <laughs> <laughs> Um, while it's not explicitly stated in the episode, um, it's the box of Michael Blake's childhood photographs um, that Sam finds in the closet later in the episode. 
that uh, exposes the street that Blake grew up in while they're walking down with the uh, the children from the mission yelling familiar phrases from his past. And the discussion from Blake's childhood friend, which fulfills the job that would have been taken by the ghost of Christmas past. One could consider that Sam, too, uh, he had taken on the role of the ghost as he was the mastermind behind these events. And this happens later on in the episode. Yeah, well, Sam is obviously he's forced to do both. He's forced to embody both aspects because there are no real ghosts. And it just I guess here's the funny thing. If you're going to be doing a Christmas Carol, what I like about this episode is that it doesn't adhere so strictly. You don't have act one, act two, act three. It's just sort of it hews generally to the structure of, of that terrific story. But it does it in its own way, in a way that's different enough where you're not just sitting saying, oh, here we go. All right. Goes to Christmas past. Goes to Christmas present. Oh, goes to Christmas future. No, they did it so uniquely. That's what I love about this episode. But what else we got? As far as the ghost of Christmas future, Al later on appears as a hologram, passing himself off as a ghost and explicitly takes on the role of the ghost of Christmas future. The fact that he's unable to be touched and can use relocation effects to appear to be floating or teleporting and his use of the futuristic late 20th century technology to future to project future photographs, news reports and Blake's own tombstone to back up his claim. While successful, he showed a rare lack of professionalism by not doing his research, dressing up in chains like Jacob Marley instead of <laughs> the black robes, uh, like the ghost of Christmas future which obviously gave him away to Blake. I thought that was so funny. And I'm so glad they went that way because <laughs> it would have, I mean, you, I don't think you could believe the owl character as death. He, he's got to mm-hmm. be something flamboyant. Yeah. And there was also a great slapdash quality to his costume. And that fits in perfectly with the time frame that we're working with here. It's not like they could hire a costume designer, you know, somewhere under a mountain in where's Quantum Leap selling skate New Mexico, right? So it's uh, they, they had to make do with what they had. And I thought it, it, uh, it just another little element of this episode that makes it work so well. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, in the 1975 news broadcast, there's a note that the New York Knicks have done it again. This is likely referring to the game that was played on December the 23rd in 1975, in which the Knicks bit the Milwaukee Bucks 110 to 108. Okay, that's for all the sports fans out there. I think that might have been the last time the Knicks won. Being a New Yorker, I don't, you know. It's through osmosis. I know a lot of people are disappointed with the Knicks. <laughs> As an Australian, I don't really understand what many of those words mean. So I read that pretty much verbatim from Beyond the Mirror Image. Thanks again, Matt, for writing it for us. This is where most of the trivias come from. Well, Hayden, you're not the only one that doesn't know what you're talking about. I mean, that's all sports stuff, and I don't know sports stuff. How about you, Amanda? Are you a big, big basketball fan? <laughs> no. no so, so moving Sorry. on, what other trivia do oh, we have? Basketball, that- is it? <laughs> Yes, it's I basketball. It oh. No, Knicks are basketball. Hardwood. Yes. Okay. Sneakers. Bouncing. <laughs> so later in the episode, we um, see more about Blake. Um, and speaking of Blake, the actor who played him, Charles Rocket, um, returns to Quantum Leap in season four's Leap for Lisa as Commander Riker. And sad parallel to a little miracle, Rocket tragically, tragically took his own life in 2005. Right. 
Um, that is sad. And it's funny um, the way he weaves in and out of this episode. You had heard earlier in the interview that uh, Jarrett Lennon, who did his scene with Charles Rocket, worked with him again as well in that Robert Altman movie. And it's just a tragic loss. He was such a good actor. He was. He certainly was. Yeah, by all means. By all means. He was, he was the shining star of this episode. I think even more than Sam because he had so much more to carry. And uh, he did it all so wonderfully. All right. Well, it appears that the project has sorted out its energy problems. Uh, if we remember back to Pool Hall Blues, the project could barely muster enough power to beam a thin line into Sam's view. But now they're able to project entire buildings and skyscrapers for news broadcasts. I'm going to say because show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is nice, though, that... Um, as the series progresses, it does seem like the project is evolving, which you probably would expect as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the writing uh, shows that in itself, too. And speaking of writers, writer Sandy Freeze describes himself as a spiritual person. So wanting to infuse an episode with this nature, he explained the ending as a Rorschach test referring to this classic psychological test in which a person's observations are tested in order to form conclusions about them. Saying that if you think the star in the sky is a miracle, it is. And if you think that it is not a miracle, then it is for you. But I think it's still a miracle that you're not ready to perceive. And he described the initial story meeting as very, very cool. And I think it just works no matter what level you want to see it on. It just gives such an emotional cap to the episode. So good work, Sandy. Now, Milan Nikshik, who played the mirror image of Reginald Pearson, had a very quick turnaround for his performance. He received news of the audition on Friday, October 19th, 1990. He had the audition on the Saturday and was cast later that day. Jean-Pierre Dorliac measured him for a suit on the Monday, which was completed by the Tuesday, and he filmed his sequence on the Wednesday. So it was all done within less than a week after his first hearing of the opportunity. And he later recalled it as a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) Also later, Jarrett Lennon, who played the tiny boy who owned the toy Sheldon, the horse was a fan of Quantum Leap at the time that he was cast, and he has great memories of Charles Rocket. Oh, yeah, he certainly did have some great memories. And as you guys heard, um, he's he, nothing but good things to say. Mm. Yeah. All right. We've got a few goofs as well. There's a reference to Nikita Khrushchev visiting Disneyland. He was supposed to do this during his first visit to the U.S. in late 1959, but it was canceled for security reasons. He visited the U.S. again in 1960, but there were not any plans for him to visit the theme park. By late 1962, which is when the episode was set, the Cuban Missile Crisis was in full swing and a further visit seemed very unlikely. It certainly wasn't something in the public eye at the time. Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit of a historical whoops on the part of the writers. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that they were really planning for people making a podcast 25 plus years later to go and check. So, Yeah, I think that yeah, sometimes exactly. they'll, <laughs> they'll take that, that liberal approach to history just to give you a flavor of what was going on in the era, right? Just to bring mm-hmm. you back, right? And you yeah. can exactly keep your textbooks it. on the shelves, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't Not have the for... internet back then either. 
right? Right, exactly. They had that problem too. Now for the, the middle of the episode, when Al says it's in the middle of July in his time, his cigar is off screen. And the angle changes after Blake shouts for Sam. And suddenly, it's in his mouth. Are we pointing out continuity errors? Because I noticed a huge one. Oh, let's Go hear it. it. Well, it's, it's not that huge, but it's at the very end when Blake is at the end of his rope and he's on the street crying and it's, he's just he's distraught and his hair is all disheveled and he's sort of wild and he stumbles to the mission door. And then you you switch to the point of view from inside the mission as uh, Captain Downey opens the door and he's standing in the doorway and his hair is perfectly quaffed. <laughs> oh, I saw that too. It's combed back beautifully and it took me out of the scene <laughs> just a little bit. I was like, damn it. Yeah. All right. I've got a better one for you. I did have that one written down here, but here's a better one for you. All right. Now, after Blake is asking for help from Captain Downey in that scene, Al changes out of his Ghost of Christmas Future costume and back into his Hawaiian shirt yes. and removing his ghostly makeup extremely quickly in the space of a couple of minutes. Yeah, I think they had magic cold cream in the uh, imaging chamber. I'm not sure. <laughs> quite possible, quite possible. Yes, and also in that in that particular area of the episode, the perspective of the holographic Blake Plaza is way off-center. I I thought that that because it would hmm, now this is just going to be maybe too real world. You're right. It was off center, but I think it represents how they would change the entire area. They just have the footprint to work with. They don't have to keep what's there on the ground. All they have to do is clear it out and start from scratch. So as long as they stay within that parcel, they can build it any way they want as high as they want. So that's the way I saw it. You're right. It, it did sort of take me sense. out of it saying, well, it's now it's on an angle. It's like the Flatiron building and yeah. like, we're, we're facing the street. And yeah, I mean, it was probably just a way for the effects department to give depth to the effect as well. Mm. So yeah. yeah, a lot of stuff going on. All right. Now, the photo that Sam finds at the start is labeled Michael Blakowski's eighth birthday, 1928 which means that he must have been born in 1920, but the headstone at the end gives his birth year as 1922. Whoopsie. Somebody couldn't do their math very well. <laughs> they needed me on the crew, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, and when the Rolls-Royce pulls out before Blake discovers the pictures, there are modern cars from the 70s and 80s visible. Yeah, unfortunately unavoidable. When you're shooting on location. Yeah. You could probably barricade the road off so that only what you want is in the scene. Though. Yeah, but the thing is, if there is a public space beyond that barricade, people can come and go as they please. There should be PAs. I Trust me, I've had this job. PAs that lock. They, say, they call it block and lock or lock and block the set so that you're basically standing there like a bouncer if you're on location to make sure nobody walks into the shot. And sometimes people, they don't care. They're just like, I got to go. And I imagine that's 10 times harder if you're trying to, you know, stand with your arms folded in front of an oncoming car. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, after his visit to the past, Blake is clearly drowning his sorrows a little, staring into space and speaking of the things that he owns. But by the next scene, he's stumbling around acting as if he's blind drunk. 
maybe there's a bit of time dilation going on there. It is a time travel show, perhaps. How how long did we see him sitting there? We could have just been at the end of his binge and he's sitting down. When you're drinking sitting down, you don't know how it's going to hit you until you stand up. So that's kind of the way I see Yeah, especially if you're sitting down in a hot tub while you're drinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to drink uh, in some of the places you drink, Hayden. That sounds like a lot more fun. <laughs> I don't drink at all, so I don't know. <laughs> oh, you're missing out. Uh, uh, well, at least I don't get hangovers. <laughs> okay. So the Blake Plaza sign notes Robert F. Wagner as the mayor of New York City. The mayor at this time was Robert F. Wagner Jr. It would be unusual for the junior to be dropped as his father was a long political career in the same arena. And the younger Wagner distinguished himself with the suffix. Again, no internet back then. All right. Now, when Blake lunges through Al twice, he messes up the covers in his bed. However, when he turns back around after the second attempt, the bed sheets are neat again. Mm. I wish I had made that efficient. Yeah, I was just going to say magic maid. Yeah, where was, what was the name of the hell, uh, the, the maid with the big bust? Baby. Baby. Bebe, so where was Bebe hiding in that bedroom? (laughs) Darn it, Hayden, you stole my line. (laughs) All right, so uh, we I think we've we've gone the gamut. We've gone from the star in the sky to Bebe's boobs. So is there anything left, guys? Yes, there's a black um, rectangle covering the middle of the screen when the star appears, and it can be seen covering the glow of the top right of the star. Wait, so uh, is this? A visual artifact from the effect, or did they capture a UFO in the sky over the New York Street of Universal's backlot? Oh, well, spoiler alert UFOs are real in the Quantum Leap universe, so it's possible. So they were setting up for season five, is what you were saying. Quite yes. possibly. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one last little one. When Al projects the 1975 news report onto the side of the building, Sam is looking at it. But then we see a wide angle shot and Sam is facing away. So he's obviously got eyes in the back of his head. Why not? He can do anything so he can see out the back of his head too. Exactly. (laughs) There you go. Sam, man for all occasions. All right, guys. Well, that's uh, a lot of terrific trivia. Thanks so much for bringing it to us. Thank you for letting us read it. And Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Lots of presents. Roll out the holly because it's time for a very special Christmas edition of the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and here we are at Season 3, Episode 10, A Little Miracle. And there's no need for holiday blues radio nerds because this Christmas sleep does feature a radio. And not just any radio, but a 1962 Zenith model MJ1035, also known as the Stereo Symphonaire, which Zenith touted as the world's most fabulous radio. You can see the MJ-1035 in the Salvation Army mission when Sam is trying to convince Captain Downey to Scrooge Blake. The AM-FM set is sitting on a table screen right, at such a sharp angle to the camera that I had a really hard time identifying it. But thanks to its large wooden cabinet, an enormous round tuning dial that dominates the top left corner of the set, and a uniquely indented right-sided gold speaker grill, the radio was unmistakable once I pegged it. Not only that, 
but I was lucky enough to find an ad for the radio online in an archived edition of Harper's Magazine dated July 1962, which means that this radio would have been readily available on Sam's leap date of December 24th in that same year. But though it's not technically anachronistic to the time period, it certainly is unlikely that this radio would have been found in a Salvation Army mission. Like I said, Zenith touted the Symphonaire as the world's most fabulous radio. So fabulous that the Harper's ad takes up two full pages, telling you just how fabulous. It was apparently the world's first deluxe four-speaker stereo FM table radio, with unparalleled stereo tuning, FM detection, and stereo separation. You know, if the ad is to be believed. The set achieved these feats of fidelity with the help of a second speaker that could be placed up to 15 feet from the main receiver to give a maximum stereo separation. And while this might all sound impossibly quaint in our surround sound reality, this radio really was state-of-the-art for its time. So much so that the MJ1035 retailed for $199.95 in 1962. That's about $1,643 in today's money, which is a pretty penny indeed. So, unless the mission had an extremely generous benefactor, or a resident thief, I doubt they would have had this high-end set, even without the second speaker. But in keeping with the spirit of the season, I choose to believe that it's just one more Christmas miracle in this heartfelt episode. Now, if you want to see the Zenith MJ1035 in all its holiday splendor, along with all the other radios that have appeared on Quantum Leap up until this point, you can do so on my website at theflipside.com. Just click on the Quantum Leap podcast link and look for the radio dial. This is your Quantum Leap radio guru wishing a Merry Christmas to all, and to all, a good night. Hey everybody, it's Chris again, and I just wanted to let you know on the next episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, we will be talking about episode 41, Runaway. You pig! Ow! What are you doing? Shut up back there! I'm a kid. You're a twerp! Ow! I said shut up! She called me monkey boy? She did. She yeah, called well, me monkey boy. That's her job. Hey! You're 13? She's your big sister. That's her job. 13? Let's see, your name is Butchie Rickett, and you and your family just left your home in Pahokee, Florida for a 9,000-mile trip across the country. And when the fireworks go off tonight, your mom, at Butchie's mom, runs out on the family. Well, they never see or hear from her again. Please don't let it happen to Emma and her family. How come you decide when and what we do? Because I'm the dad. So that makes you boss? <laughs> of course. I think maybe if we all just... Butchie! What's going on, Mom? You wouldn't understand. Come on, I'm 13. Yeah, my little man. Afraid of being alone? I mean, I'm already by myself most of the day. It's just not like I thought it would be. Now, this, this doesn't mean that I don't love you and Alex and Daddy. Just that I um, want something more. Is Albie gone? Yes, he is. So do you think it's time we let the cat out of the bag? Oh, I don't know. Do you think it's a good idea? Well, look, everyone who listens to this show is completely mental. They know something's not right.
<laughs> well, I guess in that case, since you put it that way, I suppose letting the cat out of the bag might be the best option. Yeah. Well, you're not actually Heather, are you? No, I'm not. No. So who are you? I am actually Amanda. And why are you here, Amanda? And why does Elby think you're Heather? Well, because I apparently was doing my podcast and leapt out into Heather. I think I'm here to help Albie get the Quantum Leap podcast back off the ground. For some reason, the universe wants him to keep doing it. And so that's why I'm here. Yeah. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, everyone, um, do you really think that a house is going to carry me all the way from Australia to America <laughs> that's just uh, that's just the, some um, the hand link and Ziggy doing some awesome stuff. Took a hell of a lot of power to do, and uh, oh, for crying out loud, Gushy, please turn up the aircon. Wearing this ugly Christmas sweater in forty degree heat is unbelievably hot. <sighs> oh, please put the aircon back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I'm here as um, Amanda's hologram, and uh, yeah, we're here to put the quantum leap podcast back on track let's just say uh yeah serenity's happy to see me she's so little she can still see me and uh albie and amanda are on such a tight wavelength that uh albie can see me as well which is great thank goodness your plan worked and uh yeah all our listeners are completely mental so that's why you can all hear me as well so (laughs) but they're completely mental in the best possible way (laughs) absolutely who wants to be normal anyway Nobody, it's boring. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so while we're here, Amanda, um, you do your own podcast about Dean Stockwell, don't you? Yes, I do. It's called The Dean's List. Well, while we've got you here, um, besides this Quantum Leap episode, uh, does has Dean Stockwell done any other Christmas shows or Christmas um, movies or anything like that? It's interesting you should ask me that because I was actually working on a podcast episode about one of his other Christmas works when I leapt into Heather. Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, maybe you'd like to share it with all of us. Sure. Yes, that episode is called Twas the Fight Before Christmas, and it was an episode from a TV show done back in the 70s called McLeod. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you um, do your podcast now and I'll go keep Serenity company because she's um, running amok. And uh, yeah, I'll be back very soon. Tonight's episode is about one of Dean's two Christmas special appearances on television. Season seven, episode two of McLeod, titled Twas the Fight Before Christmas. I'd like to pause here for a moment to especially thank Mr. Hayden McQueenie for acquiring this episode of our show. Thanks, mate. Twas the Fight Before Christmas is an action-packed, if not slightly confusing, Christmas story. It has about four different stories going on at one time, one of which involves our darling Dean. When we first meet Dean in the episode, we find he is playing a drug dealer named Pete Lancaster who was first seen in the episode running in and announcing that his connection wouldn't deal in a buy for a girl named Peggy, who was experiencing painful withdrawal symptoms. The stuff, we later find out, is morphine. The morphine needed to give the girl her fix cost $500, and he announces he didn't have that kind of money. Peggy's boyfriend Scott, played by star Dennis Weaver's son Robert, announces that he will get the morphine any way he has to. 
Next, we see Dean's character of Pete drive up to the hospital with Scott and Peggy. They hold up the druggist in the hospital just long enough to get Peggy the morphine she needs. She shoots up with it, and a few moments later, a security guard walks in on them. Pete is armed and shoots the man in a state of panic, and they end up being chased by hospital security. One of the security guards shoots Pete in the leg, and they end up in the children's ward. However, there is a Christmas party taking place, and the police department's own Chief Clifford is Santa Claus. A hostage situation takes place, and it's up to McLeod to save the day. The remaining time of the episode contains much drama, action, and stressed-out conversations between Pete and the other two antagonists of the story. Scott doesn't really know what he wants, but keeps insisting he wants to demand for a helicopter and enough money to get him out of the States and safely away with Peggy. Pete seems to be more interested in just leaving the hospital and doesn't want any part of the hostage situation and spends most of his time questioning Scott, asking him what his plans are and what logic there is in demanding a helicopter. This part of the episode is where Dean has the most lines, and even then, it's not much more than four or five short sentences. During these minutes, the lives of all in the children's ward are at stake. Time ticks by slowly, and everyone involved in the story is getting more on edge. Finally, at the climax of the episode, McLeod swings in through the window and apprehends Scott. Meanwhile, Chief Clifford grabs Pete and pins him against the wall, and the episode ends abruptly. It's a pretty messily contrived story without much consistency except for the Christmas theme. Dean doesn't have many lines, but has a decent amount of screen time. It is unfortunate that he is seen more than he is heard, as Scott kind of takes over the position of leadership in the group. That being said, McLeod is a serial television show that often has several storylines going on at once, and first-time viewers will easily become confused just jumping in on an episode mid-series such as I did with this episode. So, as usual, it's best to watch the series from start to finish if one wishes to understand all that's going on. All in all, Twas the Fight Before Christmas is an okay episode, but it definitely doesn't do Dean justice. A much better Christmas episode to enjoy Dean's performance in would be A Little Miracle from Season 3 of Quantum Leap. I recommend you check that out this holiday season. All right, let me perform some of some magic on this hand link. I've used my Insta hologram filter to make me look like a ghost. How do I look, Serenity? Ha ha ha, Hayden, you look silly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, I'm supposed to look scary. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll be scared of his own shadow. You're fine. Ooh. Hey, Albie, wake up! Ah, uh, hey, Hayden? What are you doing? I am the ghost of podcasts' future. Is this some kind of joke? You know, I'm not in the mood for this. I am the ghost of podcasts' future. You are so rude. First, you literally drop in unannounced. Then you have a party in my house and force me into doing the podcast just when I've got nothing to do. Are you hard of hearing? I am here to show you your podcast's future. That does it. I'm going to knock you all the way back to Australia. Wow, you're faster than you look. I, I didn't even see you move. That's because I didn't. <laughs> Heather? You okay, Albie? Uh, Heather, help. 
help. What's wrong? Uh, c- 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 can't you see what uh, Hayden's doing? No, Hayden? He- he's right there, floating above us. You must have been dreaming. Boy, like a nightmare. Ha <laughs> me in the studio. Don't make me have to come looking for you. Are you sure Hayden told you to meet him here? He sure did. He's right there. Heather, please, tell me you can see him. Sorry, I don't see anything. Why don't you find out what he wants? Uh, Hayden? I can hear her. Strap yourself in. This is gonna be a bumpy ride. So, you don't think you can handle the podcast anymore? That's okay. You don't need to keep outdoing yourself. But just have a listen to some of your own listeners. When I get a job, what am I going to listen to on the way to work? I'm sure they have plenty to listen to still. What about all the other podcasts by Baron Space Productions? I'm glad you asked. Life changes, things happen. You know, it goes on, you know. Jobs end, dogs die, partners get busy. What do you do? Stop! (laughs) (laughs) What? None of them continue with their shows? Why would they? You're the one who brought everyone together. And the reason they do it is because they have so much fun doing them with you. But surely they understand that I need to put my family first and make sure Serenity is brought up right. Speaking of Serenity... She follows in her father's footsteps. Hey there, this is Serenity Situation, like coming to you almost live from Florida, New Jersey. And you know, this is the Jersey Shore podcast. It's a Jersey thing. In like breaking news, the Civil War is finally ending with President Snooki's smush-mush attacks, reducing the Great Wall of California to garbage. You hear me? It's cabbage! Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I haven't had my coffee yet. Uh, anyway, they like surrendered and stuff. But on to the most, like, important topic. Stop, stop, stop. I can't take any more. Oh, Albie, you don't want to leave before the end of the movie, do you? It's such a peaceful ending. The Quantum Leap Podcast never aired another episode. Never? Oh, I don't, I don't want the Quantum Leap podcast to die. I love making it. I've, I've made so many friends through it, and it's such a great product that I'm so proud of. Daddy, can you please read me this comic book? Sure we can, my little leaper. Uh, we did it, Amanda. Albie gets his spark back, and the Quantum Leap podcast returns in 2018 better than ever. They get to the end of the series and even do some of the novels and comics. That's such great news, Hayden. Do you think Albie would have continued podcasting if you hadn't told Serenity to ask him to read her another story? Uh, I didn't ask her to. (laughs) Merry Christmas, Hayden. Merry Christmas, Amanda.
hippopotamus for Christmas. Only a hippopotamus will do. Don't want a doll, no dinky tinker toy. I want a hippopotamus to play with and enjoy. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. I don't think Santa Claus will mind you. He won't have to use a dirty chimney flue. Just bring him through the front door. That's the easy thing to do. I can see me now on Christmas morning creeping down the stairs. Oh, what joy and what surprise when I open up my eyes to see a hippo hero standing there. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Only a hippopotamus will do. No crocodiles, no rhinoceroses. I only like hippopotamuses, and hippopotamuses like me too. Mom says a hippo would eat me up, but then. Teacher says a hippo is a vegetarian. There's lots of room for him in our two-car garage. I feed him there and wash him there and give him his massage. I can see me now on Christmas morning creeping down the stairs. Oh, what joy and what surprise when I open up my eyes to see a hippo hero standing there. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Only a hippopotamus will do. No crocodiles or rhinoceroses. I only like hippopotamuses and hippopotamuses like me too. Wow, I can't believe Hayden was a ghost all along. Hayden is not a ghost, he's a wizard. Oh, Albie, for getting you back into the podcasting mood, Hayden is nothing short of an angel.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Albie, Heather, Hayden, Amanda, Chris, and Suzanne, with voice talents and contributions from Zoe Dean, Hayden McQueenie, Christopher DeFilippis, Juan Miro, and jolly old St. Nick. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Juan Miro. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Barren Space production. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. Could you imagine if we were recording this? That would be funny. I don't even want to think. No, just no. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> Michael Blakowski, July 14th, 1922. Al, he changed his name. Well, no wonder we couldn't find any information on him. Here are the bells. I tell you, it looks like he started in a slightly different neighborhood. Yeah. All right, have Ziggy figure out if he can, if he can. Uh, looks like he started out in a slightly different neighborhood. You don't have to comment in the lens. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> oh, that was cute. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. <laughs> Mum, you did good. Merry Christmas, everyone. Cotton, the fabric of our lives. It was a modern. It was a modern version of the of, of a Christmas carol. You can't enjoy your life with a building, if that makes sense. Unless it has furry walls. <laughs> I think that only goes so far. Okay. Because he's usually got to act like Al's not there, so people don't think he's crazy, but he's the only one that sees Al. But now he saw Al along with Blake and had to act like, I'm just going to cut that out. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Oh, we're together in season three, by the way. Oh, are we? Yes. Romantic. Hey, buddy. So Blake says uh, she's beautiful when he's seeing. So Blake is Blake slips out that he thinks that Captain Laura Downey is beautiful. Blake slips out that he thinks Captain Laura Blake Downey. He had that George Bailey moment at the end where he was on the ground and weeping because he saw what his life was going to be like, kind of in an alternate reality, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> i don't know is it kind of like when daisy comes back from the land of diz with the green slippers on yeah it is yeah so <laughs> i only mention that because they're so obvious about it daisy i think you had a dream you know that it's Minnie mouse right what did i say daisy yeah Oh, Minnie, I think you must have fallen asleep and had a dream. And then Mickey goes, why? Where did you get those green shoes? And then she goes, maybe it wasn't a dream, right, everybody? (laughs) Not that I've seen that 82 times. Please keep that in the podcast, at least in the bloopers. All right. Favorite time of the year. Whoops, say that again. Favorite time of the... (laughs) We miss you. We we miss you. We miss you a Merry Christmas. Pearson, you forgot the towel. Joy to the world, <laughs> the Lord is come. <laughs> all right, everybody. Merry Christmas. God bless us all, everyone. God bless us, everyone. And now we have an interview with Tom Matique. And here it is. Okay, everyone, we're back. And uh, guess what, guys? You know what time it is? Time to speak to Mr. Tom McTeague. All right. I'm really excited to hear this interview because uh, I'm familiar with Tom McTeague from Baywatch. He was a main character for a season, <laughs> and uh, it's something I talk about on my own show. So I'm looking forward to listening to it and uh, hope everyone else enjoys. Tom, welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you played Blake's sycophantic yes-man, Calloway, in the classic Christmas episode, A Little Miracle. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got started acting and what led to getting that role on Quantum Leap? Uh, Well, uh, I got into acting in uh, college. I had done a workshop uh, my senior year in high school uh, with an improv group in Seattle and I really enjoyed it. So I went, uh, when I went to college, um, 
theater was sort of on my mind, but I wasn't taking any theater classes. And then my English teacher suggests I audition for a role that was available in Equus, which the college was producing. And I auditioned for uh, the role of Alan Strang, which was the lead character uh, in this show, and I got it. That's 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 a heavy role <laughs> for your first time out. That's a really yeah, heavy right? role, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, when you're new at anything, you sort of um, – you don't really know what you're, what you're jumping into, but I, I knew it had a nude scene in it. So when they told me I got the role, which is a plum role, uh, I said, okay, I'll let you know in a couple of days. Uh, <laughs> Jaws <laughs> sort of hit the floor. And then um, I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, I got the part in this production and, and it's a good part, but it's got a nude scene in it. So I don't know if I want to do it. What do I do? And, and you know, my mom was really bright and she said, just get a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it. And on one side, write the good things that could come of it. And on the other side, write the bad things that could come of it. And the only bad thing I could come up with was that people would laugh and point at my side. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> All right. I don't care. Um, and and I loved it. I did the I did the show and I loved it and it was uh, well received critic, critically. And then I sort of declared theater as a major and did that for two years. And at that point, I was pretty sure I wanted to be an actor, so I moved to New York and studied at uh, uh, Herbert Berghoff Studios in New York. And then got homesick and. Um, Came home about a year and a half later and, and uh, just started working in the regional theater in Seattle. And that's how it happened. I, I Part of my rationale for, for starting professionally in Seattle was because it was a much less competitive environment. So I was able to uh, get my union cards and start working a little bit more quickly than I would have had I been, you know, competing in New York. Understood. Well, when you wrote down the pros and the cons of doing Equus, was one of the cons, aside from people pointing and laughing, that, you know, everybody you know and maybe people in your family would see you in the all together? Is, I, and I ask that because I know actors, that they, they have to sort of face that as part of what they do for a living. And how do you reconcile those things? It, to me, it just seems seems like it dicey. It would be dicey. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's weird to be naked in front of a room full of clothed people. But the weirdest part about it is becoming naked. Once you're nude, it doesn't matter. You know, it's all England out there. Everybody's being <laughs> and admire or not, you know. Getting naked is really hard because you sense the anticipation of the audience, you know. So... Going from clothed to unclothed is a tough transition, but once you're unclothed, it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, here yeah. I am. <laughs> um, and I didn't, I didn't care whether my family saw me or not. I mean, I knew that the body of that play was so solid that, you know, it, the play is the thing, and 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 uh, the nude scene was, you know, incidental to the rest of the show. So. I got you. I got you. Know. you. It wasn't. It wasn't like I was doing a, a stage adaptation of Deep Throat, <laughs> you know, where, where it was pretty nude, pretty much all the time. It was just a scene in a in a much larger body of work. So, 
<laughs> I got you. Well, let's steer it back to the family friendly. We're talking about a, a Christmas episode, right? <laughs> how did, sure, how, did right. how, yeah. how did you go from uh from from Seattle to LA? And uh, what was the process of getting work on TV in the 90s? I guess in the 80s at that point too. How did how did you uh, how did you how did you break in and how did you uh, wind up wind up with uh, with QL? Well, when I was uh, living in Seattle uh, and working in regional theater, I had I discovered stand up more as a fan than as a comedian. I just I wandered into a comedy club, and I I think at that point I was very broken hearted from a relationship that had gone south, and I wandered into this stand-up comedy club and for an hour and a half I was transported you know I forgot about my broken heart and my betrayal and all you know I mean it was just sort of this magical thing so I became something of a comedy groupie just hanging around comedians and talking to them and you know wanting to know how they did this incredible thing they did and then I started writing for them and then I started performing and uh, after about Oh gosh, I don't know. Four or five years of doing stand up in Seattle, I felt like I was ready to be seen on a larger stage. So I moved to Los Angeles. And shortly after moving to Los Angeles, I met a, another comic who said, Who's your agent? And I said, I don't have an agent. And he said, Well, call my agent. He great. So I called his agent and uh, they signed me that day. And, and from that agent, I got another agent. And then you know, stand-up comedy is a really good way to showcase yourself to a larger group of people than than simply being an actor is sometimes, you know. So for me, stand-up was a way to get agents. And once I got agents, I got auditions. And that was one of the auditions that the Quantum Loop audition was one of the auditions I went on and was lucky enough to get the part. But, you know, it's interesting looking back on it because at the time... I mean, Quantum Leap was a fairly successful show, but it wasn't what it is today in terms of uh, really devoted following. I was working in Vegas, I don't know, six months ago, and one of the guys that I was working with said, can we just have lunch? I just want to talk to you about you know, what you've done. And I said, sure. And I guess overnight he Googled me and up popped Quantum Leap. And all he wanted to talk about for the entire lunch was me being on quantum leap. He was like a rabid quantum. Trip. And, uh, that was my first even awareness that there was this yeah. you know, really devoted following to this show that I did so many years ago, you know, but that episode seems to, seems to hold up and they show it every year because I get about 18 cents. <laughs> I know it's running. Well, tell us, tell us um, what the audition process was like. And uh, if if you don't mind, you know, your time on the set, I know you got to work with Scott and also extensively with your fellow guest star, Charles Rocket. So, uh, so, so dish. I don't remember the audition process and I don't remember booking a job. I remember being on the set and doing it. And yeah, it was just kind of fun. You know, I mean, at that point I hadn't done a lot of work, so. Uh, I was on a big sound stage, and Scott Bakula was an incredibly nice guy. Dean was uh, a little bit more reserved. And Charlie Rocket I'd known because he had done work on uh, Saturday Night Live and, and now was simply just plying you know, his acting chops in L.A., and so we'd, we'd cross paths on auditions and things. And um, 
we actually knew each other for years post that in LA. It was sort of a, a way for us to become friends, you know, and then he died, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you knew that, which is really, uh, tragic. I mean, it was just really sad the way he went out, but good guy. And so on the set for, I'm going to say four, four days, something like that, and shoot some here and go back to your trailer and shoot some there and go back to your trailer. And uh, it was just a lot of fun, you know, but you know, it's so many years ago and it was a small part. I, when I was first approached, I was like, God, what did I even do on Quantum Leap? So I had to go back and watch the episode. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was great. But it's it's a long time ago, you know, so my recollections are not fresh. Well, that, that's fine. I mean, and that's not uncommon with uh, many of the actors we talk to. It's understandable, too, because it's a job you did, what, 30 years ago for a couple of days and you've moved on. And, you know, there's a whole contingent of uh, fan boys and girls that haven't. So we're going to pick your brain and we'd love to hear what you have to say anyway. OK, I just wanted to if you can remember a little bit about the dynamic, because one of the things that struck me about A Little Miracle was it was ostensibly the Christmas Carol episode. Right. But. Right. Your your scenes with Charles and with Scott were some of the funniest in the entire series. And I don't know that it was written that way or if you guys just played off of each other naturally that way, because I know that Charles had a comedic background. You're a comedian and Scott seemed to be, you know, killing it in those scenes. Is that something that you recall like discussing and bringing to those scenes because of your background or was it just there on the page and you were able to enact it? And I think it was on the page, and if it wasn't on the page, it was certainly in the the producer's minds uh, that they wanted it to be sort of that, at least that relationship to be sort of tongue-in-cheek, the, the sort of overworked, underappreciated assistant who always had big ideas and was full of aspirations, and Charles would always shoot me down, and, and um, you know, it, and Scott has great comedic timing anyway. I mean, he's one of those effortless guys that you, you, you watch his work in that series and in other things over the years. And he's just so easy on screen. You can see why he became the success that he did. But I, I'm sure that the reason that I was hired for that was because of my comedic skills and probably something comedic that I brought to that audition that maybe other people didn't see in the script. That was, it's pretty much why I get hired. Right, right. Well, (laughs) people, people write phone books and I read it in a specific, I remember going in for an audition for a soap opera and they were howling and it was, it was basic dry soap opera stilted dialogue and they thought it was hilarious and they went, thanks. That was one of the best auditions we've ever seen. You're not right for this part. (laughs) uh, Hollywood, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, so. You know, you kind of you go with your strengths, and and I'm really pleased that that it uh, turned out that way. You know, uh, Charles had great timing, and he was a fun foil to work with, um, and uh, Scott the same way. You know. Yeah, well, if we can branch out a little bit, I mean, you went from uh, Christmas in New York on Quantum Leap to Eternal Summer on Baywatch where you had a regular role as Harvey Miller. So, what was it like to be on you know the hottest show of the '90s? Um, it was fun. You know, I, it was, uh, a little bit thankless as an actor, you know, because you go into any project thinking I'm going to bring value to this project. And on, on, on Baywatch, you were, uh, 
exposed really quickly f- to the idea that you weren't the star, that TNA was the star. So you'd spend, <laughs> you know, you'd spend, they'd spend 10 minutes, you know, you'd, you'd rehearse a scene and then you'd block the scene and then they'd shoot the scene and they'd go, get it, great, check the gate, moving on. And then they'd spend two hours fluffing you know, fluffing boobs and making sure bathing suits were as high cut as they possibly could be and doing close-ups on, you know, sweat trickling down somebody's cleavage and it, you know, but it was, it was fun. It was good, uh, good experience. And David Hasselhoff was a really nice guy to work with. And, uh, yeah, you got to go to the beach every day and it was a regular paycheck. So it was fun. You can't, you can't get much better than that. And you get to hassle the Hoff, right? So. Yes. There's a video somewhere of me, tweaking his nipples i I don't know where that is but it's out there somewhere Uh, i'm sure that the the outtakes from baywatch there might be some some pretty funny pretty racy stuff it's a whole different world from quantum leap huh right yeah it's not it it wasn't terribly serious baywatch did not take itself uh as seriously as it appeared to on the screen you know everybody knew what we were shooting and they knew what the audience was and they knew what the you know, what, what the demographic was and why people were watching. And, and so for the time that I was on the show, it was, it was fun and it was a lark, but, um, you know, they needed to move on too. So I left and Billy left and Erica left and then they brought on, uh, Pamela and that's when it, it really jumped the shark. But, um, boy, it, it, it was a, a big show and it was, you know, it's fun to be a part of something that's, that's that iconic. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, can we discuss some of your films? Some of them. I, I think I've only done uh, a couple. But yeah, let's discuss whichever. <laughs> well, let me tell you, one that really intrigued me was uh, Boyhood, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. And I know that that was shot. He shot that over 10 or 12 years. And um, can can you tell me what your involvement was with that project? It was so unique and what the shooting process was like. Yeah, I got a call from my agent and they said that there's this movie that's being shot and it's Richard Linklater. And I hadn't, I wasn't terribly familiar with his work, although I did watch Days and Confused. So I knew, I knew he had chops, but they, they also said this film has been uh, in production for seven years. And immediately I thought, oh Christ, this is just somebody's you know, vanity project. If it's been shooting for seven years, it's not going anywhere. It's going to go straight to video and sure, I'll audition for it, you know, but there was zero pressure because I didn't know anything about the project. It was very hush hush while it was in production. And so I went in for the audition um, and was very loose and we improv a scene um, of a culture, the boy who played the, the boy, mm-hmm. um, Improved a scene and uh, it worked good and got a call that I had that I had gotten the role and uh, when we got the script the script was very much the improv scene that we had done and uh, I only shot for a day they shot over twelve years but they only shot one week a year so they did one week of shooting and then I think two weeks of pre production and maybe a week of post production on on either side of that. So everybody had to come back every year for 12 years just for a week of shooting. So it was a very tight shooting schedule. You know, uh, it wasn't uh, relaxed at all because everybody knew they had to get the shots in in the week. And then bang, you get the shots and you move to the next scene, you get the shot and move to the next scene. 
Um, but excellent crew. Um, and Richard is such a good director, you know, such a good director. And it's a, a really worthwhile project. I think it's a, a worthwhile movie to watch. One of the things that's so interesting about it is for me, to, you know, it's like trying to write down your life story. There's so much of you. What do you use to tell the story? And for Richard Linklater to have a boy's life, and you know, from the time he was six until the time he was 18, to use as fodder for this film, how you winnow that down to a cohesive narrative that goes from point A to point B, uh, I thought was just an incredibly Herculean task. And, and I think he did a really good job. But the scene that I was in is in the middle of the movie. It's it's a long scene and a short scene. And it's pretty much all me doing a monologue or a substantial chunk of the dialogue with Eller in a dark room. And I'm giving him a lecture. I'm his photography teacher. And the scene is somewhat pivotal because he winds up becoming a photographer. And it was also one of those scenes that sort of distilled the plot of the movie. So it became the scene that was in every single commercial uh, for the movie and all the trailers for the movie. And then when it aired, uh, when, when it was nominated for an Academy Award at the awards, it was the clip they showed. So it's, it, and for for only being, you know, a three and a half minute segment of a two hour movie, um, it got a lot of notice. And that must have been nice to see, right? I was really proud of it. Yeah, I'm still proud of it to this day. I, I think it, I think that it really holds up well. And um, yeah, and and you know, and it was, it's one of those things that it just felt so lucky to be involved in. You know, I don't know how chances like that happen to people, but it's nice to. To have an opportunity to, you know, you, you, you bang your head against the door for years in Hollywood. And then after, you know, a couple of decades, you move to Texas because, you know, things are slowing down and that's where you want to be. And all of a sudden you're, you're handed a, a, a plum role in an Academy Award nominated film. And it's, I feel lucky. Well, I know that you've done series. I know that you've done movies, but it seems to me that your heart is still in stand-up. And I was doing my research on you. When I typed your name to Google, the autocomplete gave me options like Tom McTeague, Cat Puke, and Tom McTeague, Chicken Pot Pie. <laughs> <laughs> so right. I can only assume those are bits. Do you care to elaborate? Well, the the... Yeah, I still do. I still do stand up. Uh, it's been a, a a mainstay of my professional life for 35 years, and uh, I still love performing. You know, so I I work in Vegas a couple of times a year, and uh, uh, I work on cruise ships, uh, and occasionally I'll do a, a club here or there. But um, yeah, the cat puke, the cat puke bit is. It, it, that and and uh, I can't remember the other bit. Oh, the chicken pot pie, chicken pot pie, Hell's Angels. And, yeah, there's a CD that I have uh, in fairly uh, regular rotation on uh, Sirius XM. So I guess the, the those are the those are the bits that that people remember and Google and want to buy. So um, that's why those those pop up. But I'm still very active as a stand-up. I read that you also do like corporate gigs. Can you tell us what, what that's like? 
I do corporate gigs, but I do corporate gigs very rarely uh, because there's a whole lot of dancing around making sure that you're politically correct. And that, to me, is sort of the anathema of stand-up comedy. And I'm sure that there are clean PC comedians that would say, yeah, but the money's so good. Well, the money's really good, but I think it's more fun to be true to why I think that thing is funny than to go back and have to re-edit it so that, you know, margin accounting doesn't feel yeah. like I was acting <laughs> sexist. Or, you know, you know. And so, um, I mean, my, my stand-up is not particularly dirty, but it wasn't built to be delivered in a PC environment or a grade school, you know? So, yeah, it's an adult show built for adults. Gotcha. Uh, and it seems sometimes like corporate America is not populated by adults. So, <laughs> so what are you doing these days? Are you still acting? Um, I, I do act. I'm, uh, I stay fairly busy doing voiceover work. Um, I have a home studio, so, uh, I do voiceover work, at least the audition portion of that through my home studio and uh, I tour about 15 or 20 weeks a year doing stand-up primarily on on ships um, and then I've got this beautiful quiet life with a great girlfriend and kids and and uh, you know for the last week I've been gardening so uh, between stand-up and voiceover and residuals and the occasional uh, new acting role that comes along. Uh, I stay as busy as I want to be. And, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of liking my career these days to being a trapdoor spider. You know, I don't look very hard for work, but when it comes by, I snatch it. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I did an American crime, uh, an episode of American crime last year. And, and, uh, when things are available, I do them. There are friends here who produce, uh, you know, web series and webisodes and things like that. And uh, always happy to work with them, but it's not work. It's more, more fun. I'm really honored that people like the work that I've done and, and continue to watch it and contact me about it. And, and uh, uh, it's been a, it's been a fun career and it continues and nobody's more surprised about that than me. Maybe my dad, but he passed away. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a great job. Can our fans find you anywhere online? Uh, com. I'm currently rebuilding my site, so give me about two weeks before anybody clicks on that. And, <laughs> uh, hopefully, they'll be able to pull up a, a page that doesn't look like it was built 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah, com, and they can uh, friend me on Facebook. Uh, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram, so... I'm out there. I've got some something of a social media presence, but not a bunch. I don't. I don't uh, work very hard at maintaining that, which seems to be the you know. I mean, if you get a million Twitter followers, you're a star, and if you don't, then you're not. So, um, yeah, have them follow me on Twitter. I think I got 500 followers right now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll get it up to 506. Uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, oh, perfect. Yeah, perfect. there you go. There you go. Well, we'll put links for all of those uh, social media accounts and your website on the Quantum Leap Podcast website at quantumleappodcast.com. So everybody listening can check there. And now if we can just get back to Quantum Leap, if you don't mind, you had mentioned before that when you were on the show, it was, I guess, fairly popular, but it wasn't anything like it is now. Now, 
aside from the story that you told, can you relate instances where you have seen the show and your role on the show grow in popularity over the years? I, I just know that uh, it's one of those television series that was good enough to stand the test of time, which is a huge compliment to anything that happens on TV. Most of it uh, is, is so dated so quickly for something to last as long as Quantum Leap has with a fan base uh, as engaged and rabid as it is. I think it's a huge testament to the quality of that, of that show. It was well-written, well-conceived, and uh, uh, really well-executed. So kudos to everybody involved in it and the fans for recognizing that. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for spending time with us here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, Allison. So there you have it. I mean, your Baywatch uh, wish was granted. He did talk about <laughs> Osama Baywatch. I mean, it was pretty fun to talk to him about that. Very chill guy, as you guys heard in the interview, and just a very wry sense of humor. I had a good time talking to him. So thank you very much, Tom, for uh, enlightening us, not only with your time on Quantum Leap, but uh, giving Allison what she wanted as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Well, kids and kiddos and ladies and gentlemen and and everyone still listening uh, just imagine that we're sitting by a fireside uh, late night playing everyone out uh, i hope everyone enjoyed all of this stuff uh, i hope you enjoyed re-listening to this albie you, you are going to listen to all six hours right oh you know it twice absolutely um <laughs> i i enjoy this this is uh now become one of my favorite holiday traditions is making this episode even longer <laughs> I, I think we're past six hours now. I, I would hope we are. Allison, I think we might have set a record. This might be the longest podcast episode dedicated to one episode of television ever. Wasn't there one of these that was like seven hours? Of ours? Yeah. Probably. I like to talk. I thought for sure there was one that was that was super long, because there was like three interviews in it. <laughs> I can't tell you which one, but I Man. know I listened to it, and I, I was like, Man, I gotta break this up. I, I don't I don't have I gotta eat I gotta take bathroom breaks I can't <laughs> I, I, I had a lot of hate texts and hate email that week is like people that just looked at the length of it and said no there's no way I'm not you know, gonna do you, it if you play the episodes alongside so. it like how many times can you loop it around during the entirety of the <laughs> That would be crazy. Uh, what if somebody out there decided to do uh, a QLP Little Miracle Marathon and play all four versions of this podcast? Oh, man. That's, I mean, but it's just the same stuff over and over, yeah? Like, once you get to, like, the, the you know, the stuff that we're reintroducing? Yeah, it, it is. Is that, like, the, the uh, All I Want for Christmas is You challenge? Like, you listen to it, like, once for for every... For the date, you know, like by the time you get to like December 25, you listen to it 25 times in a row. I've never heard of it, but I'm intrigued. I tried it once. I didn't make it that far, though. Oh, man. <laughs> this would be, I think, better than that because it's not the same three minutes over and over again. It's the same six hours over and over again. Oh, man. But I'm not sure. 25 times six, I don't think you could do it in a day. So we're, we're setting all kinds of records here. No, no, I don't think you could. I think that that's untenable. I think the only thing we could do more than this is the Quantum Leap A Little Miracle Minute. 
where we take each minute of this episode and break it down <laughs> in an episode. Yes. One you know, that's what should happen in future years when we finally get to like the end of season four. We'll be yeah. like, it's 10 years later. <laughs> and we're finally going to, we're going to talk about this again. I love that you can do old lady voice at the drop of a hat. That's awesome. <laughs> it's one of my most famous voices. It is that and your uh, British accent. Oh, yeah. Matt loves that. Anyone who's actually British loves my British accent. <laughs> it sounds right to me, but who am I to say? Yeah, we're dumb Americans. <laughs> exactly. So for everyone that has made it to this point in the episode, um, without scrubbing ahead, thank you. And uh, uh, thank you to everyone who still listens to the Quantum Leap podcast. It's, it was great for me to be back. One more time, I know I keep saying I'm retiring and I keep coming out of retirement as often as Terry Funk. <laughs> you are welcome to unretire just as much as Terry Funk because yeah. it is great Aww. being able to talk with you and, and having you on there and you always do a great job. Thank you so much. You as well. I'm a big fan. <laughs> For the Quantum Leap Podcast and uh, everybody involved, we're wishing you a happy holidays, Merry Christmas and all that stuff. Hope you had a great Festivus. This has been Albie signing off. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Allison, signing off also. Bruce McGill, bless us, everyone. <laughs>